This is Heisenberg. These lectures are part of the Great Courses series. They are produced by the Teaching Company. The Great Courses cover a broad array of university-level disciplines. The lectures in each course are either 30 or 45 minutes long. By listening for less than an hour a day, you can finish even the longest course in just weeks. Browse our catalog or website and imagine how much you could learn if you spent just 30 minutes a day for the next year in the best college classrooms in the world. The lecturers are university professors carefully selected by the teaching company and its customers for intellectual distinction and teaching excellence. These lectures are titled, A History of Hitler's Empire. The lecturer is Professor Thomas Childers. Professor Childers is a professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania, where he has been teaching for over 25 years. He received his bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of Tennessee and earned his Ph.D. in history from Harvard University. In addition to his position at Penn, Professor Childers has held visiting professorships at Trinity Hall College, Cambridge, Smith College, and Swarthmore College. He is a popular lecturer abroad as well, lecturing in London, Oxford, Berlin, and Munich. Professor Childers is the author and editor of several books on modern German history and the Second World War. He is currently completing a trilogy on the Second World War. The first volume, Wings of Morning, the story of the last American bomber shot down over Germany in World War II, was praised by Jonathan Yardley in the Washington Post as a powerful and unselfconsciously beautiful book. During his tenure at Penn, Professor Childers has won numerous awards for his work in the classroom, including the Ira T. Abrams Award for Distinguished Teaching and Challenging Teaching in the Arts and Sciences, and the Richard S. Dunn Award for Distinguished Teaching in History, as well as the Senior Class Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Teaching. Professor Childers prepared the course guide that comes with these lectures. The course guide includes a detailed outline of each lecture, a timeline, biographical notes, and a bibliography. To get the most out of this course, you may find it useful to follow along with the outlines or review them before or after each lecture. Lecture 1, The Third Reich, Hitler, and the Twentieth Century. Hello. Uh, welcome to the Teaching Company's uh, course on the history of Hitler's empire. Um, I'm delighted to be here today. My name is Tom Childers, and ten years ago, uh, I was on the set doing exactly this same course, different venue. Um, uh, at the beginning of that course, uh, we began by asking a series of questions, problems, issues to be confronted if one were going to, I wouldn't say so much understand as come to terms with or cope with the National Socialist experience, Hitler, the Third Reich, uh, the Nazis. And so it's probably not surprising that at the outset of this course, we're going to begin by revisiting some of those very basic questions. Um, there's a story, I think hypocritical, but possibly not, of a man who goes back to his old college uh, to visit, uh, to attend his daughter's graduation. And during the festivities, runs into his old history professor. The professor uh, is delighted to see him, 
Uh, the man introduces himself and says, you know, my daughter was in your course this year and she enjoyed it as much as I did 25 years ago. But you know, I couldn't help noticing that the questions on the final exam are the same questions that you asked us 25 years ago. The professor smiled and said, yes, but the answers are all different. I wouldn't say that the answers are all different as we come to this new evaluation or reevaluation of Hitler, National Socialism and the Third Reich. Facts don't change, but we do, and our perspective on them changes. Uh, we learn new things, uh, and as a result of this, we, it is necessary to reevaluate, to once again examine what we have known uh, and how it looks different to us at this particular point. This is in fact what historical analysis is all about. It may be that the facts don't change, but our perspective, our place, as we look at these things, uh, certainly gives us a new prism through which to evaluate the past. So why then are we at the beginning of this uh, new millennium turning again to the National Socialist experience? Why study it? Why be involved with it? What's the fascination the obsession almost with this terrible period in Western civilization. The Third Reich was after all a morbid, depressing and terrifying uh, event, a topic, a subject uh, that uh, is certainly not a happy one to revisit. And yet it's a topic that must be addressed. It must be analyzed. We must try to come uh, to terms with it. In many ways, it is the pivotal experience of 20th century Western civilization, linking political, economic, social, and moral issues that stand at the very core of our experience in uh, the 20th and into the 21st century. In other words, we can't afford not to try and understand what National Socialism meant, where it came from, who supported it, and why, and how the regime was able to achieve, or come very close to achieving, its terrifying ideological objectives. It's obviously more than a sort of scholarly problem. This is not an intellectual game to be played by academics or scholars. The balance of power in world politics was fundamentally altered by the Nazi regime, bringing in the wake of the Second World War the eclipse and division of Europe and the emergence of the United States and the Soviet Union as superpowers. It has led also, as time has passed, I think, to the European states themselves struggling to find a way to overcome the conflicts that had beset Europe over the centuries, and nationalist ones uh, in particular. In the process, millions of people lost their lives during the Second World War, either in the war itself or as a result of Nazi terror and systematic extermination. 55 million people perished during the Second World War, the majority in Europe, as a direct result of Nazi actions. And millions more were forced to flee, found their lives forever altered by the National Socialist regime, and continued to live with the implications of Nazi actions over 50 years after the collapse of the Third Reich. In addition to these powerful factors, there is, I think, another that helps to explain the continuing fascination, obsession with National Socialism, Hitler and the Third Reich. 
Over 55 years have passed since the collapse of the Third Reich, and it's still impossible to pass a magazine rack, a bookshelf, to watch any of the various television stations without encountering an article, a book, uh, a film, a documentary, a, a fictional treatment of Hitler, uh, the Third Reich, the Holocaust. Indeed, National Socialism is the most widely researched, discussed, and written about topic in the of 20th century history. Indeed, in fact, of all of historical scholarship uh, on Western civilization. Why is that? Is it the horror, the deaths, that account for the haunting presence of National Socialism in our psyches? Certainly, there have been in past years horrific crimes, but none on the same parallel as those ghastly events that would occur between 1933 and 1945 as a result of Nazi actions. The Soviet Union under Stalin destroyed millions of lives and sent millions of other people to concentration camps, to the Gulag. Paul Pot and the Khmer Rouge systematically extinguished a far greater percentage of the Cambodian population than even the Nazis in Europe. And of course, in more recent years, uh, the horrific uh, events in Rwanda and Burundi, a form of genocide, has come again to the world stage. Yet none of these events, neither the Stalinist or the Khmer Rouge experience, and certainly not the Rwandan and Burundi uh, experience, has had the impact that National Socialism has had on our consciousness. Why is that? Well, the reason in part, I believe, is that unlike distant Cambodia or the Soviet Union, Germany stood or, and remains an integral part of our civilization, of Western civilization. It was, after all, the land of Goethe and Schiller, of Beethoven and Bach, a country which in the 1920s and 30s had the highest literacy rate in the world, with one of the most highly developed industrial economies, and stood at the forefront of scientific uh, research and development, a country whose educational system was the envy of the world and a model for much of the American system. The Germans, in other words, were not distant villagers living in poverty, undereducated, in an underdeveloped economy. They were not desperately poor. They were, in short, a lot like us. Thus, behind the ongoing interest in the Nazi phenomenon is the haunting question that never goes away. How could a political movement of such sheer barbarism come to power in a society, such a society? And if it could happen there, could it happen elsewhere, in Europe, somewhere in the third world? Could it happen here? Was there something fundamentally wrong with German political culture? Did it make it a, was it a unique experience, a unique development, peculiar to Germany? Was there something then wrong with German historical development that can account for the Nazi phenomenon? Some analysts have certainly seen this to be the case, have viewed the Third Reich as the logical and indeed legitimate culmination of German political development. There are some who would make a case that the Third Reich is simply the end of a long continuum, that one starts with the sort of 
authoritarian social ethics of Luther, that one moves through Prussian militarism in the 17th and 18th centuries into the sort of romanticism, uh, anti-enlightenment uh, anti thought of the uh, 19th century uh, into something, and that National Socialist Germany is the culmination of this development, a deviation, if you will, a deviation from, quote, healthy Western norms, France, England, and the United States, representing those, quote, healthy Western norms. In other words, there was a sense in which much of the literature until fairly recently about Germany and about the rise of the Nazis and the Third Reich has dealt with the problem of German deviation. Germany somehow deviated from these healthy Western developments that led to industrialization, a pluralist society, parliamentary democracy. At what point did it jump the track? Was it uh, because of German cultural life, German intellectual life? that tended, uh, the argument often goes, to emphasize romanticism rather than uh, reason, the enlightenment, and so on. Uh, there's the no Luther, no Hitler school that I sometimes refer to. That is, that there's a straight and unbroken line from those authoritarian Lutheran social ethics, not religious ethics, but social ethics, down to the oppressive militarism of Prussia uh, to the horrors of national socialism. The first, the original focus of this deviation was indeed on intellectual developments in Germany. The argument seemed to be that the Enlightenment, with its emphasis on reason, that so uh, molded the British, French, and American political systems of the 19th and 20th century, somehow didn't cross the Rhine. Uh, and that uh, much of German development in the 20th century can be traced to this. Then, in the 1960s and into the 70s, a new wave of scholarship began that didn't, that certainly acknowledged uh, some peculiarities of German intellectual and cultural development, but instead tended to emphasize a change in German economic and, and social development. That is, that industrialization, the argument went, in Germany came late, it came fast, and it was very thorough. That what the British took a century to accomplish, the Germans, and we'll talk about this more in more detail in a moment, the Germans accomplished in, within two generations. Uh, and that that late, fast, and rapid industrialization caused Germany to deviate from uh, a uh, French and a very different English and American model as well. A special German path, a Sonderweg is the German term that's often used. So, what we will do at the outset of the course is to talk, um, not in as much detail as we will about more immediate factors, but we will try to address some of these, to begin with, long-term factors, I would call them, that might help us to form a background for the rise of National Socialism and its popularity. But we also want to look at short-term factors, short-term developments. Uh, that would lead in the course of the 1920s from uh, Adolf Hitler being an absolutely obscure uh, personality on the lunatic fringes of German politics to within a decade becoming the Chancellor of Germany. From his party being an absolute curiosity that nobody took seriously in 1922 or even into 1923 to becoming the largest political party in Germany uh, by the summer of 1932. It was, in fact, the most dramatic, dramatically successful political development in electoral politics for a party to come out of absolutely nowhere. In 1928, the Nazis got less than 3% of the vote. Uh, 
Four years later, it was 38%. How did this happen? What sort of people were attracted to National Socialism, we want to ask? Well, there are certainly the true believers, the ideologues, the people who joined, who would ultimately be the leaders, people who would kill you for the sake of an idea. I think Americans always have much more trouble than Europeans with the idea of ideological politics. Uh, but of course, maybe I, I think our experiences in the 1990s in this country might change the way we view that. So we'll look at the true believers, the leadership of the party, the real ideologues, the people who formed Nazi ideas and the ideas that tried to implement the, the, folk, the agencies and forms of government that tried to implement those ideas. But we'll also look at the millions more. Uh, the millions of Germans who, who would ultimately vote for the Nazis or even join the NSDAP, as the Nazi party was called, it's a real mouthful. Um, what did they, what drew them to this party? Uh, what attracted them? What did they think they were getting? Had a whole nation gone mad? I think if one sees often in films and documentaries, there's a kind of use of what I call the dramatic present. A nation, a nation goes mad and is drawn uh, inexorably, uh, almost in, in a hypnotic state uh, toward uh, the, their Fuhrer. Well, Germany did not go mad between 1928 and 1932. We want to look and see what, what people in Germany in this period during the rise to power actually thought the Nazis were. We want to ask who joined, who voted for it, and why. What role did Nazi ideology play? It's not an obvious matter that if you know the ideas that a party's supposed to stand for that you've then explained why people voted for it. How important was Nazi ideology? Did Nazi ideology change from 1928 to 1932? In 1928, the ideology, in fact, was the same. It found little echo in German society. Four years later, it found a tremendous one. Why? The Nazis would be, as we'll see, the masters of what I would call negative campaigning. They would introduce a whole series of innovations in political campaigning. And we want to look at that. We want to look at how the Nazis attempted to mobilize this constituency. And one of the most difficult things that we're going to be asked to do, that I'm going to ask you to do, is to forget what you know. Forget the outcome. We'll try to to look at the rise of the Nazis the way the inhabitants of Germany might between 1919 and 1933. What did they think? How did they see this? There is no, no more difficult task in historical scholarship or historical understanding than to move from your thinking the outcome that you know was on the way. And nothing is more difficult in historical scholarship than to do it in this instance when looking at Hitler and the Nazis. Nonetheless, that's going to be our task. We will then turn, after spending the first half of the course, analyzing the rise to power of the Nazis, and now turn our attention to, the, to uh, National Socialism in power. How did uh, the Nazis uh, subvert the German government and break political opposition? When the Nazis came into power, they had about a third of the German vote. When Hitler was appointed chancellor on January 30th, 1933, a third of the population, roughly, was in support, had voted for the Nazis. In the last free elections in Germany, before Hitler's appointment, the Nazis had gotten about 33% of the vote. Another way to put that is two-thirds of the German population 
might not have been opposed to all the things the Nazis stood for, but given a choice, they chose another political party. So how did a party that really had about a third of the population behind it manage within six months of 1933 to transform a democratic government, a largely failed democratic government, into uh, a would-be totalitarian state? Well, what does that mean, totalitarian? That's one of the other subjects we want to talk about, one of the topics that we'll raise. Totalitarian and authoritarian are not the same thing. Nobody thought that the Nazis established a traditional dictatorship. There was something different about this regime, quite different from its predecessors or uh, its contemporaries. This was a regime that ultimately made a claim to the entire person, to the total person. It wasn't simply what you did in public that mattered. It was what you did at home as well. Not simply what you said or did, that in public, what you thought, what you said to your husband or wife or your children. The claim was a total claim, eradicating the difference between public and private life. It was a regime driven by an ideology that believed that it had discovered the key to all human history. And that the movement, the National Socialist Movement, found itself at the turning point of all human history. It had to act or humankind would go in the wrong direction. That meant that whatever was necessary to be done to save humanity from taking the wrong path was justified. And if that trampled on traditional morality, too bad. What, why was there so little opposition in these first six months or later why was there so little resistance, or why was it so uh, ineffective? We'll see that there was resistance in Germany. But why then was it so ineffective? We also want to look at what day-to-day -day life was like in the Third Reich, if you were not Jewish, if you had not been a communist, and what it was like if you were Jewish, or uh, if you had a compromising political past. The Nazis made a lot of promises during their rise to power, but um, what did they actually believe? They made contradictory promises. Higher pri promising higher prices for produce and livestock to farmers and lower food prices to workers in the city. Absolutely contradictory. So what did they do? When this they could do before they were in power because they didn't have to make decisions, tough decisions. But after 1933, they did. So what of all of the various things they talked about and promised would they deliver on? And we will examine the real core of Nazi ideology. We'll look at how it manifested itself, how it evolved over the course of time after 1933. One of the things that's very obvious is that the Nazis discovered what I would call an expanding horizon of possibility after 1933. As the opposition, they'd expected a civil war, didn't come. And so as time passed, they were then able, I think to their own surprise, to begin to implement uh, the ideology. Well, how do you do that? How does one take ideas or ideological ideas and translate them into actual policy? This is always a problem for any government, and the Nazis discovered it was a problem for them as well. We'll explore the Nazi determination to acquire Lebensraum or living space in the East, 
and to create a racially pure Germanic empire in Central Europe. And we will follow the tortured, terrible path of Nazi racial policy that would lead from the economic boycotts of Jewish businesses in 1933 to the grisly horrors of Auschwitz. How did that happen? How did Aryan, so-called Aryan Germans react to the regime's measures, the step-by-step -step exclusion from, of Jews from German society, and then ultimately uh, their transport and extermination? What was known and what wasn't? How did the regime conceal or attempt to conceal, or did it, uh, the ugly truth about their policies from the population? These are powerful, emotionally charged questions, and examining them is a wrenching experience. I've taught this for over 20 years, and it doesn't get easier as time passes. Uh, in fact, uh, the emotional demands of examining these questions in depth uh, is a daunting one. And we will try to go beyond the questions of politics and of sociology and pose very fundamental questions. What would you have done? How would you have reacted? Would you have been among those who actually recognized the evil of this movement at a time when it was still possible to do something about it? We all like to think we would. Would we? Would we be among those courageous few who were actually able to take resist, steps of resistance against the regime? Would you have had the courage to act? These are the central issues under consideration in this course. And their relevance transcends National Socialism and it transcends uh, Germany in the 1930s and 40s. They are questions that touch all of us in democratic societies and are fundamental to our understanding of responsibility, both political and moral, in modern civilization. I had said at the very beginning that we wanted to examine both long-term and short-term factors. And so I'd like to turn our attention in this opening lecture in the time we have remaining to the consideration of some of these so-called long-term factors. That is, factors before 1918. Uh, and the end of the, the Great War, the First World War. One of the first points of reference that I think we must have is that Germany was a new nation, a new nation state, I should say. It was the last of the major European states to achieve nation state status. It was not until 1871 that Germany was unified by Otto von Bismarck, the Chancellor of uh, Prussia. Until 1871, Germany had been divided into uh, dozens of small states. The old Holy Roman Empire of the German nation, uh, which had existed for 900 years when it finally collapsed under Napoleonic pressure, the Old Reich, if you will, the First Reich. Uh, it was, I can never help saying, as Voltaire pointed out, neither Holy Roman nor an empire. Uh, but that's what it certainly uh, was called. And the emperor uh, was in Vienna, uh, Habsburg monarch. Um, that old empire collapsed uh, in uh, the first decade of the 19th century. And it was not until 1871 that Bismarck was able to unite Germany into something like a united nation state. 
Germany lacked common traditions. It lacked shared political norms. In fact, German Central Europe is the term one ought to use and not Germany until 1871. The question of who or what is German was still a relevant question in 1871 in a way that who's French was not. And when unification came in 1871, it was not the result of some sort of groundswell of grassroots nationalism on the part of the German people. Unification was delivered to Germany by Prussian military might. Bismarck would, would unify Germany under Prussian auspices through successful wars against Denmark in 1864, against Austria in 1866, which excluded the Habsburgs, the traditional dynastic family, leading dynastic family of Germany, and then finally in 1870-71 with the defeat of France and then the unification uh, without Austria and without territories that had traditionally been seen as part of the old Holy Roman Empire. Now a, a smaller Germany had been created, a Kleindeutschland instead of a Großdeutschland, a greater Germany. It was a Germany that had never existed before, and this would be the Second Reich. Nobody called it the Second Reich at the time. Nobody started talking about numbers of, of empires. It's the German term for empire until the Nazis, who of course saw themselves as delivering Germany a Third Reich. Bismarck, in a way, forced un unity on the Germans. There was no agreement on a national, there was a very it was controversy about the flag, there was a controversy about any sort of national anthem. They couldn't agree about one. They couldn't agree about a, uh, the sort of national holiday uh, like the 4th of July. They didn't use the day that the empire was, was established in the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles after the defeat of France because some of the German states didn't want that. Bavaria in the south uh, wasn't keen on it, for example, and neither were some of the others. And so what, what would they do? What, what sort of holiday would they take? They looked around with all of these different competing traditions from the different states. They finally decided on uh, the day of victory over, uh, over France, the day Sedan Tag, it was called, the victory at Sedan, where uh, the emperor uh, and Napoleon III was captured. Um, unification had been supported by not so much the proverbial man and woman in the street, but by the industrial and commercial elites of Germany who certainly wanted to see uh, unification. They couldn't compete with English or French goods when there was no common currency or weights and measures and so on. They wanted a united Germany. And Bismarck was perfectly happy with the united Germany as long as it was under Prussian control. His task, as he saw it, was to deliver a Germany uh, that would uh, be based on traditional elites, the monarchy, the army, the bureaucracy, all supported by the old aristocracy. And this was to be, however, Bismarck was a realistic man in many ways. The age of mass politics had arrived. And so the constitution he wrote for this Second Reich was one that had all the trappings of a, a real democracy, universal male suffrage, bef long before England, uh, even before France. Uh, a Bill of Rights. Um, he believed that the, the Reichstag, the Parliament, needed to be consulted. But without these common traditions, without a shared political past, I mean, Berlin, there had been no capital. What was the capital of Germany before 1871? Nobody really knew. The Emperor was always crowned in Frankfurt, but the Emperor was 
Habsburg, off in Vienna. So where was the capital? Nobody knew. So now it goes to Berlin, what had often been seen as a kind of sandbox, a grandiose sandbox uh, of uh, Northern Europe. And this new state was beset by three very basic problems, or a set of cleavages or divisions in German society that um, needed to be confronted. There was a religious division. Germany, after all, is the home of the Protestant Reformation. You have largely a, a southern Germany that is Catholic, a northern Germany that is Protestant. You have regional division as well, these old traditional loyalties. Uh, and they overlapped with religion to a very great extent. And then finally there was a social division, a class division, um, between an increasingly organized working class, industrial blue-collar working class, and everybody else. These three cleavages would be the basic areas of conflict that the new German state would confront. And added to the fact that Germany was in the midst of this rapid industrialization. The industrialization did come fast. It did come very late. And it was, as we will see, very thorough. These created social tensions that would, not be, that would only be aggravated by the outbreak of the First World War in 1914. And that's what we'll turn our attention to uh, in the second lecture. Lecture 2, The First World War and Its Legacy. Hello, and welcome to the second lecture in our series on the history of Hitler's empire. We concluded the first lecture uh, by talking about the peculiar social and economic development of Germany and emphasizing the lateness of both German unification and uh, the lateness, the speed, and thoroughness of German industrialization at the same time. That particularly the speedy industrialization uh, would cause great trouble for Germany uh, as it proceeded in the years down to the outbreak of the First World War. So in this lecture, we want to uh, conclude our discussion of the long-term factors and proceed to talk about really what is the crucial turning point in uh, the development of German political culture in the 20th century, and that was the coming of the First World War and its outcome. The three cleavages around which German politics uh, were organized, religion, Catholic-Protestant division, region, uh, northern Germany, largely Protestant, uh, southern Germany, largely Catholic, with uh, different areas of, that were mixed, regional loyalties that remained so profound that in 1871, uh, when the new country was founded, uh, the citizens of Hanover, a country that is simply an independent country that had been absorbed uh, by Prussia and then by uh, the empire, uh, its citizens founded its own party, the Hanoverian party, unwilling to recognize Berlin. The Bavarians kept their embassies in Berlin uh, and wanted to have a different postal service. So regional loyalty was quite strong. The Hanoverian Party, for example, didn't go out of existence until the Nazis banned it in 1933. Um, 
And then finally, uh, class division, a social division, which is extremely important and in fact constitutes one of the major themes that we want to develop. Class division, class division, uh, particularly between an emerging German working class, blue-collar workers in the factories and coal mines in particular, and their liberal, conservative, middle-class uh, uh, counterparts. That division will become extremely important because the most obvious domestic political development in Germany before the outbreak of the First World War was the rise of the Ger German Social Democratic Party, the SPD. Uh, it was a labor party. Its appeal was to blue-collar workers. Uh, and it would, as we will see, uh, make uh, enormous strides between 1871 uh, and 1912, the last pre-war election, uh, to becoming a major player in German politics. It was the largest party, in fact, by 1912. And after uh, 1890, it was a Marxist party. So a party that seemed to represent a domestic threat to the stability of this new German state. More on that later. The lateness and the speed of German uh, industrialization is also important because within two generations, as we indicated in the first lecture, Germany had caught up with and then would pass Great Britain uh, as in many of the areas of, industri of industrial production. It was indeed the industrial heartland of Europe by the time of the outbreak uh, of the First World War with rates of growth that were far uh, greater. Uh, than those uh, in Britain. But the speed of it meant that you had in Germany a very peculiar situation. You had living cheek by jowl. The most advanced industrial workers organized increasingly into labor unions that would become the model for European labor unions. Very, very modern. Living cheek by jowl with artisans. Uh, Handwerker who still belonged to guilds and wanted to have the guilds still existed, that the guilds didn't go out of existence until 1918-19. And so you have uh, this very peculiar situation where you have sets of values that are both extremely modern and those that still represent an older past uh, that were in conflict. So that within two generations, I mean, the Ruhr goes from being the kind of glorified sheep pasture in around 1850 to being the industrial center of continental Europe uh, by 1875 and then just continues to grow after that. So the speed and the lateness meant this conflict of values was there. An older Germany, the Germany of gingerbread houses and uh, black forest uh, toy makers and this kind of thing is being replaced by the smokestacks of uh, the Krupp works and the Ruhr. Uh, or around Berlin or in Silesia. It meant urbanization. It meant people moving in, uh, certainly from the country into the city, uh, with, again, attendant problems. It, urbanization would grow uh, by leaps and bounds during this period, particularly after unification in 1871. Given the divisiveness uh, of this new German state, I mean, you know, nation states are not Natural occurring, naturally occurring phenomena. They have to be constructed. They have to be built. You do have to have a flag. You have to come up with uh, some sort of national anthem. You have to come up uh, with uh, all the things that we think of as sort of almost naturally occurring. They just come, don't they? The 4th of July and all this. Well, they don't, and this is Bismarck's task. 
It's not surprising that the song that ultimately became the national anthem, uh, the Deutschland Lied, the German song, and the, the verse that we all uh, know and would come to know in the 20th century with great uh, fear, Deutschland, Deutschland über alles, über alles in der Welt, Germany, Germany above all, above all in the world. Well, the song, those lyrics actually come from a poem written in the middle of the 19th century that was talking about Germany above Bavaria, Germany above Hanover, Germany above Prussia. It wasn't talking about an expansive Germany. It was unification to recognize one's Germanness as opposed to one's Bavarianness and so on. But unification didn't solve this problem. These centuries of division and regional loyalty didn't just go away. And with the threat of the social democracy, that had to be dealt with. And Bismarck would adopt what proved to be a very successful short-term expedient for dealing with divisions and building some sort of majority for his, his government. Um, but one which in the long run would have a devastating impact on German political culture. And that is, Bismarck adopted, he didn't use the term, but historians I think have very accurately described it as negative integration. That is, pick an enemy of the Reich, a Reichfeind, and then rally a majority against it. The first of these happened to be the Catholic Church. In 18, from 1873 to the late 1870s, Bismarck conducted a campaign against not He's, as he always is careful to point out, not Catholics, but political Catholicism. Well, that's one third of the, roughly a third of the population of Germany was Catholic. Uh, but what it did was to rally other Germans. You know, are these German Catholics loyal to Berlin? Are they loyal to Rome? Are they loyal to France? It's another Catholic state. Are they loyal to Vienna? That's another Catholic state. So I won't go into the reasons, they're complicated parliamentary reasons that Bismarck needed to alienate the Catholic party, the Catholic center party as it was called. That's really not so important. But for a short-term expedient, he wound up pursuing a policy of persecution against the church, which had the opposite effect. It rallied Catholics to the church, of course. It rallied Catholics to the Catholic center party, and it alienated an, an important minority within Germany. Similarly, in 1878, when that policy had sort of run its course, the Catholic enemy uh, had satisfied him, he needed to somehow alienate the Social Democratic Party. And so he introduced a series of anti-socialist laws that would be in effect from 1878 to 1890. What did that do? Well, it rallied support of liberals, conservatives. It also rallied even some Catholics who now found a way to become part of the majority as opposed to the isolated minority. But what it also did was to attack, alienate uh, a growing uh, percentage of the German population, uh, industrial workers or workers who were drawn to the Social Democratic Party, which at that point was not Marxist, but certainly was seen as being uh, of dubious loyalty, it was internationalist and so on. As a consequence, I think what you see in developing under Bismarck, and this is one of his negative contributions to German political life, is that at a time when German political culture was still new, it was still malleable, it was like clay, that instead of fostering a tradition that would try to build consensus, that would build the notion of the loyal opposition as one had in Great Britain or in the United States, less so perhaps in France, 
where periodic revolutions seem to be part of the culture. Um, at a time when he could have been working to build consensus, he employs this policy of negative integration of in-group, out-group. And if you read through, if you look at the political pamphlets for Germany in this period, they're confrontational. They're confrontational in a way that even the French can't approach. So it set a tone. It set a tone uh, that you were either with the government or you were an enemy of the new state. And those, that style of politics, this confrontational, in-your-face kind of politics, would remain a hallmark of German politics right down to 1933. And overcoming that, ironically, as we will see, was one of the great goals of the Nazis. Overcoming class division, overcoming this kind of confrontational division in German political life, that would be the single biggest appeal the Nazis offered uh, between 1920 and 1933, as we will see. So two trends then exist before the outbreak of the war. One was uh, still regional loyalty, but class division in particular. In the sense that Germany was headed towards some sort of, of trouble, uh, revolution at home. When Bismarck was finally booted out of office, not by the parliament, he couldn't do it, uh, but by the, the new emperor, who was about 60 years his junior and didn't want to take any more advice from the old man. Um, and Germany embarked upon a new course in the 1890s. Uh, he lifted the anti-socialist laws and boom. The Social Democrats instantly became the largest party in Germany, and at each election between 1890 and 1912, they gained, they gained, they gained. So they had over 38% of the vote uh, in 1912. There was the threat, the fear, as the international situation heated up and Germany found itself increasingly uh, isolated internationally, heading up to the crisis of 1914, there was the fear that Germany was going to be undermined from within by this Marxist party. In 1890, the Social Democrats showed their thanks to the new emperor for lifting the ban by, becoming, by adopting Marxism as part of its platform. So, uh, and it was, you know, its policy was to not only provide democracy, bring real democracy to Germany, but also to destroy the capitalist system of Germany. Um, Germany domestically then was a kind of tinderbox before 1914. There were real social tensions underneath the surface. On the surface, Germany was the most powerful nation in Europe. It certainly had the largest, most powerful, best army. It had the strongest economy. It seemed like a, a, a great success. But just beneath the surface of that, these tensions, these social tensions, regional tensions and so on, still simmered. There was still a sense that somehow this might be undone. This was the situation when in the summer of 1914, the war that everybody had anticipated coming for years finally broke over Europe. Initially in Germany, we're not going to talk so much about the military developments of the war, but to talk about how domestically it, it, it affected German political culture. Initially, the war was greeted as it was everywhere with great uh, fanfare, throwing of flowers to the troops. Everybody believed the boys would be, home back, uh, be back home by Christmas. Uh, and in Germany, it also had another meaning, and it was that the, finally the regional, religious, and class divisions of Germany would be overcome. The Kaiser, in a very famous speech, called for uh, 
what he described as a Burgfrieden, as peace within the castle. When the enemy is at the gates, you have to put aside all of your, your disagreements and pull together to get through this threat. And in, in that same speech, he said, I do not recognize parties any longer. I recognize only Germans. For the Kaiser to say this, the emperor to say this, was a definite plea to the Social Democrats to say, look, we accept you in, the, in the, the great political body of Germany. It's now time for you to do your duty while the enemy is at the gates. So there was a feeling of national solidarity as the Social Democrats decided, in fact, to support the war effort. This was not automatic. They were technically a pacifist party. They were technically an internationalist party. Uh, but they supported the war effort. By 19, the end of 1914, and certainly by 1916, it was clear that all of the, all of the thinking about the war had been an illusion. The war obviously wasn't over by Christmas. The boys weren't back. In fact, by 19, in 1915 and then in 1916, the war was going on with no end in sight. Two enormous battles would take place in 1916 that I think marked the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th in many ways. One was the Battle of Verdun, fought between the Germans and the French. It lasted a year, and a million people perished in that battle. The British launched an offensive on the Somme uh, later in 1916. 40,000 British troops were killed in one day of fighting, to give you some sense of the scale. And German casualties mounted uh, all the way through 1915, 1916. There'd been no planning for the war. So, uh, for a long war. So the economy was a shambles. There was no long-term planning. Uh, so workers, skilled workers, had been called to the colors early on in the war. Or farmers who were necessary to produce food had been called up. Now Germany had to somehow organize itself for a long-term conflict. And that authority was turned over not to the parliament, which technically controlled the budget, it was turned over to the army. The army, in fact, established what was, in effect, martial law during the course of the war. The emperor sort of vanished into the background, and the leadership of the army, Paul von Hindenburg, uh, the first great hero, German, uh, hero of the war, um, and his lieutenant, uh, General uh, uh, Erich Ludendorff, became the real leaders, political and economic, of Germany during the course of the war. Uh, and they relied enormously on heavy industry. Uh, heavy industry, uh, if you're going to build cannons and you need millions of boots, you don't turn to small artisanal handicraft shops to do it. Um, so the army favored big business, as it was called. And on the other hand, what the war effort needed was labor peace. You couldn't have the Social Democrats going out and the labor unions going out on strike in war industries. So uh, the army functioned as a kind of go-between between big business and big labor during the war. And indeed to many it seemed as if an, an alliance had been made with the army functioning as the kind of mediator between uh, big industry, big uh, labor. People who felt on the outside of the small shopkeepers, for example, small producers, in many cases were wiped out. The army had the authority simply to close small, inefficient shops, and it did. About a third of the artisan, independent artisans lost their businesses during the war and their, their proprietors drafted. Peasants, farmers, also felt cheated. 
they were called upon to, to produce. Germany still imported about 20% of its food in 1914. They were called on to somehow uh, continue this production without nitrates. Those were all going for uh, munitions production. Uh, they had to buy, they were encouraged to buy new farm equipment, but the government didn't put imposed limits on prices for business, so plows, all this sort of thing became more expensive. In short, there was an awful lot of social conflict during the war. An urban-rural split would develop, uh, with farmers believing and small shopkeepers believing uh, that uh, the government had simply sold out both to big business and big labor. Small businessmen felt caught in a squeeze. Farmers felt that the, so, that the workers in the cities were getting away uh, with, uh, with lower prices for food. Workers in the cities felt that the farmers were gorging or were uh, uh, hiding away their food, uh, selling it on the black market, hoarding uh, their food, uh, their produce, and so on. In 1916, um, over a quarter of a million Germans died of starvation or, or uh diseases related to uh, lack of food. Uh, food just simply wasn't there, and the British blockade was very successful. As a result, in early, in late 1916, the beginning of 17, the first great wave of strikes broke across Germany, uh, and those strikes would continue off and on sporadically down to 19, uh, to the end of the war in 1918. Meanwhile, official propaganda was producing this really gl glamorous picture. The war was going well, and indeed in 1917, things looked, uh, on the outside, uh, very good. Uh, uh, Russia was defeated, surrendered. The Bolshevik Revolution had occurred with German help, um, so that Russia was knocked out of the war, uh, the Germans thought. Um, France and British resolve seemed to be cracking. Uh, there were mutinies in the French army in 1917. It looked like Germany might be on the verge of breaking through. And certainly the public was fed this constant diet of good news. Any day now, the last, you know, victory is within sight. There's light at the end of the tunnel and all of those images that one uses. But of course, every day, every week, German, the German population could see the long list of casualties, which mounted and mounted and mounted. And so the price was going to be high no matter what. And then, of course, the situation wasn't uh, as rosy as it appeared on the surface. The situ Russian situation was complicated. Um, uh, the Bolshevik Revolution was good on the one hand. It got the Russians out of the war. But the Bolsheviks were determined to spread revolution into Germany and were sending agents into Germany uh, trying to, or to, to proselytize among the German troops. So the Germans had to leave more troops in the east than they wanted to. Uh, and Germany was also at the end of its resources. It was one thing, as the German commander at Verdun said, we want to bleed the French white. But Germany didn't have an endless supply of manpower either. And of course, in 1917, the Americans arrived on the scene. Uh, timing's everything, uh, one is often told. And in this instance, it was perfect. Just at that point when British, the British and the French were, found their resolve cracking, the Americans arrived. Uh, just couldn't wait to get to the front uh, and to do their part in the Great War uh, and uh, provided a real morale boost, I think more important than the actual f um, uh, combat um, of American troops. 
And then between March and June 1918, the Germans, with great, great publicity, launched what was going to be the last battle of the Great War, an offensive that was going to finally puncture enemy lines in Germany, would drive into France, capture Paris, and the war would be over. That offensive launched forward, but it quickly ran out of gas like all the others uh, had done since 1914. Uh, and by the late summer, Germany's military situation was in terrible, a terrible position. The army, the leadership of the army, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, called upon a leader from the Reichstag, a man by the name of Matthias Erzberger, to lead a delegation to go negotiate an armistice with the West. He was given his orders quite explicitly. Whatever you do, we have to have an armistice. Whatever it takes, we must have an armistice. Any day now, the, the Allies are going to break through, and when they do, break through German lines, they'll, they'll zoom straight to Berlin. Erzberger went off to negotiate. He was basically given terms for an unconditional surrender. He'd been given his orders, anything it took, and so he signed an armistice. The army instantly said, that's not what we meant. Uh, we didn't mean for you to do that, but it, in fact, that is exactly what they had asked him to do. Uh, and it meant the end of the war. To a great many Germans, it seemed as if somehow defeat had been snatched from the jaws of victory. That there it was. It seemed to be there. The newspapers all said so, day in and day out. And now, not only had the offensive not succeeded, the war was over and they lost. <laughs> How? It seemed inexplicable. And then the Kaiser, uh, uh, William II, went into exile in Holland. Woodrow Wilson, the American president, had already, set, had already given indications he wouldn't negotiate with a representative of the Old Reich. And now a revolution broke out all over Germany. Workers and soldiers, Soviets, councils popped up in all the major cities, and even many of the smaller ones. Workers and peasants councils uh, developed out in the countryside. And the government was simply handed over to the leader of the German Social Democratic Party, Friedrich Ebert. He wasn't prepared for this. The Social Democrats hadn't been involved in anything having to do with the conduct of the war. And so what it looked like to a great many Germans was that the army had somehow been stabbed in the back. And this is, of course, exactly what the army maintained. That just at that moment that they were about to win, the army had been stabbed in the back by a parliamentary coalition of Catholic center politicians, Erzberger was a Catholic, Jewish liberals, and social democrats. Many people didn't believe it, but for the army, it was their way out. There is no exaggerating the impact of the First World War on German political and social life. Germany suffered almost two million dead, over a million missing in action, only Russia lost more uh, during the First World War. There was hardly any Germany that was left, uh, any family in Germany that was left untouched. And there was enormous bitterness and disappointment. And the social tensions in Germany had grown during the war, in fact, reached revolutionary proportions. The cleavages were greater. The war had sharpened the divisions in German society. The social lessons of the war, which were learned by many soldiers at the front, were very different. 
The soldiers at the front had seen a classless society. Soldier by soldier, didn't matter whether you were Protestant or Catholic or Jewish at the front. Uh, you were a soldier. You fought for the greater good of Germany. Classes weren't important in the trenches, whether you were a, uh, a worker or an artisan or a peasant. All were subordinated to the common cause, the egalitarianism of the trenches. And this would be the social ethic that the Nazis would seek to sell to the population between 1920 and 1933 and beyond. In fact, there were a large group of veterans who f simply could not demo uh, demobilize psychologically. The war was all they knew. And one of those soldiers was a young Austrian who had enlisted in the German army in 1914 by the name of Adolf Hitler. Certainly in 1919, Hitler was an obscure personality, but he began, it would operate, as we'll see, in, a, in an environment of turmoil, trouble, uh, and such crisis that it looked as if the new German state would come apart at the seams. The new German government, born out of the revolution of 1918, these count workers and soldiers councils got together and, in December and voted to hold a constituent assembly to have a new constitution written, a democratic constitution. But the new republic would be born with this legacy of war and defeat, an association of the armistice with the liberal and socialist parties, with surrender. The German republic would be forced to sign the hated Treaty of Versailles uh, that would be drawn up uh, in 1919 in Paris, a, a document that was reviled by all political parties in Germany. It didn't matter whether you were a communist on the far left or a conservative on the far right. Germany was forced to accept loss of territory. Alsace and Lorraine went back to France. Territories were lost in the east. Germany was forced to pay reparations for all of the devastation caused in Belgium and France and to the British. And adding insult to injury, a war guilt clause was added to the treaty that said that the, the justification for Germany paying reparations is that Germany alone was responsible for the outbreak of the war. It was a war guilt clause. And the army, the Germans, Germany's military, reduced to 100,000 troops. The new government of, uh, of, of the new republic, a constitution was drafted, an extremely progressive constitution. It was drafted in the provincial city of Weimar, uh, safely away from Berlin, where people were still out in the streets behind barricades, and there was still a lot of revolutionary fighting going on. Weimar was associated with a different Germany, not Prussia, the militarism of Prussia, the authoritarianism of Prussia, but associated with a humanistic tradition in Germany. It, after all, it was the city of, of Goethe the, and, and Schiller, the two great poets and playwrights of Germany. Uh, a more cosmopolitan Germany. Uh, and the constitution that it drafted was uh, a remarkably progressive document. Um, it instituted universal suffrage. Women were enfranchised in Germany as a result, the first in Europe to reach, uh, to, to have suffrage extended. A Bill of Rights, an extensive Bill of Rights was drawn up. Social commitments uh, of the old empire were continued and vastly expanded. The Weimar Republic, as it came to be known, would be Europe's first welfare state. And a radical system of proportional representation was instituted so that uh, there would be um, 
for every 60,000 votes a party got, it got a seat in the, in the parliament, the Reichstag. I mean, that any political view ought to have a chance to have a representation. But this new government would find itself beset from the very beginning with a series of crises from which it didn't look like it would recover. Political assassinations of particularly people on the left, Erzberger, who'd signed the armistice, was assassinated. Two leaders of the German far left, the communists, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, assassinated. Hugo Haase, another leftist politician, assassinated. Walter Rottenau, the foreign minister, assassinated. All by right-wing terrorists. There would be coups from the left and right. And there would be government instability on a large scale. If one were a betting person in 1920, this new republic didn't look like it had much of a chance. It was in these circumstances that in 1919, uh, the German army exercising martial law would send the young corporal Adolf Hitler out to sit in on a political meeting of the German Workers' Party. He would listen to what was said that night at the meeting and then would join the party, becoming member 555. His background and the course of the NSDAP in these years will take up in the next lecture. Lecture 3, The Weimar Republic and the Rise of the Nazi Party. Hello and welcome to our third lecture in the series on the history of Hitler's empire. In this lecture, we're going to continue our discussion of the political and economic turmoil that beset the early Weimar Republic and examine the emergence of a new political actor on the German stage and that was the National Socialist Party uh, and Adolf Hitler. We'd stopped in our last lecture uh, with the observation that this new democratic republic, established in the midst of great turmoil uh, in Germany in 1919, uh, was forced to bear a legacy of war and defeat, a legacy that it, it did not deserve, uh, and was therefore forced to deal with a problem of legitimacy for a great deal of the German population. This didn't seem quite like a legitimate government, born of revolution a government now uh, assigned responsibility for the surrender, the inexplicable surrender uh, and defeat of Germany in the Great War, while the military had avoided, to, avoided responsibility, sidestepping uh, its responsibility uh, for the catastrophic end of the war. In between 1919 and 1923, uh, the new republic would be troubled uh, by a series of economic and political crises, troubles. It was plagued by internal terror, extremist terror. Uh, assassinations uh, abounded, almost always the assassination of leftist politicians or politicians associated with the founding of this new republic by right-wing terrorists. And one of the things that the, that the new democratic regime in Germany had not done was to purge the old judiciary nor had it purged the high command of the army. That failure to purge the judiciary would prove to be quite important 
for the fate of the Weimar Republic. In part, the new Republican authorities didn't believe that they could afford great instability, uh, that the German population, having suffered this defeat, suffered millions of casualties, now faced by a what they saw as a draconian treaty, allies that were ready to invade Germany if the Germans didn't sign on the dotted line at Versailles, that Germany simply could not afford uh, to have an adventurous domestic situation, that order needed to be restored for the economy to recover and for democracy to have a chance to establish itself. Therefore, Germany couldn't afford to, uh, to downsize its economy. It couldn't afford to suffer unemployment, for example, as the economy moved from a wartime to a peacetime uh, footing. Um, and uh, therefore, it saw its greatest enemy, not as uh, revolution from the right, but revolution from the left. The German Social Democrats, the mainstream Social Democrats, moderate for the most part, and I would hasten to say more democratic than socialist, found in 1919-1920 the greatest threat coming from the radical left, the left wing of the Social Democratic Party that had broken away during the war and would found in 19, January 1919 the German Communist Party. It therefore needed to rely on the army, what was left of the army, to maintain order, and it needed a stable judiciary and so on. In addition, so as a consequence, in addition to the problems coming out of these political assassinations, the, 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 the instability that they brought was the fact that these right-wing thugs that were caught and, con and convicted received slaps on the wrist from the old judiciary. As long as the victim was on the radical left or was somebody who was associated, as Matthias Erzberger was, with the armistice, with the surrender, or with the founding of this new democratic German state. The new republic was also beset by coups from the left and right. It was, didn't, the, the instability didn't stop with political assassination. But between 1919 and 1924, there would be attempts to overthrow this very fragile democratic state uh, by radicals from the left and the right. In 1919, in January 1919, uh, the communists in Berlin uh, rose in part to, pr to prevent there being an election to the Constituent Assembly to draw up a constitution. It was brutally repressed by uh, the police, the army, uh, and the new government. In 1920, a year later, a conservative military officer out on the eastern, what had been the eastern front, attempted to overthrow the government and reestablish the monarchy. That uh, was, uh, that attempt was frustrated by the calling of a general strike. There was also an uprising of the, of the communists in the Ruhr in 1920, crushed by the army. There was a Rhenish separatist movement in 1923 uh, when uh, attempts were made to establish a new Rhineland state, an independent Rhineland state. And the French, uh, we'll talk about this, the French and Belgians invaded Germany, invaded the Rhineland in January of 1923, and the French wanted, desperately wanted to see the establishment of a, of a new Rhenish Republic to weaken the German state. As Poincaré once said, I love Germany so much I want to see two or three of them. Um, there was a communist uprising in Hamburg in October of 1923, and then, for our purposes, the most significant in November of 1923, an uprising 
uh, of the National Socialist German Workers Party, the NSDAP, in Munich that has come to be called the Beer Hall Putsch. Uh, it's an interesting thing. I've had uh, occasion to make the observation before that there's no word in English for this. There's either a coup, a coup d'etat, French, or there's a putsch, the German word for coup. Uh, but an attempt to overthrow the government doesn't seem to have a, a good word uh, for it in, in English. And I think there are historical reasons for that. Um, so in addition to the assassinations, these attempts to overthrow the fragile uh, Weimar government, and it's probably not surprising in, these, uh, in, in this situation that there was considerable cabinet instability. Um, after the 1920 elections, the first real elections to the new parliament, no government could attain a majority. Um, this is part of the reason uh, that this, this very progressive democratic idea that uh, all parties should have access to representation, that for every 60,000 votes you got, you got a seat in the Reichstag. We can imagine what this means. It means that every splinter group, every sort of glorified lobby would have a chance to have a seat in the parliament. And it made coalition building quite difficult. Um, and in, these situ in this situation, um, there were nine different cabinet changes between 1919 and 1923, shuffling of the cabinet and some parties moving in, other parties moving out. And all of the parties tended to be minority uh, coalition governments. Uh, what does that mean? It meant that there really wasn't a stable majority in favor of them in the parliament itself, in the Reichstag. Uh, but they would pass legislation on a case-by-case -case basis without enjoying a stable coalition government, stable co coalition majority behind them. It was in this atmosphere of post-war social and political uncertainty and radicalism that the German Workers' Party was founded in Munich. It was founded uh, by a man named Anton Drexler, uh, who headed something called the Executive Committee. The DAP, the Deutsche Arbeiterpartei, uh, as the party was called, was really a kind of glorified debating society. Um, it held its meetings in a beer hall in Munich. I always feel it's necessary to say this because for Americans it always sounds odd that these uh, big political meetings are held in beer halls. Uh, it gives them a kind of atmosphere that uh, I think they don't quite deserve. It would be the equivalent of holding uh, a political meeting in the in any, the Ramada Inn or the Holiday Inn uh, and so on. There were, always, there were always conference rooms in these large beer halls in Munich. And uh, in 1919, uh, Anton Drexler had begun this sort of quasi-party, called it a party, but it really wasn't. It was just a kind of group of guys getting together to complain about the new German government and the revolution. It was only when he decided to have one of these meetings be an open meeting that he had to go and register with the police, the police in this instance being uh, the German army, which was still uh, exercising martial law over Munich. And what would happen would be the army would then send out someone uh, to observe the proceedings, listen in, write a report, what did the speaker say, how many people came, did they like the speech, who did they seem to be, working class, middle class, and so on. It was to this meeting uh, that the army sent out uh, a young corporal by the name of Adolf Hitler uh, who was stationed in Munich at that time. 
Hitler went to the meeting, as I think we indicated in the previous lecture, listened to the uh, speech, um, was impressed by it, not impressed by the meeting, or certainly not by the organization, but impressed by the speech and had the idea, thought, well, this has possibilities. Uh, and so uh, within a short amount of time, he joined uh, the DAP and a political career was born. There was absolutely nothing in the background of Adolf Hitler to lead one to suspect that this was a, a man with any special talents or any particular claim on the public's attention. He had been born in 1889 in uh, the town of Braunau am Inn. It's right on the border of, of Germany and Austria, a point which he thought had great symbolic value later on. His father was Alois Hitler. He was the uh, illegitimate son uh, of a woman named Schickelgruber. Uh, and uh, before Adolf's birth, uh, he changed his name to Hitler. It was probably one of the best things that happened to Hitler's political career since Heil Schickelgruber, I think, did not, would not have had quite the same uh, political clout. There was a good deal of speculation during the Third Reich by enemies of Hitler and then later that, in fact, the father, who was, it was never quite clear who the father was of Alois Schickelgruber, uh, in fact, was Jewish, but there's no evidence to substantiate. There's been a lot of research done about this, and uh, that it seems very, very unlikely to say the least. He had what was a typical sort of Austrian upbringing. His father was a minor bureaucrat uh, in the old Austrian system. He was distant, uh, liked to spend most of his time down at the pub, uh, enjoying uh, beer with his uh, fellows. Uh, was a distant father, would come home. Hitler had uh, a younger sister, um, uh, but didn't spend very much time with the children, certainly not with, with Adolf. Hitler himself, Adolf Hitler, uh, formed a very, very strong attachment to his mother, uh, who was everything the father wasn't. She was loving and giving, spent time with him, cultivated his interest in art and so on, uh, and his sisters as well. Um, uh, and although it would be unfair to call Hitler a mama's boy, is, with all the connotations that has, he was a person really devoted to his mother. He carried a photograph of his mother with him when he went off to Vienna, when he went in the army all the way through the war, uh, and one, the photograph of his mother was still on his desk in the bunker when he committed suicide uh, in uh, 1945. And her death in 1907 was a great blow to, to the young Hitler. Uh, she had uh, supported him in many ways. She had cultivated his interest in going to Vienna, to the uh, Viennese Academy of Art. Um, and shortly after his mother died, he did, in fact, go and attempt to enroll, to be accepted. In a series of competitive examinations, he was not admitted. So in 1907, there were two blows, one the loss of this doting mother, and then the other, which was, uh, he, I don't think he'd ever really considered the possibility that his artwork would be turned down at the Academy. If you've seen any of the paintings, uh, you would probably understand why the instructors there thought he probably wasn't the best art student that they could uh, admit. It's significant that one of the things they, uh, they noted was that he seemed to have trouble drawing people. Very good with street scenes and so on, but not, not people. Um, while in Vienna, he, he would adopt uh, the sort of lifestyle of a young artist uh, and then finally would be architect after his art career seemed to have come to an early halt. 
Um, he spent most of his days hanging around uh, cafes in Vienna, drinking coffee. Uh, Hitler was a teetotaler and a vegetarian, a point I delight in pointing out uh, to some of my vegetarian friends. Um, uh, would sit around. Uh, it's, there's no indication that he read in any systematic fashion. His reading seems to have uh, been comprised of uh, pamphlets, political agitation of the sort that one could find in Vienna in these uh, pre-World War I days. One of the central themes of Viennese politics in this period was anti-Semitism. Uh, it was a hotbed of anti-Semitism. The old Austrian Empire with its uh, Polish population, its Czech population, uh, and into the southeast uh, had a much larger Jewish presence than uh, in Germany proper. Uh, and uh, certainly the mayor of Vienna, a man by the name of Karl Lueger, was a, a major anti-Semite and it organized anti-Semitism in Vienna. And Hitler seems to have been quite impressed with him and with this sort of milieu of, of, uh, of anti-Semitism. Um, he developed there, too, characteristics that would be typical of him for the rest of his career, a kind of indolence, the sort of sense of, even though he wasn't an artist, he wanted the lifestyle of one. So the sort of bizarre hours, staying up very late, uh, sleeping uh, until noon, uh, going to the cafes, this turns out to be a style of living that he would perpetuate into his, as he was uh, dictator of the Third Reich. We'll talk about that more. The bitterness that he felt about not being accepted at the academy, uh, some have speculated, uh, assumed that uh, the Jews controlled it. The Jews, the Jews, the Jews controlled the academy. The Jews controlled politics there. This wasn't true, but that has hardly stopped bigots. Um, and Hitler may have, there's conf conflicting evidence about this, certainly personalized that sense of his own exclusion uh, as part of this larger anti-Semitic worldview that he would adopt. Then in 1914 came the event that would change his life and would have the greatest effect on his political ideas and his future. And that was the outbreak of the war. There's an extraordinary photograph. Hitler describes in Mein Kampf, the book that he wrote in prison in 1924, uh, of being there in front of the Rathaus in Vienna, in Munich rather, uh, when the, the declaration of war was read out, uh, and that he was wild with enthusiasm, the happiest day of his life, he said. And sure enough, extraordinarily, a, a photographer at some point during the Third Reich found a photograph of the crowd, the throng, in front of the Rathaus in Munich, and did a blow up of the photograph, and there in the center is unmistakably Adolf Hitler waving his hat in the air, absolutely jubilant. The war would bring Hitler, uh, as he said, the happiest years of his life. For the first time, he felt that he belonged, he was committed, uh, he was with, he was involved in the society of peers. Um, his fellows saw him as something of an oddball. Uh, he didn't visit the houses of prostitution in France where he was stationed, as most of them did. He never seemed to receive mail from home, they said. He was a loner, read, uh, read things, pamphlets and so on, but never seemed to receive mail, was quiet, uh, and would, would be furious with them for their, uh, their going off to be with uh, French women of ill repute. The nationality was as important as the breach of traditional morality. 
but he belonged. They saw, they saw him as something of an oddball, but still a, a person that they, they enjoyed having in the group. And uh, in August of 1918, Hitler won the Iron Cross First Class for Bravery in Action. He was a runner. He carried messages between the trenches. It was a very dangerous job. And in August of 1918, uh, uh, he received this. It was an extraordinary thing for anybody, but a corporal in particular. Um, and then in 1918, he was wounded in a mustard gas attack on Ypres uh, and temporarily blinded. He was sent back to a hospital in northern Germany for recovery. He was still, he was still blinded at this point. Um, and it was there while he was recovering uh, that he heard the announcement that Germany had signed an armistice, that the war was over and that Germany was defeated. He claimed in the writing of Mein Kampf that then and there he decided to become a politician. This, I think, is so many things in his recollection of his past in Mein Kampf is something of an exaggeration, but there's no doubt that in that hospital ward uh, with the news of Germany's defeat and the revolution in Berlin and elsewhere that seemed to be sweeping the old order away and handing power over to the Marxists, to the Bolsheviks, these two things came together in a very powerful way for him. Um, um, and that sense of camaraderie, that sense of belonging, that sense of cla the classlessness of the trenches, of all men pulling together regardless of their backgrounds for the greater good of Germany, was a vision that he carried with him from that experience and would make the centerpiece of much of his political life. Having recovered, he was transferred to Munich, where he was to be uh, mustered out of the army. Germany was uh, demobilizing, certainly. Uh, but there he was able to stay on the army rolls, and he was given a job as a uh, member of an army surveillance and propaganda unit. His job was to go and listen in to other political meetings and write reports on people and, and these different parties or organizations uh, that were popping up around. While there, he took courses. The army not only wanted to maintain order, but with the threat of spread of Bolshevism into Germany, the army wanted to combat that. And so they conducted courses uh, in anti-Bolshevism, things on German history, uh, Bolshevism, um, the course of the war, and so on. And Hitler went to these courses. He attended where he emerged as an excellent student. Uh, in fact, he was selected to go to an instructor's course where he emerged for the first time as a star orator. It was at this school for instructors that he realized he could speak. Um, the topic that he chose for most of his talks in this instructor's course was uh, anti-Semitism. The Jews are our misfortune, he would say, uh, and argued in the first written document that we have of Hitler's um, political statement, he, he argues that anti-Semitism based on, on reason, on facts, and, and not on emotion, close quote, was the key. Emotion would produce pogroms, but these things were not very useful, didn't lead to any sort of uh, final solution. The final aim, he argued, was what he called rational anti-Semitism. Rational anti-Semitism must unshakably 
The goal of rational uh, anti-Semitism must, and I quote, must unshakably be the removal of the Jews altogether, close quote. This is in 1919-1920, at the very beginning of his political career. The unshakable is typical Hitler verbiage. Everything that he ever said was unshakable. It was, it was felsenfest. He was not going to give in, not change a word of it. But this, this uh, anti-Semitic streak um, and this particular statement of it uh, is very revealing indeed. And it was also there that he would link the revolution that was sweeping away uh, the crowned heads of Germany uh, and leading to what he feared was Bolshevization of Germany. He makes a linkage between Bolsheviks and Jews. Uh, and throughout Hitler's career, as we will see, when he spoke, he almost always spoke of what he called Judeo-Bolshevism. Uh, it wasn't just Bolshevism. It wasn't just anti-Semitism. It was Judeo-Bolshevism. And Hitler insisted already at this point that his anti-Semitism wasn't a result of religion. It was the oldest form of anti-Semitism, of course, which had been around for centuries. Nor was it a sort of socioeconomic anti-Semitism, accusing the Jews of being parasites and so on. His argument was that, no, this was a racial matter. Jews did what they did, he said, because, not because of their religion, and not because of any sort of particular socioeconomic history in the past. It was that they were racially, this was, this was a matter of race. And so for him, a converted Jew was even worse than uh, a practicing uh, religious Jew. And this all begins to come in 1919. Hitler went off to this first meeting of the uh, German Workers' Party. Um, as I said, he was not impressed with what he saw. Uh, found the talk interesting. There were lots of these sort of groups around Munich in this period. Uh, but he saw possibilities. And I might also say his time on government money, his army paycheck was going to run out. He was going to be mustered out of the army relatively soon. But he had about, he had, I don't know, six months, nine months, he thought, still coming. And so he joined this DAP. Uh, and unlike the other members of this organization, with, with the uh, military money coming to him, he had, he had a job. His job was, in fact, so he had money. He could devote himself entirely to political activity, which he did. Um, this discovery of his ability to speak would make him the drawing card of this organization. Hitler didn't want it to be a club. He didn't want it to be some sort of debating society. He wanted to take this and use this as the vehicle for the creation of a mass political movement. And his discovery that he could speak, I think if you, I think for people who don't speak German, this is particularly difficult to understand. If you see the usual film clips of Hitler speaking and listen to them, the point seems to be how many times can I say Deutschland uh, in the same sentence, uh, you know, it's and shrieking constantly, constantly, constantly. And his voice sounded odd to Germans too. It was, a, it was an Austrian accented voice. He had the capacity, some have argued that it was a result of the gassing attack on uh, the wounds that he'd suffered in his larynx as well as his eyes, that he had the ability to ratchet up from one octave to another so that, you know, you sh he shrieks and shrieks and you think, well, he's gonna, it's gonna, his voice is going to break. It's got to stop. He's got to go back down. But instead, it would go up and up and up, creating a sense of crescendo and, and, and so on with his, with his speech that, was, that everybody found odd 
and remarkable. Hitler quickly achieved a reputation for himself as a street corner speaker. He spoke in street cars in Munich. He spoke on street corners everywhere that there would be a crowd. And uh, when the new party began charging admission for people to come to, to the, their meetings, Hitler speaking was one of the things that drew people inside. Hitler, there was already a program of this DAP, which Hitler wanted to, to change. He, he accepted, he adopted what was already there in outline, but wanted to see, put his own imprint on it. The program of the DAP was drawn up in 1919. It was bellicosely nationalistic. The Treaty of Versailles was a crime. Uh, the war had not been Germany's fault uh, and called for the restoration of German power and prestige. It was radically anti-Semitic and it was radically anti-Marxist. In fact, linking uh, Marxism uh, and uh, uh, Judaism or Jews to be more precise. Uh, yet it was also determined to win working class support for these ideas. And this is one of the things that made it stand out. It wasn't just an appeal to middle class Germans, which that program might have, might have had some attraction, uh, for whom it might have had attraction. No, he wanted to attract German workers too, to cross the great class lines. The party rejected the, uh, the Marxist idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat. No, 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 this was out. Marxism wasn't what it was about. They were German socialism. What the DAP and Hitler wanted to do was to create what he called the Volksgemeinschaft, a people's community, where class, religion, region would no longer be important. The key was that one was German and a member of this racial community. Anti-Semitism was linked to economic exploitation. Jews were seen as uh, having benefited uh, from the hard work of uh, Germans. Um, and this, this, this program that was in shape in 1919, uh, Hitler would take in a 1920 redraft. He changed the name of the party, the NSDAP, uh, the National Socialist German Workers' Party. The, the name itself was an enigma. National, right wing. Socialist, left wing. German, right. Uh, workers, left. The very name of the party uh, didn't make any sense to anybody. But that was because they were trying to appeal to a broader uh, population. In 1920, Hitler rewrote the program and became the 25 points where all the old ideas from the earlier program were there. Um, he called for not only appeal to workers, but also uh, to, uh, to the German middle class, emphasizing again still the anti-Semitism and so on. These, for the first two years of the party's existence, uh, Hitler's fame, his notoriety extended basically to Munich and the outlying areas. Uh, I think by the beginning of 1923, the party had about 6,000 members. He was known around there, but nowhere else. It would be 1923 and 1924 that would change all of that. It would be the hyperinflation of 1923 and then the harsh stabilization of 1924 that would thrust Hitler into the mainstream of German politics. In 1923, in November, an attempt to overthrow by force the Bavarian government in Munich. Uh, 
uh, ended in failure. It was an Italian comic opera uh, with Hitler arrested. But in 1924, as we will see, at his trial, Hitler would take what had been a political fiasco, a laughingstock of a coup, a beer hall putsch, and by his appearance in court, transform that into a major political victory and establish himself as a personality, a peripheral one, but a personality for the first time in, on the national political stage. In our next lecture, we'll take up how the Nazis would manage through 1923, uh, through the breakthrough years uh, of uh, 1928 and into 1932, having made their appearance for the first time on the national scene in this chaotic year of 1923. Lecture 4, The Twenties and the Great Depression. In our last lecture, we examined the early years, troubled, tur turbulent years of the Weimar Republic, and then turned our attention to the founding of the NSDAP, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, and the entry into politics of Adolf Hitler, the leader of that party. In this lecture, our fourth, we're going to examine the emergence of the NSDAP from the wilderness of German politics, from the periphery of German politics, into the mainstream with its dramatic rise between 1923 and 1932. We'll begin where we had stopped in our previous lecture by examining events in 1923. Between 1920 uh, when Hitler would uh, rewrite the party program of the DAP, change the name to the NSDAP, and the end of 1922, the NSDAP struggled along. It was a regional phenomenon, popular uh, in, or well-known at any rate in Munich and in the surrounding villages in Bavaria. It was not a national phenomenon by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, it was still seen insofar as it had adherents outside of Bavaria, as a minor phenomenon on the lunatic fringes of German politics. 1923 would change all of that uh, and begin the dramatic ascent of the NSDAP and Adolf Hitler. 1923 was, at best, a year of chaos for Germany. During the First World War, the German government uh, had inflated the economy. It had paid for the huge expenses of the war effort uh, by consciously inflating the economy. Well, all wartime economies are inflation economies. But when the war ended, uh, France, Britain, the United States, and so on, went through a period of readjustment in which there was a recession, unemployment, and all the things that usually come with this transition from a wartime to a peacetime economy. But the Weimar authorities didn't think they could afford that, and as a consequence had continued the wartime policy of inflation. Inflation is, by definition, in the short run at any rate, a progressive policy. There's money to spend on programs, the new Weimar government spent on welfare, on uh, daycare centers, uh, and so on. Uh, but in the end, there had to be a reckoning. And in 1923, it came. 
During the course of 1922, there had been a number of, well, actually 21 and 22, there had been a number of international conferences to try to determine how much in the way of reparations Germany actually owed. The Germans at Versailles had been forced to sign a blank check, recognizing there was an obligation to pay, but not how much. Uh, there still was no agreement on this in 1922, and the German government uh, had tried all kinds of things. It didn't want to pay. No German government wanted to pay the reparations, obfuscating the real value of the mark, paying in kind, and then saying it was worth uh, these deliveries of timber or coal were worth so much. Uh, at one point, they even tried to pay the French and the Belgians with paper marks, which the French and Belgians weren't having. Uh, and finally, in January of 1923, the French in particular had had enough. Uh, and in that month, French and Belgian troops poured into Germany into the Ruhr to occupy the industrial heartland of Germany to extract reparations from the Germans. The German government responded by, issue, by issuing a uh, policy of, of passive resistance. Uh, German workers should slow down or simply not work at all, that the German government would pay their salaries through a complicated arrangement. The result was that the German government simply let the printing presses roll, um, making it impossible to determine for the French or the Belgians just exactly how much a mark was worth. It's difficult to, uh, to exaggerate uh, the trauma of uh, the great inflation, the hyperinflation of 1923 as it came to be known. In 1914, if you had a dollar and were standing in the Munich train station and wanted to buy marks, a dollar would bring you five marks. At the end of the war in 1919, a dollar would bring you 14 Reichsmarks. In 1921, 64 Reichsmarks. So you can see the inflation uh, creeping up. In January of 1922, a dollar would bring you 191 Reichsmarks. Ah, uh, but 1923. 1923 would see uh, the complete collapse of the German currency. In January, shortly after the French and Belgians invaded and the German government had declared its policy of passive resistance, a dollar would bring you 17,972 Reichsmarks. By August, a dollar would bring you 109,996 Reichsmarks. After that, it was impossible to calculate rates of exchange. By November of 1923, a dollar would bring you four trillion four hundred and twenty billion Reichsmarks. By the autumn of 1923, life in Germany had assumed an absolutely nightmarish quality, a surrealistic quality. A streetcar ticket in Berlin to go from uh, the center of west of the western part of the city around the Kaiser Wilhelm's Gedächtniskirche, the Kaiser Wilhelm's Memorial Church, over into Alexanderplatz. Uh, not far away, was 100,000 marks. A month later, it was 4,500,000 marks. By November, it was 150 million marks. Uh, a German Hausfrau needed 90 billion marks to buy a kilo of potatoes. Workers were paid three times a day. You went to work in the morning uh, and were instantly paid. You had to have somebody from your family, your husband or wife or a child come along with you to take that money and instantly go out and buy lunch. Because if you waited until lunch to use that money to buy it, the money would be already so valueless that it wouldn't buy you a slice of Wurst. So at lunchtime, uh, a family member came, you gave them the lunchtime money, 
they went out and bought dinner. And at dinner, uh, you were paid one last time, the stock market's closed for the evening, and you were relatively safe until the next morning. Life, as one German glumly observed, was madness, nightmare, desperation, chaos. Shopkeepers didn't want to sell anything. If you sold something today, uh, tomorrow, uh, you would take the, if you took those paper marks to the bank, it, it would be worth nothing. People were buying things in dollars and pounds sterling and so on. Big businesses knew how to operate in this. They had access to foreign currency and contracts called for payment in gold, gold marks, and so on. But for the average German, uh, it was a nightmare. And in the midst of this economic chaos, the political fabric of the Republic began to unravel. There was a Rhenish separatist movement sponsored by the French uh, in Cologne, in Aachen, in Koblenz. Uh, one of its supporters, Konrad Adenauer, who would, after 1945, become the first post-war chancellor of Germany and finally had his Rhenish Republic in the Federal Republic almost. There were rumors of a communist coups in Saxony and Thuringia where the communists and social democrats were in a government alliance. The government declared uh, uh, martial law and in fact, the army uh, was in charge now of maintaining order. This situation convinced Hitler that the time was ripe for action. He'd always been wary of making any alliance with the other right-wing organizations uh, around Munich. He wanted his own party, he wanted it to stand out, but now the situation seemed to be right. And he enlisted the NSDAP in a conspiracy, the Kampfbund it was called in early 1923, it was made up of monarchists, right-wing radicals of one sort or another, uh, one group more bizarre than the next, separatists, Bavarian separatists, in order to overthrow the government. Uh, he enlisted Erich Ludendorff, the great hero of the First World War, who was, uh, let me th what is, I think the social scientific word for Ludendorff would be crackpot. Uh, a, a great military man, but in politics, uh, was seen as unstable. Um, and Hitler took his gamble. On November 8th, November 9th, this coalition of right-wing forces attempted to overthrow the Bavarian government, and then the plan was to march on to, quote, Red Berlin. Uh, in fact, they were copying Mussolini's 1922 March on Rome, which had led to Mussolini's establishment in power. But this was a revolution, a coup, a putsch that never got off the ground. Uh, the, the revolutionaries met in Munich in a beer hall overnight. Uh, the scene was wild. At one point, in order to uh, restore order, Hitler jumped to the top of a table and fired a pistol into the ceiling uh, to bring order. Finally, around daybreak, the procession began to march down toward the center of Munich, um, past the Rathaus, down a very narrow street. Uh, headed in, into a large open plaza called the, uh, around the Feldherrnhalle, uh, where they encountered a barricade. Uh, German troops were, had lined themselves across uh, this open area uh, and ordered the marchers to halt. Hitler was in the front row, along with General Ludendorff. Ludendorff was there wearing his World War I dress uniform with his Pickelhaupe, that pointed helmet, uh, that was worn in 1914, with chest full of ribbons, assuming, of course, that everyone would know who he was. They did. Uh, when the marchers wouldn't stop, the troops opened fire. A number of the marchers were killed. Hitler miraculously escaped uh, injury. Uh, a number of people were wounded uh, and ran away, escaped. Ludendorff marched all the way across the plaza, didn't stop, they didn't shoot him. 
marched through the barricade, and on the other side, the German officer in charge said, Herr Feldmarschall, our apologies, but, you know, Ludendorff was taken into protective custody. It was a fiasco, a public relations disaster. It looked ridiculous. They hadn't gotten, this hadn't gotten off the ground. At the first encounter of opposition, uh, the whole thing had come undone. Um, but from that disaster, Hitler would, would transform it into uh, a political victory. The trial of the uh, conspirators was to be held in Munich in February and March uh, 1924. Um, Hitler, Ludendorff, and a number of others uh, were tried for high treason, attempting to overthrow the government. The trial was held in Munich. Um, all the others basically pled not guilty. Ludendorff was let off altogether. Uh, again, the judiciary not being purged. But Hitler at the trial uh, used it to, to uh, demonstrate his oratory. If high treason, if overthrowing this government of November criminals who stabbed the German army in the back is high treason, I'm guilty. If wanting to restore the majesty of the German Reich is high treason, I'm guilty. If wanting to restore the honor of the German army is high treason, I'm guilty, etc., etc., etc. Even the state prosecutor praised the nationalist motives of Hitler and the NSDAP. Uh, and the sentencing in mid-April, which was covered by all the, the journals in uh, Germany, um, it was a national event. Uh, the sentencing in, in Munich uh, was a remarkable thing. Uh, as I said, Ludendorff and a number of others were actually acquitted. Hitler was convicted. There was no other way. He wouldn't plead not guilty. He was given five years prison uh, for a conviction for high treason, for attempting to overthrow the legitimate government of the country. And uh, the court expressly held out the probability of early pardon. Uh, Hitler was sent to what we would now call a minimum security facility in Landsberg, west of Munich, where in his cell, he was allowed visitors. In fact, he had finally had to protest to the jailers and say, don't let anybody else in. Uh, the sycophants of the party would come to, to, to see him. Uh, he dictated Mein Kampf, uh, his, My Struggle, his political autobiography and political um, uh, agenda uh, while in prison. Uh, and uh, it was in his years in prison that he people in the party began to notice that he emerged from prison at the end of 1924. Five years had been reduced to less than a year. And already now began to assume this distance. He was now not simply the boss, de chef, the chief. He now wanted to be called de fure, the leader. It was after all close party members, Gregor Strasser, who was really the second in command of the party, noticed this. Hitler, after this, now distance himself. He had begun to take on this aura of the mystical leader. Um, the, the party had, had been banned in 1924, but under a different name, had run in the elections of May and not done very well at all, uh, and then had done even worse in a later election. And because of the factionalism, there were a lot of different chiefs in the NSDAP, 
And they all clamored for, you know, they would go to Hitler in Landsberg and say, you know, what is your position on this? And Hitler would always sort of agree with the last person he saw. It would be typical of his, of his behavior later on uh, as ruler of the Third Reich. Um, but it cemented his position as the ultimate authority within the party. In 1925, released from prison, uh, Hitler reestablished the party. Again, less than a year after the party had been banned for attempting to overthrow the state, it now can reestablish itself with the same name. It reemerges. Uh, all it attempted to do was to destroy the democratic government of Germany. Um, and Hitler was interested in two things, two things above all, organization and propaganda. First of all, he wanted uh, to remain above ideological conflicts. He didn't want to have to decide whether uh, this position was the ideological main line or that. He was perfectly willing to let his lieutenants battle it out. He preferred to be vague. What he was really interested in was cementing his position as Fuhrer, his recognition as Fuhrer of the party, unquestioned. Ed organizational reform. Uh, Hitler argued that the party had attempted to overthrow the government by force and it hadn't worked. Now the party had to follow what he called the path of legality to power. We want to enter the parliament, he said, not because we've become Democrats and we believe in parliamentary government. Far from it. We want to enter the parliament in order to destroy it. The main emphasis of the party ought to be recruiting members and to recruit voters. Uh, members in order to carry out propaganda uh, and to attract voters. The point wasn't to have a working parliamentary delegation. It was to use this as a Democrat, as a propaganda machine. Hitler had a vision, largely borrowed from the communists, of establishing a network of propaganda cells all over Germany. That in every town, every village, every city, every city neighborhood, there would be people in charge of propaganda who would be going off to the pubs, into the beauty parlors, into the barber shops to listen to what people had to say uh, and then to report that back up the line of command uh, to the Munich headquarters. That way a crude system of survey research would be in place. Then the party would know. What they always asked was, what makes people unhappy? What are the farmers unhappy about? What are civil servants unhappy about? What about white-collar employees? There was a lot of dissatisfaction in Germany in this period because although the, inf the inflation had been stabilized in late 1923, within a matter of months, it was a successful stabilization of the economy. The government simply cut off credit, quadrupled interest rates, uh, laid off about 150,000 permanent civil servants, men who thought they had lifetime tenure, about 750,000 white-collar employees, especially in banking, if you didn't have all that money to count, you don't need the bankers, uh, were laid off. Um, there was a move for rationalization of industry. It's the, the period when typewriters were introduced large-scale into German business. Instead of having uh, people who had a nice scroll uh, of handwriting, uh, adding machines instead of comptometers, uh, an influx of young girls, not women, but young girls or women into these jobs as apprentices and laying off older white-collar employees in particular, men who had a higher salary based on being married than having children and so on. 
So there's a lot of dissatisfaction uh, out there. Um, the party attempted this uh, to create this network of national network of propaganda cells to go out uh, and uh, discover opinions so that it could then package and appeal. But there were all sorts of problems. The party had no money. It was not a big party, didn't have financial resources. The lines of communication were not very good. There was no real synchronization of activities. The party had two newspapers, two dailies, uh, a paper in Munich called the Völkische Beobachter, the, the uh, racialist uh, observer, uh, and a number of regional weeklies. In 1928, uh, the party entered a national election for the first time since 1924. The period from 1924 to 1928 in economic terms was one of relative tranquility and relative recovery. Um, the Germans had accepted a financial plan whereby the Americans would invest a huge amount of money in Germany, allowing Germany then to put its economic house in order and then to begin to pay its reparations obligations to France and Belgium and to England. It's a crazy, I, I can never resist saying, it was a crazy system in a way. The United States, demanded that England, France, England and France in particular pay their war debts to the United States. And so what the United States did was to invest in Germany, send short-term loans to Germany in, in, on a large-scale basis. Not the government, but private investors. This wasn't foreign aid. Um, but with high interest rates in 1924, it made a lot of sense to invest in Germany. So the Germans then would have this capital so they could pay uh, the British and the French who could then repay uh, the United States. A colleague of mine who is an uh, international eco econo uh, economist always disputes this with me, but I know I'm right. Um, and certainly this is the way it played out in the public, uh, to the public. So there was a period of relative tranquility. Germany was readmitted to the League of Nations. It had signed a number of international uh, agreements uh, from 24 to 28 not to, to show that the Treaty of Versailles worked, but to show that it wouldn't. That is, Germany tried not to pay reparations, that hadn't worked, so now Germany was gonna make a good faith effort to pay, and then by doing that would show the Allies how impossible it was to do, to, to, to pay off reparations. Nonetheless, a, a tenuous recovery had been made. There was a kind of prosperity. It was the golden 20s, the sort of roaring 20s in the United States. Um, but there were problems just beneath the surface. A German political figure named Gustav Stresemann, who was a foreign minister of Germany in this period and really put his stamp on this period of 24 to 28, said just before his untimely death in 1929, we're living on a volcano. If anything happens and these American short-term loans are withdrawn, pulled back, we're in deep, deep, deep trouble. So in 1928, even with this new emphasis on, on propaganda, the Nazis uh, were an abysmal failure at the polls. They got 2.8, 2.6% of the vote. A German FBI agent who had done what Hitler was doing, which was to go out and, and when he was uh, being an, an observer of these different political movements for the army, wrote a report in 1928 uh, that said, and I paraphrase very closely, this is a party that, despite great enthusiasm and energy, is going nowhere. It is unable to attract significant attention or any, strike any sort of spark in the German population uh, and is something that uh, basically has no political future. 
often wonder what happened to that particular uh, FBI agent who wrote that report. What the Nazis needed, they believed, um, was an issue, something that would thrust them into the mainstream. In 1929-1930, uh, one of the leaders of the party, a young man by the name of Joseph Goebbels, uh, who had been in the party around Berlin, uh, became head of Nazi propaganda. And he had his own ideas about what to do. He said, yes, of course, having uh, a national network of propaganda cells is good, but we don't have the money to do it. So what we need to do is to concentrate our resources into something he called uh, propaganda actions. Identify an area that looks like a good prospect for us and then throw everything we have at it. All the big speakers, all the pamphlets, all the leaflets. Make a big splash in a small place and it'll pay more dividends than these big, uh, than these, uh, big rallies in cities. What Goebbels was saying is there's more bang for the buck for propaganda events outside the major cities. If you hold a big event in the, in the Sportspalast in Berlin, you attract 20,000 people on Monday. Social Democrats attract 20,000 on Tuesday. The communists 20,000 on Thursday. Uh, you haven't done anything. But out in the countryside or in small towns, you'll get a real response. They'll talk about it for days. But the problem was, even with this, this idea of propaganda, they still didn't have an issue. That issue would be provided by the Great Depression, which hit Germany in great force uh, in 1929-30. The German economy was very closely tied to the American, and when Wall Street collapsed, uh, the German economy followed in tow. Uh, there had already been something of an agricultural recession that had gone on uh, through the mid-20s. That was certainly worsened, but when the Great Crash hit, in 1929-30, uh, the effects were devastating. German industrial production dropped by 31% between 1928 and 1930. Unemployment catapulted by 200% in this period. The government deficit mushroomed. There was unemployment insurance because of progressive Weimar social legislation. As the unemployment figures went up, the deficit did too. A the coalition government that had been in power in Germany through the mid-twenties collapsed um, in 1930. It was a moderate government, a new moderate government that had come in a new reshuffling in 1928, uh, and no major, no majority could be created. And policy was turned over, the chancellorship was turned over to Heinrich Brüning, a Catholic center politician. Bruning, if you've ever seen a photograph of him, was one of these ramrod stiff, your sort of worst nightmare of a schoolmaster. Ramrod stiff, uh, looked like he couldn't bend at the waist, uh, wore a big celluloid collar, and he was one of these people who basically said to the German public, the only way out of this depression is for us to tighten our belts, we need to balance the budget, we need to cut government expenditures, and that may mean getting rid of unemployment insurance or cutting it way back. It may mean cutting back on these expansive Weimar social welfare programs, and it means we're probably going to have to, file, you know, there's a threat of layoffs, reduce expenditure, and we're going to have to raise taxes. Raise taxes in the middle of uh, an economic crisis where there was no bottom? It was terribly, uh, nobody wanted responsibility for this. And Bruning, 
basically insisted. He said, well, you know, nobody wants to take responsibility for it, but that's what we need. And everybody knows it. All the parties know this is what's necessary. And in fact, that was true. But nobody wants the responsibility for doing it. Now, there was a clause in the Weimar Constitution, Article 48 of the Weimar Constitution, which said in periods or in a moment of uh, grave national crisis, when the security of the society is at risk, the Reich president has the authority to grant to the chancellor, the real policymaker, um, emergency decree power. The president was a kind of figurehead, uh, like the Queen of England, an ersatz monarch. Uh, that president in 1930 was the old wartime hero, Paulson Hindenburg, who'd been elected in 1925. A conservative, certainly, an old military man, certainly, but a man who took his oath of loyalty to the Constitution quite seriously. He didn't want to give Bruning emergency decree power, but reluctantly finally agreed. Uh, but in a very, very marginal way. Bruning uh, therefore dissolved the Parliament and in the fall of 1930 called for new elections. It was a catastrophic mistake on Bruning's part. While the other parties, all of whom had been responsible for different policies, were in, some, in disarray, the middle class parties in particular, either they had been responsible for the inflation or the harsh stabilization or now the Great Depression. The Nazis had never been in power. They weren't responsible for anything. They were in an ideal position. They were associated with no failed policy. And so when they asked people out in the streets, what do you want? It never was really sort of what do you want? It's what makes them mad? What makes them unhappy? and they would hammer away at the failures of the other parties. The campaign was run by Goebbels for the first time, uh, exercising centralized control. Membership was rising. The party was able to mobilize all over the country with coordinated events appealing to farmers, to middle-class voters, to shopkeepers, but also to workers. It was the only party that did this. Appeal all across the, the social spectrum. Appeal to Catholics as well as Protestants. And when the dust settled on the elections in mid-September, the NSDAP emerged with a vote of 18.3%. Uh, that doesn't sound like much, I think especially to American ears where we have single member districts and, and so on. It made the NSDAP the second largest party in Germany, behind only the Social Democrats. In the aftermath of the 1930 election, uh, the already staggering Weimar Republic uh, was in deep trouble. The success of the NSDAP made a return to any kind of coalition government impossible. Bruning, instead of uh, changing his policies, uh, opted to continue them, uh, and he used and got from, he demanded and received from Hindenburg the use of Article 48. In 1930, Bruning introduced unpopular legislation by emergency decree five times in 1931, 40 times. Uh, and by mid-1932, uh, rule by emergency decree had become the norm. 37 emergency decrees were issued uh, in the first half of 1933, while the Reichstag met fewer and fewer times. Almost three years before Hitler assumed uh, the reins of power, Brüning had entrusted the German government or the German population to rule by emergency decree, a course that would lead to the end of parliamentary democracy in Germany well before Hitler 
would take the reins of power. The Nazis themselves would employ a new strategy, a strategy of perpetual campaigning. They didn't go away between elections, and although 1931 had no national elections, the Nazis continued to campaign as if there were an election going on, appearing everywhere, all over Germany, with dramatic sort of public appearances. And then in 1932, 1932 would be a great climactic year of Weimar. There would be elections from the beginning of the year until the end, and at the end, National Socialism was on the verge of power. Lecture 5, The Nazi Breakthrough. Hello. Welcome to our fifth lecture in the series on the history of Hitler's empire. In our last lecture, we discovered uh, the rise of the National Socialists, discovered the, the uh, sources of their support, uh, the tactics that they used. In particular, we focused on this revolutionary uh, tactic, strategy, if you will, that the Nazis employed, which was perpetual campaigning, that unlike other German parties, they didn't disappear between elections. American parties disappear between elections. Who knows where the local Democratic headquarters is or Republican headquarters is. Most German parties were like that as well, but not the Nazis. And they campaigned and campaigned even when there was no election around. There was no election in 1931 no national election, still the Nazis were out in force, constantly campaigning, gaining more members. Members paid dues. The dues were used for propaganda events. And Nazi propaganda was a self-financing uh, operation. It paid for itself. They charged admission, and people came. Uh, not necessarily to hear a harangue by Hitler or Goebbels or Gregor Strasser, the second in command of the party, but for an evening of entertainment where there would be dancing, there would be a band, and at the end of the evening there would be a speech uh, by a local Nazi and maybe a Nazi speaker. Um, that tactic of perpetual campaigning would come in handy in 1932 because 1932 would be the decisive year in the sad and turbulent history of the Weimar Republic. It, was nine, it would be in 1932, a year of elections in which the Nazis would finally make that final leap into the mainstream of German political life uh, and emerge by year's end as the largest political party in Germany. The Nazis opened the year of 1932 in high spirits. Part of their appeal, part of what they tried to uh, sell to the German population was the idea of inevitability. There was an inexorable wave carrying the Nazis to power. Each election, more votes, whether it was in a tiny state or a local city hall election, a regional election, there was, momentum was the key. There is this uh, inexhaustible energy that is carrying uh, the National Socialist message forward and carrying Hitler to power. Uh, and in 1932, they knew already that there were going to be elections in the two largest German states. In Prussia, which was three-fifths of Germany, in northern Germany, a huge state. And in Bavaria, the most important, 
state in the South, the second largest state, and overwhelmingly a Catholic state. So they were already beginning their preparations to think about those campaigns. But the biggest decision confronting Hitler, Goebbels, and their advisors was how to approach the prospect of new presidential elections. Paul von Hindenburg, the old field marshal who had been elected president in 1925, uh, was set for a new campaign. It had to be a new election in 1932. Bruning uh, certainly did not want to have the old gentleman uh, have to carry out a campaign, particularly in these circumstances. These campaigns in 1930, and then again, as we'll see in 1932, were carried out against a backdrop of violence. Uh, Stormtroopers, the Nazi brown shirts, uh, the sort of militia of the party, uh, would march out into the streets and do battle with the communists, the Red Front uh, Street Organization, the Social Democratic Street Organization. So to put this this 85-year-old man, Paul von Hindenburg, through a campaign in this rowdy uh, uh, set of circumstances seemed to be too much. Bruning then decided that what he wanted to do was to simply have the Reichstag declare Hindenburg president for life. He thought, you know, the old gentleman has served his country well. He was the most respected person in German political life. He seemed to stand above all of the parties. Um, and, of course, for Bruning, it made a lot of sense. Hindenburg was the person who granted him authority to use Article 48, emergency decree power, in order to, to uh, uh, introduce the very unpopular economic measures that Bruning was using. Bruning canvassed all the parties. They agreed that Hindenburg should stay on. The one he was worried about was the second largest party, and that was the Nazis. Hitler, in quite typical fashion, agreed. Bruning was shocked. He agreed to have Hindenburg simply be declared president for life. No campaign. Ah, but there was a condition. In fact, there were two. One is that Bruning was re would resign as chancellor and that there would be new elections. This was an offer Bruning thought he could refuse. Uh, and so there were going to be presidential elections. So were the Nazis going to challenge Hindenburg? It was a real risk. He was the most respected man in German political life. And to challenge him would put Hitler's newfound prestige on the line. Uh, and it also might, I mean, how do you conduct a campaign against this venerable war hero? Um, he was, Hitler was afraid, Goebbels was afraid that they would alienate the, cons the conservative voters that they needed. The Nazis were not conservatives. They were radicals. They were revolutionaries. And conservatives in Germany understood this. So how do, you, how do you deal with this conservative old field marshal uh, without alienating them? Nonetheless, in January 1932, Adolf Hitler decided that he would challenge Hindenburg. He would enter the race for the presidency. The presidential campaigns of 1932 began in February, and the NSDAP was very well prepared. The Nazis launched a massive media blitz unparalleled in German history. Goebbels and his propaganda staff showed what they could do with more money now, with members uh, joining uh, at uh, a great rate. Uh, the Nazis were now able to actually do uh, what they had always hoped to do. They held over 30,000 rallies, meetings, and demonstrations. Uh, millions of leaflets were distributed. We're still talking about campaigns that are largely event and 
print driven. That is, radio was not really a factor. Uh, there was obviously no television, so it was leaflets, pamphlets, it was meetings, it was these sort of entertainment evenings that the Nazis put on. And Nazi speakers traveled the country from end to end. The propaganda leadership under Goebbels distributed uh, all sorts of propaganda memoranda to the locals, uh, new slogans for each week, new posters, leaflets, so that the same leaflets the same themes, leaflets, pamphlets, from Königsberg out in East Prussia to Aachen in West Germany uh, would be the same on a given day. It would be the National Socialist Day for, uh, for uh, artisans, for farmers, for white-collar employees, for civil servants, with all the speakers speaking on the same theme all over the country. Films were distributed, phonograph records, caravans of Nazis with... Uh, uh, loudspeakers blaring from the backs of trucks, uh, motorcycle convoys through the small towns and villages all blaring out uh, Nazi messages. The stormtroopers, the SA, the Sturmabteilung, uh, these sort of brown-shirted bully boys uh, who were the Nazi street organization, who really just, their job was basically to protect Nazi speakers and to, to uh, mix it up with the communists or anyone else who caused trouble. Uh, and the SA was absolutely critical in this period. They were the ones who were out there handing out leaflets. They were the ones who were involved in organizing uh, the marches and so on. Uh, and the SA in 1932 uh, would have uh, what they called um, uh, a, a common Kirchengang. They all went to church together. This was to allay the fears of Catholic voters, with whom the Nazis had not done very well, that the Nazis really weren't pagans, uh, that it was possible to be a Christian and a Nazi at the same time. Uh, all sorts of parades. And the SA would, be, would march off into working-class neighborhoods in the big cities in Berlin, Dusseldorf, and so on, uh, and hold a demonstration right in the middle of communist territory. Uh, or social democratic territory. The other parties might talk about fighting against Marxism. The Nazis were trying to show, trying to demonstrate they really could fight them. They weren't just talking. They were out there challenging the, the communists and the socialists for the German worker. The workers had to be rescued from communism, the Nazis argued. What one sees in looking at Nazi campaigns in 1932 was an attention to detail, to something they called Kleinarbeit, uh, the details of work, little work, uh, what posters worked, what colors were best. Did the posters of Hitler, which were straight-on shot work, or did the profile shot work best? What sort of images did farmers respond to, did, uh, did uh, civil servants respond to? And each week they would get uh, their people out in the field to write a report. This poster worked best. This slogan really struck a chord. And so then the propaganda leadership in Munich would send out directives to everyone and say, this works for civil servants, this works for farmers. The Nazis in 1932 pioneered uh, a, uh, an election technique and a commercial technique that we have all been forced to live with ever since, and that was direct mailing. Uh, they went through address books. Uh, not every German had a telephone, most did, but not everyone did. But every town, every neighborhood had a thing called an address book, which listed the head of household and his occupation. So what the Nazis would do is to go through these address books, and they would send a direct mailing uh, written by, let's say, a civil servant. And that direct mailing would go to all civil servants in that town or in that neighborhood. A different Nazi, a farmer, would write a letter it seemed to be a personal letter to all the farmers. So all, it, was, it seemed to be an individual. Sort of, nobody had seen anything like this this before.
Um, they didn't care so much about the content. There was no party line to be towed. The Nazis made lots of different appeals. Uh, it was like, uh, I always use the image of a wheel with a core. Depending on where you stand on the, on the exterior of that wheel, there's a spoke in front of you, or two, or three, and you might like that one. If you didn't like it, you turned it a little bit, and there was something else for you. So if there was some aspect of the propaganda you didn't like, you could turn it a bit. You could focus on that that you did. They tried to offer something for everybody and appeal to everybody. In order to win the presidential election, you had to have 50% of the vote. At the end of the campaign, there were several candidates running. A communist candidate ran. A, 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 a sort of veterans candidate ran. At the end of that campaign, Hindenburg received 49.6% of the vote. What that meant is there had to be a runoff. And the runoff was basically Hitler and Hindenburg. Hitler had received 30%. In the runoff, Hitler confronted Hindenburg and the uh, Goebbels and his staff geared up again. They tried to associate uh, um, Hindenburg with Brüning's ill-fated policies. If you're happy with him, if you're happy with Brüning, then vote Hindenburg, never attacking Hindenburg himself, a great man, a great German, a great field marshal who served his country, but now it's time for a new generation. All this emphasis on youth. Most of the Nazi leaders were much younger than most German politicians. Um, so uh, Hitler was 42. Uh, so this emphasis was what they tried to, to, uh, to go with. And in the campaign's most dramatic stroke, Hitler took to the skies, flying from city to city in an airplane. This had never been done. It was called the Deutschlandflug. Um, you know, most German candidates didn't do what was common in the United States at this time, which is the sort of whistle-stop campaign, going by train, speaking off the back of trains in every town, community, and so on. Not done in Germany. This kind of populist sort of approach to politics was very alien to German politics not with the Nazis. They were selling populism. Hitler was ein Mann vom Volk, a man out of, from the people. Uh, so this flight where he would be all the way out in, in Königsberg in East Prussia in the morning and then speak in Munich in the afternoon and then speak in Cologne in the evening. Oh, nobody had seen anything like this. The image was that of a peripatetic, all-powerful man who could be all places at all times. All of his appearances were carefully orchestrated. Uh, one of the things that they, they always did, the propaganda people always did, was to, to rent a hall that was too small. You never rent big space because even if you have a lot of people, if they're empty chairs, it doesn't look good. So they always rented a place that was too small, giving up the biggest auditorium in town for a smaller one. Then they would put loudspeakers on the outside for the standing room only crowd that gathered out front. Uh, during the course of the day, Nazis from all around would be bussed into the city, let's say Cologne, uh, so that from all over the Rhineland, people would be pouring into Cologne for Hitler's appearance at 7 o'clock that night, uh, coming from uh, Stuttgart, let's say, by plane. Then they would have warm-up acts. There would be the local Nazis who would speak, or maybe one of the top Nazi speakers. Uh, and then someone would rush into the room. By this time, there's a huge throng outside. They're hawking photographs. They're hawking autograph, uh, uh, photographs of Hitler, uh, phonograph records, the uh, uh, little copies of Mein Kampf. Um, 
And then someone would race into the auditorium and announce that the Fuhrer's plane had landed and that he was making his way to the auditorium. And then 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, he was always late, uh, the crowd being whipped up into a, a frenzy. Uh, then someone would race and say, the Fuhrer's uh, motorcade has arrived out front. More uh, hysteria. And then finally, Hitler would make his appearance. The only thing like this that one sees in uh, modern cultural life, that is, what one would say, not late 20th century, early 21st century life, is a rock concert. It, it is exactly the way it worked, with warm-up acts. If they'd had T-shirts with Hitler's pictures on it in those days, they would have sold them, and sold them by the score. All of this, as I said, very carefully orchestrated. Nonetheless, when the, ele when the final results were in from this runoff, uh, Hitler had received 36% of the vote. He had not beaten Hindenburg. Nobody expected him to. But what he had done was to separate himself from the pack of other anti-system candidates, people unhappy with Weimar. And Hitler now, had a, this was a tremendous infusion of, of uh, prestige for him. He was able to stand on the same stage, in a sense, as the, as the old field marshal. Uh, Reich President Hindenburg. Uh, at that point, Hitler had become the most visible person in German politics, period, even more than, than, than Hindenburg. People who'd not taken the Nazis or Hitler seriously began to. It was at this point, and only at this point, that the Nazis began receiving certain monies from, from big business. But not much, and not as much as uh, some other parties, the conservatives or one of the liberal parties received actually more. But if you were a businessman in those days, and, and, and uh, a corp, head of a corporation, a sort of insurance policy of, you know, giving you contribute. And the Nazis' anti-communist stance was quite popular in business circles. Their economic ideas seemed kind of bizarre. Nobody quite knew what they were up to. But uh, this was something uh, that business had to be careful about. But the presidential elections of 1932 were just the beginning. There would be four national campaigns in 1932, the two rounds of the presidential uh, uh, election. There would be a Reichstag campaign in June, July, and then another one uh, uh, in November. And in between, there were elections in every German state, uh, so that in April, uh, the Nazis won 36% of the vote in Prussia, 32% of the vote in Bavaria, 36% of the vote in Württemberg, 31% of the vote in Hamburg, which until this time had been considered a real communist stronghold. In short, and in, in a number of smaller states, then uh, the Nazis got 48% of the vote, 44% uh, of the vote in Hessen. It looked very much like this picture that the Nazis, this image the Nazis were trying to create of a dynamic leader, a dynamic movement that was just a landslide and trying to stop it was just uh, going against the wheel of history. If you got in the way, you were going to be crushed. The Nazis, indeed, seemed on the verge of something that had never happened in German political life, and that was a majority vote for one party. Meanwhile, the Bruning government in the spring of 1932 simply was at wit's end. It couldn't manage. Uh, it, was, uh, it was no closer to finding a solution to the depression that it had been at the beginning. All of these extremely unpopular measures, raising taxes, cutting benefits, cutting off unemployment, 
uh, making all this, this very stern castor oil sort of message uh, to the German population, tighten your belt, it's time to take this bitter medicine. It hadn't worked, and worse than that, uh, it had alienated more and more people. It seemed like the Weimar government simply couldn't cope with this issue. And, you know, the German economy was in a free fall. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. Every economic indicator was pointing straight down. So the sense at this point was of desperation. There was a palpable sense of desperation in the streets of Germany and confrontation and polarization with the left gaining strength. The communists had also picked up support in these regional elections, taking votes away from the moderate socialists, whereas the Nazis were picking up votes largely uh, from uh, middle-class parties, but with some workers as well. Business leaders were convinced that Brüning had to go. He hadn't been able to undo the Weimar welfare system. And people in the military, particularly General Kurt von Schleicher, uh, who was uh, an influential man in the military and with Hindenburg, couldn't understand why Brüning was unable to make a deal with the Nazis, to bring them on board in some capacity, to tame them to use them. Schleicher believed that the time had come to scrap the Weimar Constitution and establish a, a, an authoritarian regime. He believed that he could use the Nazis, build support with conservatives in the business community, in the military, and in agriculture, uh, use the Nazis to drum up support for this. And using his influence with Hindenburg, Schleicher convinced the field marshal to dump Brüning, who had done so much for Hindenburg over the past few years, and to uh, establish a, a government above parties, an authoritarian sort of government. He handpicked the man he wanted, and that was a man by the name of Franz von Papen, a man so obscure that even his Catholic center party colleague weren't quite sure exactly who he was. Papen uh, came out of obscurity. Hindenburg appointed him at Schleicher's suggestion as chancellor. Even the center party didn't support him. Um, Schleich, uh, Poppin talked about a, a government above parties, which was good because none of the parties supported him. The conservatives were reluctantly sort of drawn to him. His government, his cabinet was called the Cabinet of Barons because it was filled with uh, bank uh, executives and uh, uh, aristocrats. Uh, seven of the members were noblemen. Uh, and three were industrialists, uh, one a bank director. Uh, Poppin tried to send signals to business that he really meant business, that he was going to do what Bruning hadn't done, and that was to scrap the Weimar welfare system and hinted very broadly that what he wanted to do was get rid of parliamentary democracy at all. After all, it hadn't worked, had it? Who was defending democracy and its effectiveness in Germany in this awful summer of 1932? Virtually nobody. It hadn't worked. So new elections were called for July 31st, 1932. Poppin believed that he could win over the Nazis. He believed that he could win conservatives uh, to his side. And it was a miscalculation as great as Brunings had been back in, in 1930 when he had called elections. The Nazis tore into the Poppin government, attacked it as reactionary, not conservative, reactionary, uh, that it was not what Germany needed. And uh, the NSDAP once again pulled out uh, all the stops, 
conducted a very ambitious campaign. And when the dust settled uh, in, uh, on that Sunday uh, in July, the Nazis emerged with 38% of the vote. It, was the, it had become the largest party in Germany. And it came close to being what the Nazis always maintained that they were. They were not a class party like the communists or the socialists appealing to working class Germans, nor a bourgeois party like the liberals or the conservatives appealing to just middle class Germans, or the Catholic center appealing to workers and to middle class Germans, but Catholic workers and Catholic uh, entrepreneurs. The Nazis argued that they had become a true people's party, a Volkspartei. And it seemed, in fact, uh, that they had. They certainly had gotten votes from not only lower middle class Germans. Um, uh, the standard view until very recently of the Nazis had been that they were a party of the lower middle class, the sort of downwardly mobile, undereducated, economically marginal sort of people. Um, in an earlier day, I might have made a reference to Archie Bunker uh, uh, from All, All in the Family, the All in the Family program, but you get the, the picture. Uh, they appealed to farmers as well as to urban dwellers, and they did tremendously well with farmers. Uh, they also picked up a, a considerable vote from blue-collar workers, which no party had done other than the communists or socialists before. They didn't do so well with workers who had been in union industries, uh, heavy industry or coal mining, for example, but they did very well with workers in small shops, workers in small local factories. Um, so, in fact, they, they could make a claim with a certain amount of credibility that they were a Volkspartei, a people's party, an enigma in German politics, something above class, above region, above um, religion. There were still limits. They still didn't do as well with Catholic voters as they did with Protestants. This was true from the very beginning of the Nazi appearance on the, on the local scene in Munich. Uh, all the way down to 1932. Uh, part of the problem was this Nazi association with paganism. Uh, there was a Nazi philosopher named uh, Alfred Rosenberg who wrote a, an even more unreadable book than Mein Kampf called The Myth of the 20th Century in which he laid out uh, the argument that Christianity was really the flip side of the coin of Judaism, that they were both evil, both wrong, and the key was to go back to this ancient Germanic sort of, of religion. Well, you can imagine how this played uh, with uh, people with any sort of religious conviction uh, at all. Um, so, every Sunday morning, the elections in Germany took place on uh, Sundays, Every Sunday morning when there was an election, every Catholic priest in Germany would stand at the pulpit and say to their parishioners, it is inconsistent with being a Christian in good standing to vote either communist or Nazi. If you vote communist or Nazi, your soul's in peril. Needless to say, this had a dampening effect on Nazi popularity in, in Catholic areas. Um, and so one of the great goals of the party was to win over the church. And in 1932, they had made headway. Catholics were turning more and more to the Nazis, but still not in the numbers the Nazis wanted. And the Nazis were still not doing very well with workers, uh, industrial workers that had had a social democratic uh, past. Uh, 
And for the Nazis, the 32 elections were disappointments, the, the July elections were disappointments. Well, they had convinced themselves that this was the last election, that they really were going to get a majority. Everything pointed to it. And even though they had, uh, it was a great achievement in German politics to be now this Volkspartei, to have 38% of the vote. They were the biggest party. It still played badly in Nazi circles. The SA was unhappy. Hitler had promised this was the last election. So how are they, uh, how are they going to deal with a disaffected uh, SA? Uh, Hitler also came, was refused power by Hindenburg. He had an audience with the field marshal. Hindenburg hated him, absolutely despised that little bohemian corporal. Uh, he called Hitler. Hitler wasn't from Bohemia. Somehow this got in Hindenburg's mind and it never went away. Um, uh, Hitler played an all or nothing game. He demanded from Hindenburg to be named chancellor. He should have been in a way. The sort of the logic of parliamentary politics would have suggested that. Uh, Hindenburg refused because Hitler also wanted to be chancellor with presidential powers. He wanted to have access to Article 48 standing. He didn't want to have a coalition and Hindenburg refused. Parliamentary government in Germany had now become a farce. With 38% of the new uh, members of the Reichstag Nazis and over 15% communists, the two anti-parliamentary parties had a majority. So when the, par when the swearing in of the new parliament took place, uh, the head of the Reichstag was no longer a social democrat. The sort of speaker of the house, I guess we would call him, uh, was supposed to gavel the proceedings into order, recognize the chancellor, uh, and the majority party, or the top vote-getting party, always had that uh, position as speaker of the house, and it had been a social democrat. But now, it was that great parliamentarian, Hermann Goering, one of the leaders of the NSDAP. And Goering, before... Uh, the Reichstag could even be called into session, recognized a communist deputy who was shouting from the floor, the whole room was pandemonium, uh, shouting from the floor uh, to dissolve, wanted to dissolve the Reichstag. And Goering put it to a vote. The Nazis and the communists voted it out. And so the, the parliament, before it had even been in power, was kicked out. Parliamentary government in Germany had become a farce. And everybody knew it. And now, uh, there was no hope of any kind of majority without the communists or without the Nazis. There were new elections held in November. And in those elections, for the first time, the Nazis' vote suddenly dropped. They had run out of money, they had run out of energy, and it was possible to hold this very complex constituency of supporters together for a while a protest vote against the failed system, a protest vote against Weimar. But after a while, that, run, that appeal runs thin, and the Nazis knew that they had a window of opportunity to seize, and they hadn't done it. Their vote dropped to 33%, still the largest party, but a real crisis for uh, the Nazis. In a top-secret memorandum drawn up by Joseph Goebbels and his propaganda staff, he said, we've blown it. Uh, he had written in his diary back in March that uh, he said, if we don't come to power soon, we're going to win ourselves to death in these elections. And now that looked like exactly what was happening. The Nazi vote continued to drop in regional elections 
later in November and in December. It is therefore one of the most bitter and terrifying ironies of all of Western, indeed, world history that at the point when the Nazi constituency was beginning to fray, indeed to come apart, to unravel, that through a backdoor intrigue, Adolf Hitler would be named Chancellor on January 30th, 1933. And that we'll take up next time. Lecture 6, Hitler's Assumption of Power. Hello. This is our sixth lecture in our series on the history of Hitler's empire. Uh, and in this lecture, we want to talk about the uh, assumption of power by Hitler in January of 1933 and the extraordinary transformation uh, of a democracy that was certainly in crisis and indeed had a failed democracy, if you will, the transformation of what was left of the old Weimar Republic into a state with totalitarian aspirations, a process that would take less than a year. But before we move on to that, I want to close our discussion of, for really the first half of the course with some observations about the National Socialist Electorate and how Hitler in fact does become uh, Chancellor of Germany in 1933. Nothing is more obvious, I think, in history. We talked about this at the very outset, saying forget what you know, try to forget what you know, that no outcome is more obvious than the one that happened as we look back on it. But there is so much contingency, I think, is the sophisticated scholarly word that people use now for luck uh, involved, uh, being at the right place at the right time, the right uh, confluence of circumstances, which is certainly where Adolf Hitler found himself in 19. At 33. The Nazis themselves saw their popularity as very tenuous. They realized that they had a hard core of support among certain elements of the German Mittelstand or middle class. Uh, that was stable. But the others, Goebbels and Hitler, realized the millions who had poured into the party to vote for it, not to become members, which required dues and service to the party, but voted. The, probably the majority of the Nazi vote was a crisis-related vote of protest. It was not a commitment to National Socialist ideology. If support for the NSDAP was a mile wide, we talked about the width uh, of the Nazi support, the Volkspartei aspects of it, it was also at very many critical points an inch deep. And they understood this. The outcome of the 1932, November 1932 elections revealed that, that Nazi popularity in free elections could not necessarily be maintained at the July 1932 levels. The constituency, they understood, was just too diverse. You can only make contradictory promises to people for so long or to ask people to vote protest if you're mad at the liberals, if you're mad at the conservatives, they've failed. Well, why not vote for the Nazis? What could they do? We'll just, you know, get, let them in there and let them shake things up a little bit. How could it be worse? Well, you might get a voter to do that once. You might get him or her to do that twice, maybe even three times. But unless you come to power, unless you're able to change something, then that constituency 
will have a tendency to decompose. That's exactly what Goebbels meant when he said, in March, we've got to come to power soon or we're going to win ourselves to death in these elections. And that's what it looked like had happened. The NSDAP's constituency was, as I said, too diverse. Its promise is too contradictory. Its appeal too negative. The Nazis, as we've repeated over and over again, emphasized negative campaigning. What was wrong with the system? What was wrong with the Weimar system? It was corrupt. It didn't work. It couldn't solve economic problems. It had failed Germany in every way. It held out a positive vision of a classless society, a Volksgemeinschaft. But uh, that positive view tended to move to the side. In an interview with an American journalist, uh, Gregor Strasser, the second in command of the NSDAP, was asked, Herr Strasser, what, we understand what the NSDAP is against, but what's it for? Americans don't understand this. And Strasser, without missing a beat, without turning a hair, said, we're for the opposite of what exists today. And in the circumstances of 1932, that was not, that was a credible response. That was a credible response. When other parties would say, this is crazy, they can't make this work. It doesn't add up. The numbers don't work in their economic recovery plans and so on. Nazis couldn't care less. Hitler, Goebbels, Strasser, the others said, we'll make it work. The will will triumph. This is what's wrong with flabby liberalism uh, and inflexible conservatism, not to mention the Marxists who are beyond the pale. They're too rational. It takes will, and that's what we've got, and we will make this work. A vote then for the NSDAP in 1932 was to a very large extent a protest against a failed system, and not necessarily an endorsement of Nazi ideology. Now, don't get me wrong about this. There are plenty of people out there who were enthusiastic Nazis and supported the ideas, or what they thought the ideas were, of National Socialism. But these weren't, these weren't the people that transformed the NSDAP from a small uh, splinter party on the lunatic fringes of German politics. They'd been there all the time. It was the others. Uh, the ordinary, uh, the proverbial man and woman in the street who weren't necessarily evil or criminal, who weren't necessarily bad people, who thought, well, why not? Everything else has failed. What can these guys do that will be worse? Contrary to the image of an irresistible political movement being swept into power uh, by grassroots support, the view the Nazis had tried to project, in fact, uh, the NSDAP's electoral support was highly unstable, a political compound that was very volatile uh, and that could be maintained, I would argue, for only a limited period of time and under severe economic conditions. This is not simply my view, it's what they thought. Not the sort of Nazi in the street, but what people who were making the cold, hard-headed calculations in the propaganda department of the NSDAP thought. That secret report that Goebbels and his staff drew up saying we've blown it and Hitler's decision to not go into the government in August when he could have as a vice chancellor maybe said, concluded with the following lines, it said, above all else, it must not come to a new election. This was in December of 1932. It must not come to a new election. 
the results would be disastrous. But it ends on a high note, as these things always had to. The reverses of the party can be turned around uh, and the NSDAP can bounce back if Adolf Hitler succeeds in making himself the head of a political movement in power, head of the German government. Well, in December of 1932, nothing looked less likely than that. The party seemed to be coming apart in these regional elections, as we indicated. But even if the Nazi constituency was volatile and unstable, even if it was largely a protest vote, there were not many, many alternatives in December of 1932. And in fact, uh, after those elections, Poppin was unceremoniously booted out. He had no support now, and with the Nazis and the communists having majority. And Hindenburg reluctantly turned power over to Poppin's minister of defense, who was General Kurt von Schleicher. Schleicher believed that he could woo the Nazis, he could bring them into the government somehow, or coax rebellious Nazis away, those who were becoming disillusioned with the party. He believed he could win support among labor unions. This was a really crazy idea. A military man, a conservative, in fact a reactionary, winning support from the social democratic labor unions, not likely. That he, he would be able to woo support away from Hitler, also not very likely. Nonetheless, he pronounced an economic policy that was beyond liberalism uh, and uh, Marxism. In fact, nobody could figure out exactly what it was. And Schleicher was, not surprisingly, unable to generate any sort of enthusiasm in the population at all. Uh, and by January, it was clear that he had failed in his attempt uh, to form a new government. Poppen had been kicked out of office, largely pushed out by Schleicher. But he hadn't gone away. He'd remained on as an advisor to Hindenburg for reasons that nobody understands. Hindenburg had taken a real liking to Poppen. Um, there have been attempts to try to understand this. Nobody really can. Um, and so Poppen was a kind of advisor close to Hindenburg. And Poppen had decided that the thing to do was to intrigue against Schleicher and to get him out. Poppen then, working behind the scenes, engineered uh, a meeting uh, between Hitler and various conservative leaders, and it was Hitler agreed. He was now more malleable. He'd lost the election in November. Hitler agreed to go into a coalition government with Poppen. Hitler would supply the rank and file, the popular support, and Poppen would supply Hindenburg. He could convince the, elder, the old gentleman uh, to go along with this. They could not agree who would be chancellor and who would be vice chancellor. Uh, but nonetheless, they agreed. And on January 30th, 1933, Schleicher was forced to resign. And Poppen and Hitler went in for an audience with Hindenburg. They still hadn't agreed about who was going to be chancellor. This is how slapdash it was. Uh, and at the last second, in effect, Hitler was saying, you know, I'll take my marbles and go home. I'm chancellor. I'm not going to be vice chancellor. And Poppin agreed. So on January 30th, the impossible seemed to have happened. A party that had had less than 3% of the vote in the spring of 1928 had now found, had now managed to maneuver itself into power.
the appointment of Hitler as chancellor set off wild jubilation among Nazis. Uh, a lot of people who had, who had left the party began to return. There was a sense the SA, the stormtroopers thought, now the revolution has come. Now is the time we're going to smash uh, this corrupt Weimar system. There were torchlight parades all over Germany by the SA. The cabinet was an interesting one. Um, it was, there were only three Nazis in the new cabinet. Hitler as chancellor, rather important position. And then only two others, Hermann Goering and Wilhelm Frick. Frick was made Minister of the Interior, and that did not mean caring about trees and preservation of the snail darter. Uh, it meant control of the police, the FBI, the political police for Germany as a whole. And Hermann Goering was named Reich Commissar for the Ministry of the Interior of Prussia. Prussia, you have to remember, is three-fifths of Germany. It dominates all of northern Germany. That put Hermann Goering in charge of the police in Prussia. So, chancellor and then two positions which gave the Nazis control over the police. Critical positions. Uh, Poppen was vice-chancellor. Um, Hitler at first certainly wanted to seem, uh, didn't want to cause trouble. He was always afraid that something might happen and Hindenburg would change his mind. So he didn't want anyone to get the impression that a Nazi coup had taken place. So he was, he was um, uh, sweetness and light in dealing with uh, members of the new cabinet. Um, he didn't bring about a purge uh, at the local and regional level of police offices and so on. In fact, if you read through the contemporary accounts of these early days of this new government, it was called the Government of National Concentration, uh, the, if CNN had existed, or these various other international news organizations, the smart money, the pundits would be telling us that the real power behind the throne was Poppin, uh, not Hitler. That Hitler was sandbagged was the term. They'd gotten him in, he was now going to be the drummer. He would drum up support for this regime, but he was not the man who was calling the shots. That was Poppin. Hitler, while agreeing, being agreeable about virtually everything else, did say he wanted two things. He wanted the Reichstag dissolved and he wanted new elections. Poppen didn't want this because he could already see if there were new elections with Hitler in power, this would be a whole different situation than the November elections, but he gave in. And so new elections were called for March 5th, 1933. Before the campaign could get underway, however, the Nazis used a communist appeal for a general strike. Everybody was expecting a civil war. I mean, the tension in Germany was thick. Uh, there was a sense that there was, had to be a civil war with the communists rising against the Nazis. The Nazis expected it. Um, and indeed, the communists were uh, stockpiling weapons and so on. The call for a general strike on January 31st, the day after Hitler's appointment, Hitler used as a pretext to have Hindenburg allow him to issue an emergency decree that would go into effect on February 4th for, quote, the protection of the German people. It permitted a ban on all public meetings that if the government were brought into contempt or a, a ban on any a press article or newspaper that brought the government into contempt. Well, if you interpret this, I don't know what a narrow interpretation of that would be, but the one that the Nazis used was that any criticism at all was now an offense, and they could close down newspapers, which they did. 
socialist newspapers, communist newspapers, or moderate newspapers. On February 5th, an uh, emergency decree dissolved the Pru all elected bodies in Prussia, and all power was shifted to the provisional, go the new government. Um, this is important because it placed uh, the new government in charge of all sort of judiciary as well as police matters in the state of Prussia. You think, all right, so there's this first emergency decree, then another day later, uh, 14 police chiefs in Prussia were forced to resign and were replaced by na Nazis or conservatives, and whole groups of local and regional officials were gradually forced out as a result. The government had, in effect, banned political activity, campaign activity by the left, whether the Social Democrats or the Communists. Their papers were banned, uh, and SA terror against the left now was just given the green light. Uh, these SA bully boys who'd been fighting the Communists and the Social Democrats in the streets for years now were, in effect, told it's open season uh, for, against the Communists. Um, then, on the evening of February 27th, 28th, an event occurred which dramatically altered the course of events. In the middle of the night, the Reichstag building in Berlin caught on fire. Um, the large glass dome center section of this enormous building flame was gutted, flames shot out, the building uh, was really in terrible shape. Uh, when the police and fire people got into this building, they couldn't find anybody. They thought, the Nazis were absolutely convinced this was it. This was the first shot in the communist revolution. The communist uprising had arrived. But the police could find only one person running around in the Reichstag building, uh, smelling heavily of kerosene. Uh, a Dutchman named Martinus van der Lube, who uh, was mentally deficient. He had some tenuous connection to the Dutch Communist Party, but they couldn't find any uh, to the Communists in, in Germany. In the middle of the night, on February 27, 28, the, the Nazis drafted what was called the Reichstag Fire Decree for the protection of the people and the state. Quote, to guard against communist acts of violence endangering the state. The decree basically ended all civil rights guaranteed by the Weimar Constitution, freedom of the press, freedom of expression, freedom of association, the secret, secrecy of the mail and the telephone, all now uh, were lost. The government was declaring martial law in effect and even beyond that. This would become, this Reichstag fire decree drawn up in the middle of the night would come, become the constitutional basis for Nazi actions. It gave the government all the authority they needed uh, to destroy their enemies. The communists, of course, denied that they had anything to do with the Reichstag fire uh, and said, it wasn't us. Everybody can see the Nazis set it on fire. Look what they've done. They've come in with this Reichstag fire decree. They set the fire and now they've used this as the pretext to, in effect, declare martial law. The Nazis flatly denied it, of course. Goering himself was made uh, a special prosecutor, the first one that I know of, uh, and uh, to try the case. 
And even the Nazis couldn't trump up enough evidence against the communists to link them to it at all. And although it seems highly unlikely in retrospect, the historical verdict has largely come to be that Martinez von der Lubbe, acting alone, set the Reichstag on fire. Now, this is not just one of those sort of historical mysteries uh, that show up on TV. The importance of it is, is, is not so much who set the fire. It's that the Nazis, um, what the Nazis made of it, and that they were able to act like this, they improvised. This would turn out to be a hallmark of Nazi activity all the way through the Third Reich was improvisation, not acting according to some sort of blueprint for action, but seeing a situation, seeing the potential of a situation, acting. Uh, it's not even clear that the Nazis themselves realized in the middle of the night, February 27th to 28th, what the meaning of all of that was, but they quickly, they quickly said, well, look, this wasn't the beginning of a communist uprising, but now we have this authority by emergency decree and we can move against them. On March 2nd, 1933, Goering, the chief law enforcement officer of Germany, made his objective quite clear. It will be my chief objective, he said in public, to expunge the pestilence of communism and all along the line we are moving on to the attack. The communists didn't expect that 48 hours after the fire already 2,000 of their top swindlers would be sitting behind bars. I don't need the Reichstag fire to move against communism, and I'm not betraying any secret when I say that if it were left to Hitler and me, the perpetrators would already be swaying on the gallows. Then, on the following day, a directive to the, the police authorities, uh, in that directive, he instructed them to interpret the Reichstag fire decree broadly. The police were to move against the communists, but, quote, also against those who work with the communists or support or further, even indirectly, the criminal goals, close quote. In other words, anybody that the police wanted, anybody that they thought might be connected, could be arrested for indirectly having furthered these goals. In the days that followed these directives, summary arrests of communist officials took place, probably about 10,000 in Prussia uh, by March 25th. We don't know the exact numbers. Also, Social Democrats were being arrested, not the top leaders, but the mid-level bureaucrats of the party, so that, as uh, uh, Goering once said, we'll cut them off at the knees, so that the, the head of the party could, make, could give orders, uh, but it would never reach the rank and file because that mid-level uh, of party activists would be gone. They began to be arrested in great numbers. In the election of March 5th, then, which occurred two days later, the Nazis with, uh, were running against a left that was greatly weakened by the arrests and by the harassment of uh, party members and leaders. And yet on March 5th, the NSDAP failed to get a majority. It got 44% of the vote. In some election and polling places, uh, SA men uh, standing there in their best bully boy fashion uh, would see a line of people uh, ready to vote and would simply say, um, uh, it's a Sunday, I know you've got plans, you've got other things to do than standing around here, it's taking a long time inside to vote. Is there anybody in this crowd who does not plan to vote for the government of national concentration? 
well, some intrepid souls may have said yes. Uh, but uh, he said, well, all right, we've counted, you can all leave. And even with that, they didn't get a majority. Uh, the conservatives, a party associated now with Poppin, uh, got 8% of the vote. And so together, the Nazis and the conservatives had a coalition majority. And following that, Hitler had what he, had what he needed. He banned the Communist Party. Uh, and on March 12th, uh, introduced a new flag, actually a black, red, and white one to get rid of the old Weimar flag, the black, red, and gold, or as the Nazis put it, the black, red, and yellow uh, flag of, of Weimar. Um, and on March 21st, 1933, he was sworn in as chancellor in a great ceremony at uh, the Garrison Church in Potsdam. Hindenburg was invited to come to wear his military uniform from the war. The high command of the German army, not a usual crew for the swearing in of a government, was invited. This was a bow to the army to tell them, I'm going to, and this whole business with Hindenburg to say, we're really going to restore the old uh, German honor. We're not really radical revolutionaries. We're really, we believe in the old values. It's a very famous photograph of Hitler meeting Hindenburg on the steps before being sworn in. Hitler's wearing a top hat and tails. Uh, the hat's off and Hitler's bending down to shake hands with Hindenburg, who looks about eight feet tall in the photograph wearing his Pickelhaupe, his pointed helmet, and so on, standing like this. The photograph was, Hitler did it on purpose. It was extremely important. It was to show respect for Hindenburg. And on that speech, accepting um, uh, the, uh, accepting his position as chancellor, Hitler called for a new law called the Enabling Act. Uh, that would give the new government of national concentration uh, power to enact legislation for a five-year period. It could have been 20 or 30 for all that mattered, uh, or one-year period, uh, without having this to re the, uh, resort to Article 48, which, after all, required Hindenburg still to sign off. That enabling act uh, was passed on March 21st, Without the communist votes in the Reichstag, the party had been banned. Hitler waited until after the election so he could run against them first, the communist menace, then banned them so that he would have a two-thirds majority in the Reichstag uh, for the passage of this enabling act. Um, and once that was in place, the government now had all the authority it needed. On May 1st, uh, the Nazis declared, well, bef just a bit before May 1st, they declared May Day to be a national holiday. Even the Social Democrats hadn't been able to do this during the Weimar era to celebrate German labor. That night, uh, the stormtroopers uh, moved in uh, and seized Union offices all over the country. One of the things that had happened uh, in the meantime was that Goering had said, you know, we don't have, we don't have enough manpower to deal with, and the police to deal with all of the, the, the turmoil in the streets caused by the communists. We need auxiliary police. Well, where was he going to find auxiliary police? Ah, the SA. So all over Germany, the SA was sworn in as auxiliary police uh, and went about now their business of now, in addition to having their swastika armband on the left arm, they had a white armband on the right to show that they were now the police. The criminals were running the prison. On July 14th, 
The Nazis introduced a law banning all political parties other than the NSDAP. The police were brought into line under Heinrich Himmler, head of the SS, um, who on his own, without authorization from Hitler, acting completely sort of like a medieval vassal on his own, simply went out uh, to Bavaria, to Baden, to Württemberg and said, uh, the Fuhrer wants me to, uh, implied that the Fuhrer wanted him to organize police activities in Germany, and surely they didn't have any objection, did they? And since he was known to be part of the inter-entourage, local police officials, local Nazi police officials said, of course, you know. And so Himmler acting on his own. Again, it was improvisation. It wasn't the blueprint in what would become the central pillar of the Third Reich. The Gestapo would ultimately be brought under Himmler's control. The press, the radio, the schools, the universities, one by one, fell to National Socialist control. And in a real coup, the NSDAP, the new government of Germany, signed a concordat with the Vatican. This was extremely important. Catholics still remained the largest potential opponents of the regime. In the concordat, the Nazis promised to leave the church alone, not to... Uh, to uh, infiltrate its organizations or ban them and so on, and in return, the church dropped its ban on the NSDAP. Only the army and Hindenburg himself remained potential threats to the Nazis by the end of 1933. That threat was removed in the summer of 1934, in June, when Röhm, Ernst Röhm, the head of the SA, was arrested and killed at Hitler's order, and the power of the SA, the stormtroopers, was broken. The Nazis, Hitler decided, didn't need the SA anymore. They didn't need the communists roughed up anymore, the socialists. They were all sitting in, in a new institution, a concentration camp, uh, or had fled the country. They didn't need this kind of rowdy organization, this militia. They needed a, 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 a something else. The revolution, Hitler said, was over. They'd won. They had power. They had complete power. Hitler needed the army, which was always nervous about the SA. The SA had over a million members. The army had 100,000. So for the old army leaders, uh, they wanted the power of the SA broken. Röhm, the head of the SA, always talked about making this a people's army and shoving the old army aside. Hitler was making a choice. He needed the army. He needed big business, which was also not happy with the SA and their talk, rough talk about social revolution. So this night of long knives was greeted in both places. On August 2nd in 1934, Hindenburg died. And at his death, Hitler assumed the office of president and chancellor, and the army swore a, a, an oath of allegiance, not to the Constitution, whatever that would have been at this point, but to Adolf Hitler personally. By the summer of 1934, the Nazis had achieved the basis of a totalitarian state, a state that would have complete, have a claim on the complete individual. No sources of opposition were out there. We don't know, but about, about a half a million people had disappeared into prison or into these new institutions, concentration camps, the first of which was opened at Dachau in April of 1933, front page news. The NSDAP, a party with totalitarian aspirations, now had that total control.
Lecture 7, Racial Policy and the Totalitarian State. Hello and welcome to the seventh in our lectures on uh, the history of Hitler's empire. We had stopped in our last lecture with the establishment of the National Socialist Dictatorship, Hitler's assumption of power, uh, and the bringing into line of German society. We had seen that how by the end of 1933 the party had already achieved virtually total power, and that by the end of, the, by the end of uh, 1934 the last restraints, uh, the army, uh, the presence of Reich President Hindenburg had also been removed, so that the Nazis now stood on the verge of being able to realize whatever plans they might have, the unfolding of their ideology. Indeed, for the first year or so of the National Socialist reign, uh, their, their concentration was focused on seizing and then consolidating power. It would only be gradually, but certainly after the summer of 1934, that the real core of National Socialist ideology would emerge in increasingly crystalline fashion, uh, particularly with regard to racial policy, and is, is about racial policy that I want to speak in this lecture. But before turning to that, I want to talk a little bit about totalitarianism uh, and the nature of the society in which these racial policies unfolded. Um, one of the most difficult things to do in historical analysis, I think we may have referred to it, is to keep the simultaneity of events uh, in front of you. Uh, that successes in foreign policy often, as we will see, correspond to some of the ugliest aspects of Nazi racial policy. Uh, and so these things have to be calibrated so that one understands how something that one would think would draw enormous public attention could in some ways be swept to the side while greater attention was focused on great foreign policy victories, let's say. And uh, there's something else that I think needs to be emphasized about the society in which these racial policies would, uh, in which these uh, racial policies would emerge, and that is the nature of what totalitarianism was. It wasn't simply, as we've said before, a regime with a claim to the total person, a regime which wants to uh, efface the distinction between public and private life. It is also a regime that believes, that has an ideology and believes that it's discovered the key to all human history, the key to the past, the present, and a guide for the future. In the case of the Soviet Union under Stalin, which one could also make a case for being a regime of totalitarian aspirations, they believed that uh, the um, dialectical materialism was the key, class, class struggle was the key to uh, the dynamics of all human history. For the Nazis, it would become clear in the course of the 1930s that it was race that was the key uh, to understanding human history. And the Nazis would attempt to take a racial ideology and translate that into policy. This is not an obvious thing, how one takes ideas, ideology, and translates them into policy, and that's something we want to address. So the regime, with its claim to the total person, and having an ideology in which it believes so fanatically that, that uh, the whole system of morality is shifted. Anything that will uh, keep the party, the movement, the state, on the historical straight and narrow uh, is morally just. 
And if that means breaking all sorts of rules, then so be it. If it means going against traditional morality, uh, Judeo-Christian morality, okay. These extraordinary goals require extraordinary measures. At the same time that this ideology is becoming increasingly clear, uh, the system would work also uh, in, in terms of its ideological goals with propaganda, hammering away in a positive sense about the regime. What's it doing? What's it doing for Germany in addition to these larger ideological goals? Constantly hammering away at good news uh, about what the new regime has done. There's no such thing as bad news reported in the press, not in this sort of uh, regime. And if the relentless positive propaganda is not enough, there's always the system of terror that would be uh, unleashed between 1933 and 1945. The SS, the Gestapo, the state secret police uh, would uh, be given authority to ferret out enemies of the state and of the party uh, wherever though they might exist uh, and to take extraordinary measures against them. Indeed, the concentration camps to which we alluded uh, with the establishment of Dachau in 1933, those camps in Germany were used for political prisoners in the period before uh, the war, German political prisoners. The Gestapo got this down to a, a, a science, discovering that uh, the best time to arrest people was in the middle of the night, between 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning to be quite exact. Uh, that you would go, uh, people were more vulnerable then, go knock on the door, uh, go in, take the person out. Um, this served several purposes. It made the person, more, the victim more vulnerable, take him down to Gestapo headquarters for questioning. But it also, the neighbors didn't really quite see it. They might hear it out in the hallway in the apartment building. So that the next morning, they said, did you hear, I think that Frau Schmidt had a visitor last night. And this was not a romantic call. Uh, men in leather coats. I wonder what's, what's going on. Maybe Frau Schmidt is not reliable. Uh, people became cautious, didn't speak to one another as much about this sort of thing. Uh, the Gestapo also found that um, people were more than willing to inform on their neighbors. So that if you had a grudge against a neighbor whose dog barked all through the night, you'd complain to the neighbor many times, it didn't work, neighbor didn't do anything, then you might make an anonymous phone call down to Gestapo headquarters in your town or village, and that person would be dragged in for questioning about unsocial behavior. It wouldn't be dog barking, but something else. They also discovered that uh, there were brave people who were willing to take a risk, people willing to throw their lives away uh, to express their opposition to the regime. Of course, if you do something, an act of opposition, and it's not reported in the press, it's not on the radio, uh, what does it do? The Nazis, they were, but there were people who would do that, who were that courageous, lots of them. But the Nazis also introduced something called Zippenhaft, which meant that not only would they arrest you, but your husband, your children, your parents, possibly other relatives, possibly other friends. And they knew that although there were very many brave people who were willing to give their life away, there weren't quite so many people who were willing to see their children consigned to a concentration camp or their husband or wife or parents. So this system of terror was always in place. 
Then there was also the ideology, the relentless good news to balance uh, the uglier features of the regime. The Third Reich was a constant, uh, was constantly drumming on uh, this good news. Um, and the enthusiasm of the population. Everybody was behind the regime. There was no opposition expressed. So that if you had opposition, if you had doubts, if you had questions, who did you get to talk to them about? You couldn't write a letter to the editor. If you went to, with friends that you, you know, people you'd known all your life, you sit down and you suddenly discover that people are a little warier about saying things. You might tell a joke one day. There were lots of jokes in the Third Reich. Flister, uh, Flistovitsa, they were called, whispered jokes. Um, a joke about racial policy that says, yes, I'm an Aryan. I'm blonde like Hitler. Uh, I'm tall like Goebbels, who was about 5'5", five, five, and slender like Goering, who must have weighed about 270 pounds at, at later on in his life. You might say this, tell this joke at the pub one night. Everybody laugh. Uh, and then you might tell it at another pub two days later, and everybody would laugh. And then that night there would be a on the door, and it would be the Gestapo. Uncertainty. Uncertainty, confusion. People were left with no fixed points of orientation. There was no reality in Germany that was not National Socialist reality. So if you thought, what, if you were opposed to some aspect of the regime's policy, and nobody else seemed to be, you couldn't read about it anywhere, you couldn't see it anywhere, you couldn't talk to friends about it, Maybe it's you who's out of step. Maybe you're being an alarmist. There was a very famous quote uh, by a German uh, clergyman uh, who said, uh, uh, at first they went after the communist, uh, and I was not a communist, uh, and so I did nothing. Then they went after the socialist, uh, and I was a little uneasier, but I wasn't a socialist, and so I did nothing. Then they went after the church, and I was a churchman, but then it was too late. Little by little, the Nazis called it salami tactics. If you don't stop at step A, why stop at step B? If you don't cause trouble at step C, why not D? Until you finally find yourself corrupted by the regime and compromised by it. Uh, as one person said, it was like watching, it's like a farmer watching corn grow in his field that you don't notice it at all day to day. You're busy doing your own job, keeping your nose clean, keeping out of trouble, pursuing your career, worrying about your kids' education, etc. And But then suddenly the farmer looks around and the corn is over his head. And this is the way it was for a great many people uh, in Germany. And all around the good news. The media was dominated uh, by the Nazis and there were all these Nazi activities, the great national celebration for the Fuhrer's birthday on April 20th. The Beer Hall Putsch was celebrated as if it had been a great historic event for the Nazis every year. The party rally in September, which was like a big convention that went on for a week, was obviously the high point of the Nazi calendar with great fanfare. Social life was now organized. Boys were introduced into the Hitler Youth. Girls into the Bund Deutscher Mädel, the League of German Girls. Women into the National Socialist uh, Women's Organization the National Socialist Student League, the National Socialist Teachers League, the National Socialist Attorneys Organization, the National Socialist Physicians League, you get the picture. All had their own special badges, uh, their own flags, slogans, and so on. My favorite one 
is, quote, barbers too face great tasks. Um, so this positive imagery uh, over and over again, also of Hitler the populist, Hitler uh, with a spade out in the opening of the, of the uh, big uh, Autobahn, the, the multi, the big superhighways that were introduced, Hitler at the Harvest Festival, he was a man of the people. Who could be opposed to this? There was no trouble out on the streets anymore. The communists were gone. There weren't pitched battles anymore. The unemployed would slowly disappear from the streets because they would be drafted into something called the labor front, given uniforms and shovels which they handled with a manual of arms like a, a weapon in the army. All of this created an environment in which the National Socialists could introduce other policies uh, which would be much more controversial, and the most obvious one would be racial policy. It was racial policy. Of all the things the Nazis had talked about before 1933, of all the different aspects of Nazi ideology, Nazi campaign promises, Nazi social promises, anti-Semitism had been one of the various threads in Nazi appeal. No one could have had any doubt about Nazi fanatical anti-Semitism. This was upfront, obvious. It wasn't in so many ways the essence of National Socialism, and yet I think an aspect of, of the party's propaganda that people took less seriously than they did the appeals uh, on social and economic issues and on this negative campaigning, the anti-system aspect of the party's um, propaganda. It would emerge as the central core of Nazi ideology after 1933. There are several phases of racial policy that one can, especially Jewish policy, that one can identify uh, as a way of organizing one's thinking about the regime and the evolution of its policy. From in the first phase from 1933 down to 1935, uh, there was an initial burst of legislation in 33 we'll talk about. There was an attempt to boycott Jewish businesses, which was called off abruptly. Um, elimination of Jews from civil service jobs, the practice of law and medicine and so on. But after an initial burst of activity in early 33, there was nothing really coming from the national regime. There were things called individual actions, Einzelaktionen is the German term, local Nazi rowdies, local Nazi fanatics who would harass and humiliate Jews in public uh, without any sort of authorization from above, but on their own. In 1935, those Einzelaktionen, those individual actions against Jews, were largely uh, pushed aside and a more orderly form of anti-Semitism to be introduced by the government. Uh, this was a, part, uh, a period that would be dominated by a policy of segregation and immigration. That is, in 1935, the Nazis would introduce a series of laws called the Nuremberg Laws, which would, in effect, make Jews non-citizens of Germany. This was the segregation, Jews being losing their civil rights uh, and being treated not as citizens, but subjects of the Third Reich. And policy in the mid-30s, the, the period when the SS would emerge for the first time as the real leader in Nazi racial policy, the policy was to uh, encourage Jews to leave. And this was not like the Soviet Union after the Second World War, where it was difficult for Jews to get out. Official Nazi policy was to encourage them to leave. 
albeit leaving virtually all of their belongings, all of their uh, property and money behind. And of course, Jews wishing to leave did not exactly find a welcoming, hospitable world out there willing to take them in. In 1938, uh, policy would shift again. Uh, at the beginning of 38, the Nazis began a series of, introduced a series of measures to identify Jewish assets in Germany. It was clearly the prelude to some sort of seizure of Jewish assets. The regime was moving, trying to get prepared for uh, 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 some sort of wartime economy. And then in November of 1938 uh, would come, uh, in, in many ways, the most uh, pivotal and terrifying moment of Nazi racial policy before the war, and that was the so-called Night of Broken Glass, the Reichskristallnacht in November of 1938, which was the first nationally organized act of violence against Jews, a pogrom. Uh, authorized and conducted by the regime itself. The final phase of Nazi policy would be the war itself. The war would bring, first of all, the Nazis uh, into contact with the largest Jewish populations in Europe, in Poland and in the Soviet Union. And Nazi victories over Poland and the Soviet Union, at least it seemed that the Nazis were winning the war against the Soviets, gave the Nazis a, a, an expanding horizon of possibility there. And the Nazis began seeking what they called a final solution to the Jewish question. That final solution, of course, would be mass murder. So those are the phases of Nazi racial policy that would be introduced piecemeal. One of the controversies surrounding uh, racial policy before the war, before one can really talk about the Holocaust, is whether the Nazis were acting according to some sort of game plan. Was there a blueprint for action? Did Hitler enter power already with the idea that uh, the elimination, he wanted to eliminate the Jews. This was clear. It was there in his first, you can recall that first document, that first written document we have of Hitler's political life where he talks about the goal was to eliminate the Jews altogether. Well, what did that mean? What did it mean? What did he think it meant? What did his paladins think it meant? Did it mean mass murder? Did it mean physical extermination? Did it mean forcing Jews to leave Germany? Uh, did it mean setting up a colony for Jews? This was something that was talked about with the so-called Madagascar plan that we'll talk about during the war or some sort of Jewish reservation system far out in the Soviet Union after the Soviet Union had been defeated. Um, was this something that, is there a straight line from the pages of Mein Kampf to the ovens at Auschwitz? And that the Nazis may have tacked this way and tacked that way as the circumstances of the exigencies of politics demanded, but that basically the target was there from the beginning and it's just a step-by-step -step implementation. Or uh, is, the, is that more, a much more complicated, uh, is there a more complicated explanation that's required? Um, one that certainly says, yes, there's an ideological direction to policy, but it doesn't, necessar it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, this particular outcome, there are lots of possible outcomes. When Khrushchev pounded his shoe on the table uh, and said uh, to the West, we will bury you, did he mean that literally? 
Uh, we're going to destroy you with a massive attack and we'll bury you. Did he mean over the course of a century that the socialist system would overcome capitalism, that capitalism was doomed? What did he mean? How does one translate that into policy? This is a problem for all governments, not just uh, these totalitarian ones or authoritarian ones. How does one take a public opinion poll that shows people are in favor of, let's say, national health care and then turn it into an actual policy? Once you start doing that, you see there are all these varieties of possibilities and all these problems that come up. And this is exactly what many have argued happens with the National Socialists, that they didn't necessarily have a clear idea of what was meant by elimination, and that elimination, meaning physical extermination, was as much a result of complicated bureaucratic politics within the regime as it was the ideology itself. There are smart ways to argue either of these positions, and there are not so smart ways to argue them, and we, we will certainly be looking at those. But let's turn our attention to this first phase of racial policy from 1933 to 35. On April 1st, the Nazis introduced a boycott of Jewish shops. It was intended to be open-ended, go on indefinitely. Uh, there was crazy reasoning behind it, sort of inverted logic about it, which was that the international Jewish press was spreading atrocity stories about the New Germany and that therefore one way to show that this wasn't true was to boycott Jewish shops. It was retaliation. Uh, it was a disaster from beginning to end. Um, it was unpopular at home. Uh, the German population by all reports from foreign diplomats and so on uh, reported that it was not popular. Uh, it was one thing to listen to the Nazis go on about anti-Semitism, another to see these SA bully boys out in front of a Jewish bakery with whom your family has traded forever and seeing them outside there uh, forcing the Jewish proprietor to scrub the sidewalk with a toothbrush. Uh, this did not play well. And of course it didn't play well abroad either. It was cold off after 24 hours. They'd overstepped. There were dismissals in the civil service, in the courts, newspapers, universities fired people just assuming that this is what the Nazis wanted them to do. Getting ahead of the game, ahead of the curve. Uh, all the schools in Germany were state schools. They were all so all teachers from kindergarten through the university were civil servants. And so when the Nazis banned Jews from holding civil service positions, that meant all people all the way down the line. Jews were not allowed to, uh, laws were introduced uh, saying that Jews could not, uh, uh, could not take the bar, could not practice law. Jewish doctors could only treat Jewish patients. Um, these attempts in 1933 to take active steps, even brought a response from Hindenburg, who said, who wrote a letter, a public letter to Hitler saying, surely you don't mean to say that Jewish veterans of the Great War are going to lose their jobs in the civil service or their, their ability to practice law. And the Nazis backtracked and said, oh no, of course not, uh, not, not veterans. Uh, which indicates, again, in early 33, the sensitivity that Hitler had to Hindenburg. Um, 
a law for the restoration of the professional civil service was passed in April of 33, uh, removing non-Aryans. Nobody knew what that meant. There was no working definition of it. Uh, and it was finally decided that one Jewish grandparent meant that you were Jewish and therefore you were not Aryan. Uh, people began scrambling for family trees, doing genealogy. The National Socialist Germany was a, was a boon for genealogists. A law limiting Jewish access to the, to the schools uh, was introduced. Uh, a law uh, on revocation of naturalization uh, and annulment of German citizenship was passed. A great many Eastern European Jews had moved into Germany uh, during the Weimar years. One of the terrible, terrible ironies of uh, Nazi racial policy and then ultimately the terrible ghastly results of it, was that Germany in the period before the First World War and through the 1920s had been seen as a great haven, particularly for Eastern European Jews. Outside the United States, it's the place that Eastern European Jews uh, came because Jews enjoyed equal rights. Full, it was the most integrated Jewish community uh, in Europe. Um, this, this law revoked the citizenship of those Polish, Russian, Ukrainian, and so on, Jews who'd come to Germany, uh, particularly in the 1920s. Uh, and those people were then supposedly supposed to be returned to Poland. Only the Polish government wouldn't accept them back. A hereditary farm law uh, introduced. No one could inherit a farm unless he could show that there was, he had no Jewish blood going back to 1800. This was, nobody understood quite exactly how this would work out. Uh, this is why family trees became extremely important. Uh, it's in this context, too, that one has to see the Nuremberg Laws of 1935. After this first burst of legislation that the Nazis passed, the national government seemed to lose interest in the question altogether. Mainly, I think, because they were concentrating, Hitler and company were concentrating on consolidation of power. As a consequence, they were very happy to let local Nazis run amok, the Einzelaktionen, the local harassment of Jews, without the national government having to do much. But by 19, the summer of 1935, this had gotten quite out of hand. The Nazis were in charge now. The Minister of the Interior, Frick, said, you know, we can't allow this. People are just taking the law, party members are taking the law into their own hands. We can't have it. Uh, we have to bring these Einzelationen under control. And there was another factor, too, and that was that Germany had been awarded the Olympic Games for 1936. And the last thing this government wanted to do was to have hundreds of uh, international journalists descending upon Berlin and traveling around the country and being treated to these unbelievably ugly sights uh, of the harassment of, of Jewish shopkeepers and so on. It's in this context then that one must view the Nuremberg Laws of 1935. They were announced at the Nuremberg Party rally. Um, Suddenly and unexpectedly, uh, Hitler had wanted to end the rally with a big speech on foreign policy, but at the last minute changed his mind and said, uh, he, he, for policy reasons, he couldn't do it. What he wanted, he said then, was what about something on race? So the bureaucrats in Berlin who'd been working up some things on this scrambled around. The first drafts of the Nuremberg Laws were written on napkins in a beer hall in Nuremberg. Um, 
came up with laws which came to be known as the Nuremberg Laws. Law for the protection of German blood and German honor. That law forbade marriages between Aryans and Jews. Uh, it banned sexual relations between Aryans and Jews. Um, and Jews were not allowed to employ women under 45 in their households. This is your typical basic racism 101 to attribute to Jews, uh, you know, the voracious sexual appetite of Jewish males who were going to devour uh, pure Aryan women. Not only that, the laws were made retroactive. So you can imagine what this meant. Somebody would call up the Gestapo with an anonymous uh, tip. Uh, Frau Braun, back in 1928, had an affair with her Goldfarb. Nobody could prove it, but the phone call was been made. So you can see the chicanery that could come of this, people instrumentalizing the laws. Um, and the Rice Citizenship Law, um, which that was announced but not promulgated until a bit later, distinguished between a subject and a citizen. Jews were not allowed to be citizens of the Third Reich. Um, there were some problems with this, with the Reich Citizenship Law, uh, and that is that who is Jewish? The regime couldn't agree. Certain party officials wanted it to be three Jewish grandparents meant you were Jewish. State officials, all Nazis too, said one Jewish grandparent, or the other way around, I'm sorry, one Jewish grandparent versus three. Uh, the party wanted one. Other officials wanted three. Nobody could agree. They went to Hitler. Hitler wouldn't decide. This was quite typical. He said, I can't, he can't be bothered with these sorts of things. Uh, his idea was to let them fight it out. And so for years this went on, who's Jewish and who's not. There was different gradations, Jew first, uh, Michelin Estegrad, a mixture of the first degree, Jewish, one Jewish parent. Finally, it was decided that, that it took three Jewish grandparents to be considered a Jew, or just two Jewish grandparents if, you had a, uh, if one of them was practicing religious. So it's both racial and in this bizarre uh, sort of thing. In the mid-30s, it would be the SS, after the Nuremberg Laws, didn't solve the so-called Jewish problem. The SS now would step in and become the major agency dealing with the Jewish issue. Their policy was one called Entjudung. It's a very, very ugly word in German, and it's just as ugly in English. It means de-Jewification. Get the Jews out. Eliminate the Jews from Germany by encouraging them to leave, to make life unpleasant enough so that they would seek a haven elsewhere. This was SS policy and the policy that Germany would pursue down to the critical year of 1938, uh, where uh, the party began attempting to identify Jewish assets in order to um, seize them down the road. And then would come this awful event in November of 1938, the Reichskristallnacht. I'm going to stop here because I want to talk about the events of the Kristallnacht in November alongside the foreign policy issues because these events take place, this event in particular, in the aftermath of Hitler's greatest foreign policy triumph. And the two were mixed together uh, in German consciousness. So what might have been seen as the ugliest, the most obvious, miserable act 
of oppression by the regime comes at a time when Hitler had just achieved his greatest foreign policy victory. We'll take up foreign policy in our next lecture. Lecture 8, Hitler's Foreign Policy. Hello and welcome to our eighth lecture uh, on the history of Hitler's empire. We spoke in our last lecture about the evolution of Nazi racial policy from 1933 up to uh, the Kristallnacht in November of 1938. And I'd begun by saying that one of the most difficult things we're asked to do in history is to juggle simultaneity of events, to keep uh, events uh, the way people might have seen them at the time. Now, having traced uh, one of the most controversial features of Nazi domestic policy through the 1930s, I want to turn now to Nazi foreign policy, because it was Nazi foreign policy, in particular Hitler's very prominent association with it, uh, that was one of the most popular aspects of the regime. The Nazis had come to power, of course, with their program of restoring German grandeur, undoing the hated Treaty of Versailles, um, restoring the German military to a position of prominence for Germany once again to take its place among the powerful nations of the world. Um, and between 1933 and 1938, he would register a series of extremely impressive foreign policy victories that in many ways overcame the, the uh, reservations that some had uh, about uh, his government and particularly domestic policy. One often hears things about uh, Nazi foreign policy and Hitler's conception of it in particular, the sort of madman's rush for world domination, uh, a sort of boundless adventurism, determination to expand at all costs uh, across Europe and then possibly around the globe. Uh, there was a very famous S.A. song uh, that contributed this. Um, the song uh, went... I'll say it in German first, don't worry, I'm not going to sing, would say it, uh, I'll say it in German first, which is, Heute da hut uns Deutschland und morgen die ganze Welt. That means, today Germany is listening to us, and tomorrow the whole world will. But in German, it's just with a very slight change of a prefix, is, Heute gehut uns Deutschland und morgen die ganze Welt, which means, today Germany belongs to us, and tomorrow the whole world will. Uh, and that was the sense, I think, one has of Nazi foreign policy, of Hitler being absolutely maniacal and fanatic in his determination driven by ideological goals that would drive Germany toward war. But this is not, I think, the picture that Hitler presented to the German public. And Hitler operated on the basis of his own notion of the international system. He had a conception of foreign policy. He certainly had basic goals. These were laid out uh, in the uh, 25 points of the NSDAP in 1920. Lebensraum in the East, living space in the East. Germany, uh, Hitler argued, was a Volk ohne Raum, a, a, a people without space. And 
traditionally, Germans have looked eastward uh, at, in many ways the way Americans looked at the West. It was the Wild West and for the Germans, the Wild East. The East was there to be colonized. Uh, I think clearly after the First World War when new states were created, Poland, a new state, well, it wasn't really a new state. There had been a Poland, uh, a quite sizable one for uh, centuries, which had then been um, uh, annexed out of existence uh, in the late 18th century. Now is restored as a large Polish state with a corridor that would attach it to the Baltic Sea and with the port Danzig being under uh, League of Nations um, uh, administration. Uh, but Poland... Czechoslovakia, a completely new creation, uh, Yugoslavia farther south, um, all seemed to a great many people not quite legitimate states. And the Nazis certainly didn't see them as legitimate, that the Lebensraum, the living space, was to be gained in the east. And of course beyond those states lay the real prize, and that was the Soviet Union. Uh, the great agricultural potentialities of Russia, Ukraine, uh, and for these beckoned uh, to the Nazis in particular. Hitler wanted to create an autarkic Greater German Reich that is an economically independent German Reich, one that could withstand, for example, a blockade such as England imposed on Germany during the Great War, uh, and it led to starvation uh, of tens of thousands and, and diseases related to, to dietary problems during the First World War. So an autarkic, an economically independent German Reich. What that meant was probably going to be the seizure of territory in the East. And there was an ideological element to this as well. This wasn't just a sort of traditional notion of expansion to the East. For Hitler, the great objective was, from the beginning of his career to the end, the showdown with the Soviet Union. Russia wasn't just Russia any longer, it was now the center of Judeo-Bolshevism. So what might have been a geopolitical objective, seize land, living space in Russia, now would become also a crusade to rid the world of this terrible Judeo-Bolshevist threat. Um, these were there from almost the beginning of Hitler's foreign policy uh, um, discussions, his speeches. Um, he viewed the world. He had, a, he had a notion of the way the international system should operate. His view of Germany was that Germany's historical and rightful position would be to be the hegemonic power on the continent of Europe, the dominant power on the continent. That Great Britain would have its empire all around the world, which Germany wouldn't threaten, that there would be a community of interest between Britain and Germany, uh, that Germany would be a bulwark against Bolshevism on the continent, England would be allowed its, uh, or its, its uh, it, global empire would not be threatened. Across the Atlantic there was the United States, which Hitler thought was legitimately the dominant power and should be the dominant power in the Western Hemisphere. But he also thought in the long run that the United States was doomed, that you could not have a country of such racial uh, mixture uh, that could survive over the long haul 
But for in all intents and purposes, for the foreseeable future, the United States would be the legitimate dominant power in the Western Hemisphere. And then beyond, across the Pacific, there was Japan, the Aryans of the East, he sometimes uh, called them, that the Japanese uh, would have a legitimate claim to dominate, dominate Asia. And these would be the four powers that would operate in this world system, this international system as Hitler envisioned it. What Hitler was really talking about and what he envisioned was Germany's ability to act much the way a superpower would act. The term didn't exist, superpower. But if it had, it would have been appropriate to Hitler's view that these would be the four superpowers in a multipolar world. All of this meant in practical terms, not only the revision of the Treaty of Versailles, but its absolute destruction. Uh, publicly, Hitler talked about equality. In all of his public statements from 19, from the moment he became chancellor, uh, right down to the first shots were fired in 1939, was always about equality. Germany had been denied its rightful position by the Treaty of Versailles, and now all Germany wanted to do was to restore its rightful position, to reclaim. Other, other countries had armies. The Czechs had an army. The Poles had an army. The Austrians had an army, but not Germany. So, uh, equality, the ability to defend itself, and peace. Uh, Hitler would always say in his speeches, and he would always have these long warm-ups to the speech where he would sort of circle around the main topic, would always be that, well, other world leaders might think about war, but if they suspect me of having warlike intentions, they're all wrong. I was a vet, I'm a veteran of the front. I was there in the trenches, and I know what war means. And I'm not in favor of war. I don't want war. The German people want peace, and that's what I want. But we want peace with equality. There must be equality. Um, one sees this reflected perfectly in his first foreign policy action. Germany was already a participant in a world disarmament conference. Um, and at that conference, Hitler decided to make a splash. His representative at the conference, Germany's representative, made a dramatic proposal. Germany would completely disarm if France, Britain, the United States, Japan, Russia, all the other powers would disarm too. Well, since Germany only had an armed force of 100,000 troops, this wasn't much of an offer. And when the French balked at this, then they didn't say no immediately, but they, it was clear they weren't going to do it. Hitler, in a huff, withdrew Germany's representation from the conference, withdrew from the League of Nations, which was involved in it, and said, you see, they're not really interested in equality. They're not really interested in justice. This evil system that was set up by the Versailles Treaty is there to keep Germany down. All we want is the same ability to defend ourselves that every other nation has. Why don't we? This played very well at home. First of all, it was thumbing his nose at the Western powers that were responsible for Versailles. It's hard to overemphasize the degree to which the, that treaty was unpopular in Germany. It didn't matter if you were the most radical communist, whether you were a moderate Catholic center party member, or whether you were a Nazi. The Treaty of Versailles was universally hated as unfair, 
uh, the reparations that had come with it, unfair, everything associated with it, unfair. Um, and this would then be Hitler's approach to, uh, to emphasize Germany's determination to revise the treaty. There was nothing in this that was particularly shocking. All German politicians since 1919 had talked about revising the treaty. Even Gustav Stresemann, whom we mentioned, who had tried to fulfill the treaty between 24 and 28, had done so so that he could uh, reveal to the Allies how impossible it was to do it, to pay the reparations and so on, how unjust it was. So there was nothing particularly unusual about Hitler's public stance that he wanted to get rid of the treaty, to revise it, to smash it. In 1935, the Tsar, a region in the southwest of Germany, which had been put under League of Nations auspices since the end of the war and had been administered by the League, was now given the opportunity to hold a plebiscite. Did it wish to become, stay in that status? Did it wish to become, or did it wish to become part of Germany? Uh, and the vote in the Tsar in 1935 was overwhelmingly to come back to Germany go Heim ins Reich, they called it, the return to the Reich, come home to the Reich. This was trumpeted, of course, by the Nazis as a great success. Look, you see, one of the great principles of the Treaty of Versailles had been the national self-determination of peoples. This had been one of the reasons that Woodrow Wilson believed that Europe had gone to war in 1914, was frustrated, frustrated legitimate desire for uh, national unification or uh, national uh, sentiments. Hence, the creation of Poland, the creation of Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, and so on after the war. The Germans had always felt that the way that that principle had been applied was that if it worked against Germany's interests, fine. Whenever there was a case where national self-determination of peoples would work in Germany's favor, it was, it was uh, blocked by the Allies. And in fact, that's not an unreasonable way to view this. Um, in 1919, the Austrians what was left of rump Austria, German Austria, had wished to become part or to be united with Germany, to be only to be blocked by the Allies. You know, the French and the British said, well, we fought the Germans for four years and got away by the skin of our teeth, and we're not going to have a larger Germany now than we did back in 1914. There were other instances of this, uh, areas along the Polish-German border, for example. Um, so Hitler's view and the way he presented this was always we've got legitimate claims uh, on the basis of national self-determination of peoples that were uh, just completely ignored, suppressed by the victors at Versailles. Um, but the theme that certainly occupied him most was this thing of national defense. Germany's defenseless, surrounded by potential enemies in the center of Europe. It has no way to defend itself. In 1935, March 1st, Hitler announced his determination to build an air force, a Luftwaffe. This was, this was specifically banned by the Treaty of Versailles. Hitler argued typical fashion. Well, the British were modernizing their air force, uh, and if Britain were going to modernize its air force to give it more striking power, then Germany needed to be able to defend itself. 
hence he the Air Force. There was protest from the predictable sources, the French in particular, but no real concerted action against this German decision. And so two weeks later on March 15th, Hitler announced that he was going to introduce conscription. He was going to build a German army that within a year would be a half a million men uh, in size and that it would grow uh, after that. Uh, justification? Well, the others had already shown themselves back in 1933 as being opposed to disarmament. Germany had offered to disarm. They wouldn't do it, so now Germany has to defend itself. Again, protests, but no real concerted action against uh, the German uh, uh, position. In fact, Hitler also announced, just to make explicit what he had done, he was renouncing the Versailles clauses on uh, rearmament. The League of Nations certainly lodged a protest, but it fell on, on deaf ears. Then in March of 1936, on March 7th, Hitler moved German troops into the Rhineland. The west bank of the Rhine, close to Cologne, was still part of Germany. It was part of the, had been part of the Weimar Republic and now was part of the Third Reich. But according to the treaty, that area of the Rhineland was to be demilitarized. No German troops allowed. This was extremely important, small piece of real estate, but strategically important. Because as long as there were no German troops in the Rhineland, France could simply, if the Germans got obstreperous, French troops could simply march across the Franco-German border, be in the Rhineland, and be at the Ruhr, the industrial heartland of Germany, in a flash, just as they'd done in 1923. The decision to remilitarize the Rhineland meant that France was going to be deprived of, of its one bit of military leverage uh, in dealing with the Germans. All of Hitler's generals argued against this move. The high command of the army said, this is crazy. Uh, if the French send so much as a battalion of troops into the Rhineland, well, we can't stop them. It'll be a humiliation on a grand scale. His diplomats advised him not to do it. Hitler overrode their objections and rolled the dice. It wouldn't be the last time. Uh, again, objections. Uh, but nothing, and no real, no real action. In fact, the British didn't even really protest. This was a, a worrisome matter to, uh, to the French, but it shouldn't have been, uh, because the British had already made a deal with uh, the Germans, allowing the, the British saying, you can rebuild the fleet as long as it's no larger than one-third the size of the, of the British. So... For the French looking at this, they thought, you know, mon Dieu, the British have sold us out. Not only, they're supposed to be enforcing the Treaty of Versailles, and said they're cutting their own deal with Hitler. The French couldn't trust the British, they believed. Nobody could trust the Americans who were at home uh, with their sidewalks rolled up in a period of extreme isolation. Uh, so, isolationism. So, um, these actions were taken with protests, but no real concerted effort to, to stop what the Germans were doing. Part of the reason for this, and this is, I think, extremely important, it, by the late 1920s, uh, there had been a sea change in the way the West viewed the Treaty of Versailles. 
Sidney B. Fay, a very famous and distinguished historian at Harvard, had published a two-volume book called The Origins of the Great War, in which a Western scholar, for the first time, argued that Germany had not been solely responsible for the outbreak of the war. Not only had it not been solely responsible, it wasn't even mostly responsible for the outbreak of the war. There was, by the late 20s, a growing pacifist movement in Britain, and a feeling among the sort of educated elites in Britain, and also, I believe, in the United States as well, that the Great War had been a great mistake. What, after all, was the great issue at stake in the First World War? What great principle was at stake? Uh, and what was worth the loss of millions of lives? Was the death of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand worth all that? Was Bosnia-Herzegovina worth world war? And the general view tended to be no. Even John Maynard Keynes, who'd been part of the British delegation to Versailles uh, in, in this period, finally said, well, the, even the economic demands, the reparations and so on, had been too harsh. So there was an international climate that was conducive for Hitler to play this particular song uh, that uh, Germany had been mistreated. It had been mistreated about disarmament, it had been mistreated about reparations, it had been mistreated about uh, war guilt, it had been mistreated um, uh, about national self-determination of peoples. And then in 1936 came the jewel in the crown as far as Nazi foreign policy was concerned, and that was the Olympic Games. The world came to Berlin. Um, the country was cleaned up. We talked about racial policy in the last lecture, part of the reason for the end of the Einzelaktion and these individual acts of, of harassment by local uh, Nazi radicals against Jews uh, was to present the best possible view of the new Germany to all the journalists and tourists who would be coming to the games. Americans know one story about uh, the 1936 Olympics and one story only, and that is, of course, Jesse Owens. Uh, the great African-American athlete who uh, won gold medal after gold medal after gold medal, and what a great embarrassment this was to Hitler. Well, Owens certainly did dominate the Olympics in track and fields, as the Americans did, as they always had done. But the Germans won the 1936 Olympics, winning all of these sort of obscure... I always insult people, so if there's anyone listening who is in, uh, unhappy with this, but all of these events where you ride and shoot and swim and uh, do a variety of things, shooting, horseback riding, uh, and so on, the Germans dominated and they won. And for Hitler, far from the 36 Olympics being an embarrassment, it was a great public relations victory. Not only that, this, to, to remind everyone of exactly what the international environment was like about matters of race or about anti-Semitism, the American track team, the Olympic coach, pulled a Jewish athlete from the last relay team uh, and replaced him with Jesse Owens. It was a foregone conclusion the Americans were going to win. And so it didn't really make any difference. But he pulled the athlete because he didn't want to put Hitler in the embarrassing position of having to receive a Jewish athlete. 
So it isn't as if somehow Nazi anti-Semitism in this period was sending out shock signals of outrage to, to uh, the rest of the world. And the world had come to Berlin and Germany showed off. In 36, Hitler would also send troops and equipment to help Francisco Franco in Spain fight against the Republic of, the Republic of Spain. This to uh, Mussolini, his, uh, in many ways Hitler's model in Italy had done the same, sending uh, Italian troops. What this did was to position Hitler to be, to, to draw closer to Mussolini, to find an ally in Europe, and also to help drive the wedge between Mussolini and England and France. Mussolini enjoyed very good publicity and stood in very good standing in uh, England in particular. The Spanish Civil War would be uh, a problem and Hitler was quick to take advantage of it. In 1937, a year when there wouldn't be a dramatic foreign policy victory of the Nazis, there was, however, a meeting, a very famous and very controversial meeting, a secret meeting between Hitler and his foreign policy advisors and his top military people. No notes were to be taken at the meeting, but a colonel by the name of Hosbach did take notes, and those notes have become now known as the Hosbach Memorandum. In that memorandum, he, we read that Hitler had laid out his foreign policy and military goals for the foreseeable future, that Hitler believed that Germany needed and would achieve Lebensraum somewhere between 1943 and 1945. Um, this would call for probably the annexation of both Austria and Czechoslovakia. There's no mention of Poland. There's no mention of the Soviet Union. Um, the military people present, two generals, uh, both complained, uh, still at a time when this was possible or in a very... Uh, uh, congenial fashion that this looked like a tall order for the German army to do uh, and that surely this would involve them in a war in the West with England and France and did Germany really want to fight a two-front war. And then the foreign minister, Baron von Neurath, also raised uh, concerns that this would lead to a two-front war and so on. What's controversial about the memorandum is what it means. Was Hitler sort of giving a tour of the rise and talking in very general terms that he wanted by 1943-45 Germany to be prepared for a showdown, a war for Lebensraum? Uh, or was this a kind of timetable? He mentions Austria and Czechoslovakia. Was he thinking in very concrete terms, this will be my next step, this will be the next step in order to achieve these goals? It's been interpreted in both ways um, as a sign of blueprint or a typical kind of Hitler oration uh, in which he's really talking in very general uh, terms. Um, we know certainly that within a year, the two military leaders, Generals Fritsch and Blomberg, were both removed from their positions in the German army, uh, and Baron von Neurath, the foreign minister, was also replaced by a Nazi uh, named Joachim von Ribbentrop uh, as foreign minister. So these potential uh, obstacles on the road to Hitler's policy had been removed. What would follow in 1938 would be the high point of Hitler's foreign policy achievements before the war 
and also the pinnacle of Hitler's popularity at home. In early 1938, Austria uh, became very nervous about German uh, designs. There was a German Nazi party in Austria. It had been banned uh, in 1934, but they were still there. There were still lots of protests, a lot of Nazis in Austrian prisons, but also a lot who were demanding some sort of Anschluss, some sort of linkage with Germany, which the Austrian government certainly did not want. The prime minister of Austria named Kurt von Schuschnigg sought support from Italy, from France, from England, took soundings to see if there was any guarantee of Austrian sovereignty. He didn't receive any, but the Germans found out about it uh, and provoked a crisis. Uh, the Nazis argued that this action showed uh, lack of faith by the Austrians. There had been an agreement between Austria and Germany in 1934 in which Germany and Austria sort of tried to talk about coordinating their policies and so on. Um, at the last moment, when it looked like Hitler might in fact be willing to actually invade Austria over this, uh, the German ambassador to Vienna an old friend by the name of Franz von Papen, who had more lives than a cat, resurfaced. Uh, he was supposed to have been killed in the Night of Long Knives when, when uh, um, Gregor Strasser and Ernst Röhm had been killed in 34, but, but hadn't been home. He'd gotten away and now surfaced as, as uh, ambassador. He suggested a bit of summit diplomacy. And that summit diplomacy uh, was to lead Schuschnigg to uh, Berchtesgaden to meet Hitler on, at Hitler's home there. Schuschnigg traveled uh, to Salzburg, went across the border, was taken uh, in motorcade from up to Hitler's place in Berchtesgaden, but not at the usual big house, but went round and round and round a mountain uh, in a long uh, motorcade of cars, got out in a parking lot uh, and looked like just the side of a mountain there when he realized that there was an opening in a tunnel. Two enormous doors opened and Schuschnigg was led inside all the way down this long tunnel uh, with torch lights all the way down where SS uh, men in dress uniform, white gloves, helmets, bayonets. They walked down the long hall and into a room, a small room, which Schuschnigg realized was actually moving. It was an elevator. He was taken to the top of the mountain the elevator doors opened, and there was Hitler with the high command of the German army. Hitler gave an ultimatum uh, that Schuschnigg should um, give in, allow certain things, free the Nazis, uh, and so on, which Schuschnigg refused to do. He somehow got off the mountain uh, in one piece, uh, went back to Vienna and said, well, we're going to have a plebiscite in four days to determine this. Um, this sent Hitler into a fury. Uh, there was going to be no plebiscite, uh, and so uh, the Nazis, in effect, forced an ultimatum on Schuschnigg, uh, and the Austrian government caved in, and there was an Anschluss, a linkage between Germany and Austria. Hitler moved into Austria with great cheering crowds uh, on his way to Vienna and announced, to everybody's surprise, nobody had really thought he was going to annex Austria, that Austria had now become a part of Germany the Ostmark. He had fulfilled his childhood dream, he said, of bringing the Germans of Austria and Germany together uh, in one 
Großdeutsches Reich, one greater German Reich. As soon as that was done, Czechoslovakia moved from the back burner to the front, and Europe was set to begin a slide toward the outbreak of war in 1939, as events in 1938 came to a close. It was in this situation, however, that the Reichskristallnacht, this great pogrom against the Jews of Germany, occurred in November, and has to be placed in public awareness against this great foreign policy victory and the other which would come in October, uh, the seizure of the Sudetenland and the Munich Conference. Lecture 9, Munich and the Triumph of National Socialism. Hello. This is our ninth lecture in our series on the history of Hitler's empire. In the eighth lecture, we talked about the diplomatic policies of the National Socialists between 1933 and 1938 and concluded with what to that point had been Hitler's greatest achievement in foreign policy. That was the so-called Anschluss with Austria in the spring of 1938, his bringing uh, this German Austria into a greater German Reich. Uh, Hitler himself saw this as the culmination of a lifelong dream. He'd been born, as we mentioned much earlier, in Braunau am Inn on the border between Austria and Germany. Uh, he had talked in Mein Kampf about the bringing together of all Germans into some sort of Großdeutsches Reich, a greater German Reich, and this seemed to be a fulfillment in part uh, of that dream and that political objective. Inside Germany, it was tremendously popular. It uh, seemed to, Hitler had forced the national self-determination of peoples, which had been one of the hallmarks of the Treaty of Versailles, onto the international community. There was great unease in Paris in particular, in London and so on, about the Anschluss with Austria. But, after all, it was national self-determination of peoples. They couldn't argue with it from some sort of principled view. And the Austrians seemed uh, to uh, want this unification. Great scenes of jubilation in Vienna as Hitler uh, spoke uh, in the center of the city, a uh, triumphant procession of Hitler's caravan all the way down from the German border into Vienna. Um, but of course, this is the public reaction. Himmler and the SS moved in uh, to Austria at the same time and within two weeks had arrested 70,000 politically unreliable Austrians. There would be a plebiscite, but only after the Nazis had uh, uh, established full control in Vienna. Uh, no one knows what the outcome of that plebiscite would have been. This was a Catholic country. There were still objections and, and concerns, especially at this time by the Vatican about uh, National Socialist Germany. The Vatican had issued a, an encyclical called Mit Brinnender Sorgum, with burning care, about breaches of the Concordat that the Nazis had signed with the Vatican in 1933. And yet, there seemed to be considerable public support. Very few people were able to do what, if you've seen The Sound of Music, the Von Trapp family apparently did, which is to sing their way across the Alps uh, from Austria into Switzerland. That great triumph was just the beginning. 
for National Socialist policy. During the Anschluss, Hitler and Goering had worried about the possible reaction of Czechoslovakia to German actions in uh, Austria. They were afraid particularly of military, of military mobilization. The Czech army was sizable. It was very well trained. It was very well armed. Uh, and so the concern about what the Czechs might do over a German incursion into Austria was considerable. There had been a National Socialist Party in Czechoslovakia where there was a sizable German uh, population, particularly around the rim of Czechoslovakia that extends into uh, Germany proper, an area called the Sudetenland, a mountainous region right on the frontier. The NSDAP in Czechoslovakia had therefore been banned. Uh, a Sudeten German home front headed by a man uh, called Konrad Hinlein had been established. It was a quasi-Nazi organization of, of Germans, ethnic Germans, living in the Sudetenland. The Sudeten German party was pro-Nazi, certainly by 1936, it was obvious. And their goal, stated goal, was secession of the Sudetenland from Czechoslovakia. After the Anschluss with Austria, uh, Czechoslovakia moved to the forefront of Nazi attention. So great was the concern in Prague, the Czech capital, about uh, the Anschluss that Hitler felt it necessary to send a reassuring telegram to the Czech president, Binish, um, reassuring him that Germany had no uh, territorial desires uh, in Czechoslovakia, um, while at the same time gave his military men uh, orders to, quote, smash Czechoslovakia in the foreseeable future close quote. Indeed, the date was set for October 1st, uh, 1938. The Sudeten Germans were encouraged by Berlin to make impossible demands, to provoke incidents whereby the Czech authorities would be seen to oppress the German minority uh, in Czechoslovakia and in the Sudetenland in particular. Um, in, in fact, things became so tense that in May of 19. Uh, uh, in May of, of 38, the Czechs had actually even beforehand had sent uh, word that they wanted to mobilize their troops. Um, so the concern was there uh, in the, the summer of 1938, and a diplomatic struggle would ensue. The fear in Europe was that somehow it was clear that the Nazis were pressing, 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 and the Czechs uh, the Czech government didn't see this as national self-determination of peoples, and the Czech government and the Czech authorities had the ability to resist. So what would happen if the Germans moved into the Sudetenland or claimed it? Czechoslovakia had treaties with two major European states, one with France and one with the Soviet Union. If Germany moved into the Sudetenland and the Czechs resisted, it would be the tripwire that would start a second European-wide war. The agreement between France and Russia was, uh, and Czechoslovakia was, that Russia would come to Czechoslovakia's aid if France did first. Stalin didn't trust the West, and he didn't want to be provoked into a war against Germany. He always thought that basically the West was trying to encourage German expansion to the East uh, at his expense. So, for Stalin, the treaty made sense. If France honored its obligation to Czechoslovakia, so too then would the Soviet Union. 
But for diplomats in Europe and all over the world, in fact, concern grew over the summer of 1938 uh, that something would lead to a German invasion and then this would be the start of a second world war. It was in these circumstances uh, that uh, Neville Chamberlain uh, decided to intervene uh, at the uh, Nuremberg rally uh, in uh, early September. Uh, Hitler called for the Sudetenland to come, Heimensreich, to come home to the Reich. It was a long tirade against the Czech oppression of uh, the German minority there. Um, it looked as if he was working himself up into some sort of declaration of war. Neville Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister at this point, decided to engage in what we would call summit diplomacy. He would fly to Germany to meet with Hitler. He was not going to be guilty of the same things that his predecessors during this crisis of 1914 had done. That is, simply stand by and let the situation uh, move inexorably toward war. He was going to go. He would, he would show his goodwill by going to talk to Hitler man to man and see if something could not be worked out. Chamberlain would uh, visit Hitler uh, in Berchtesgaden in September of 1938 and September 15th. And what he found was the agreeable Hitler, the charming Hitler, the Hitler who uh, welcomed him. He did the same routine as, as uh, poor uh, Shushnik had done earlier in the year, that is, was taken up to uh, this um, uh, house up on top of the Alp, the, the eagle's nest, uh, taken up in the elevator. But when the doors opened, uh, for Chamberlain, there was not the general staff of the German army. There was Hitler uh, bowing, charming, we want to work this out, we have no designs, we have no desire for war, and so on. But he was very firm about one thing, and that was that the German minority in Czechoslovakia was being badly treated and something had to be done. Um, Chamberlain left. Uh, Bitch to Scotton. Uh, determined to go back to London. He told Hitler he would go back, see if he could win the agreement of the British cabinet to work out some deal about the Sudetenland, probably with a plebiscite involved where there would be a vote to see whether the Sudetenland really was wanted to be par become part of Germany or remain in Czechoslovakia. He would also use his good offices to convince the French to play ball on this. No mention of the Russians. Um, he went back to London. He did just that. The British cabinet went along. Uh, uh, Edouard de Ladier, the Prime Minister of France, was a little more cautious, uh, a little more concerned, but ultimately the French government went along as well. Chamberlain returned to Germany for a second meeting with Hitler, this time at Bagotisberg on the Rhine, and this time he found full of, just absolutely full of himself for having pulled off this real coup. He'd convinced the cabinet, he convinced the French, he'd found a solution whereby there would be some arrangement where the Sudetenland would have a chance to express its, its views and would ultimately probably become part of Germany. But this time he didn't find the charming Hitler. He found uh, the brash, demanding, fanatical Hitler who said that the German who simply told him this wasn't good enough, the German people's patience was finished, that the Czechs were persecuting uh, Germans in the Sudetenland, atrocities every day, and that although he was doing his best, he simply couldn't hold back the wrath of the German people toward these atrocities committed 
against uh, the German minority. At a speech in Chamberlain left crestfallen, not knowing what to do. At a speech at the Sportspalast in Berlin shortly thereafter, Hitler demanded agreement on the terms he had put forward. That was basically immediate German entry into Czechoslovakia. He demanded agreement within 48 hours. It was an ultimatum. At this point, Britain and France actually mobilized their troops. They were, France was going to honor its obligation. The British looked like they were going to do it as, as well. One way or the other, Hitler threatened, this matter will be resolved by October 1st, so it seemed as if a real deadline had been given. The Czechs rejected Hitler's demands, and Europe stood perched on the precipice. The situation was saved by Benito Mussolini, who, despite the fact that he had made an agreement with Hitler, the Pact of Steel, and Mussolini loved rattling the saber and pounding his chest and talking about the warlike qualities of Italy and so on, Italy was not prepared to go to war, and it certainly was not going to go to war with England and France over a strip of territory in Czechoslovakia that most Italians could not have found with a, uh, a magnifying glass. Mussolini suggested that uh, he would use his good offices, bring about a conference to settle this crisis, and Chamberlain agreed. So on September 29, uh, 1938, Chamberlain... Edouard de Ladier of France, Mussolini and Hitler met in uh, the Führerbau, uh, the Führer's offices in Munich, for a conference, a conference that has lived in infamy ever since. Uh, it was the Munich Conference. Uh, if you want to discredit anybody in political life to this day, all you have to do is say it's another Munich, it's appeasement, and so on. So great. Uh, was the apparent uh, criminal uh, myopia of, of Chamberlain at this point. The Nazis got what they wanted. German troops moved immediately into Czechoslovakia. The Sudetenland became part of Germany. There was no fighting. Absent at the Munich conference were the Czechs, who lit, whose delegation literally had to stand outside the building waiting to hear the fate of their country, uh, the news brought to them with great embarrassment by Britain and France. And the other uh, uh, party not invited to the conference was the Soviet Union. Soviet Union who still was saying all the way through this that, that it would honor its obligations to Czechoslovakia. Chamberlain, there's the photograph uh, of this conference after the, the pact had been signed, the agreement had been signed. Uh, I rarely think a picture is worth a thousand words. Um, but this may be one of those cases where it is. There's a picture that shows there's Chamberlain who just looks pleased as punch with himself. He's so satisfied. He saved Europe. He'd saved Europe from war. Over what? This little strip of territory. There was, everybody agreed, pretty much ethnically German. Was Europe ready to go to war over that? Millions of people die over the strip of largely German uh, territory uh, that had been ceded to this new Czech state? He thought not, and most people in Europe agreed. Next to him is Edouard de Ladier. De Ladier has a look on his face like someone who's just supped with the devil. He knew no good would come of this, uh, and you can read it in his face. Relief is there uh, on uh, the countenance of Mussolini, and then there's Hitler standing at the end, um, 
beaming like the cat who swallowed the canary. He'd gotten exactly what he wanted and without war. His popularity in Germany soared after this. A great victory. Not only had Germany brought more Germans into this Großdeutsches Reich, Britain and France and Italy had all come to Germany. Germany had, under Hitler, had forged its own, own fate. And of course, back in England, Chamberlain would return uh, and waive uh, the agreement. Actually, it's not the actual Munich agreement, but uh, another agreement made at the time, held it up with those most famous of all famous last words, I believe this means peace in our time. The implications of Munich were profound indeed. For one thing, there had been an opposition forming within the German army under General Ludwig Beck. When Hitler gave the orders to prepare an invasion of Czechoslovakia, Beck, who was chief of staff of the army, looked at this and said, this is suicide. This will not work. That mount, the, the region that Germany would have to invade is all mountains. The Czechs were well armed. They were well trained. They had a large army. And Beck thought, if we invade, we'll be annihilated. Uh, the Russians will come in, the French will come in. And he began uh, to organize uh, resistance. He resigned his post but in protest and continued to uh, try to convince other high military leaders of the folly of this action. Beck and the military conspirators who had begun to think it may be time to remove Hitler were shocked, shocked that the West would go along with this. Uh, and when it, it, just as in 1936 when Hitler had moved into the Rhineland over military objections, now Hitler had gambled again and he'd been proven right and the army wrong. It also drove the Soviet Union away from the West. It convinced Stalin, who didn't need much convincing at this point, of Western weakness. France and England, anti-communist states, he believed, particularly England, weren't interested in really holding back the Nazis, only in channeling Nazi aggression uh, to the East. The West could not be relied upon in the crunch he believed. Hitler, by the way, was convinced of exactly the same thing. The West was weak, vacillating. It wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't stand up to its treaty obligations. Later, Hitler would say, uh, as he planned his invasion of Poland and didn't believe the West would intervene, uh, they won't intervene. I've, I've seen them at Munich. They're worms. Three weeks later, Military plans were already underway for the invasion of what was left of Czechoslovakia. In other words, Hitler wasn't going to be uh, satisfied with just the Sudetenland. And in March of 1939, Germany invaded the rump state of Czechoslovakia. Up until this point, all of Hitler's foreign policy moves, remilitarization of the Rhineland, was German territory. The Anschluss with Austria, after all, these were Austrians who appeared to want to become part of Germany. The Sudetenland, with its largely ethnic German population, all could be justified under the principle of the national self-determination of peoples. He wasn't foolish enough to let anybody have a plebiscite to vote on it, but this is what uh, he could argue. But in March of 1939, German troops moved across the frontier. The Czech government was in an impossible position. Uh, there was no real resistance. 
the French were didn't begin to think about honoring its obligations, uh, their obligations to Czechoslovakia, and neither did the Russians, and the Czech state was absorbed. But so great was the shock of that invasion. It was a naked aggression that Germany had committed, and um, it forced the hand uh, of the British and French government. England now issued a pledge to the Polish state, which might logically be the next on Hitler's menu, uh, a guarantee of Polish sovereignty. Uh, the French did as well. The question was, would they in fact honor uh, any obligations to the Poles? Why, why would they? Why should they? They hadn't done it uh, all through the 30s, and they'd certainly not done it with, with poor Czechoslovakia. Hitler began uh, making military plans for an invasion of Poland. There was a strip of territory, the Polish Corridor, that had given the new Polish state after 1919 access to the Baltic Sea. The city, the city of Danzig uh, was administered as a free city by the League of Nations. It was a German city, uh, had been for some time. Uh, and so, once again, one saw the usual drum roll, German minorities mistreated by the Polish government. Uh, some sort of representation for the German minority had to be made. The German population wasn't going to stand for more of, of this. Um, at this point, so grave was the, the threat, the sense that war might be imminent, that Franklin Roosevelt took the extraordinary step of, of writing a public letter to Hitler in which he listed, it was a laundry list of states that he wanted Hitler to say that they, Germany wasn't going to attack. And Hitler got up in the Reichstag, now obviously all Nazi, uh, and gave one of his most ironic and sarcastic speeches in which he, he goes down through the, all through the list of states and says, you know, I, I realize that President Roosevelt being uh, a great man and a uh, leader of a, a large nation feels it incumbent upon him to speak for the rest of the world, but I, as the Chancellor of Germany, in a more humble position, uh, can only speak for my own country. Uh, it's not clear that, that President Roosevelt has actually sounded out all these countries. He couldn't very well talk to uh, the populations of Palestine or Syria since they're occupied by the British and the French, uh, who wouldn't let them express their views anyway. Uh, and if, if, the, if Germany expressed interest in uh, or asked similar questions to countries in Latin America that they would be told by the United States. Uh, this is uh, referred to the Monroe Doctrine uh, and told to mind Germany's own business. Still in that speech, Hitler made no promises. And he continued to assert that Danzig wasn't worth a war. He didn't want war. He wanted some solution to this now new Polish problem. Nonetheless, he also gave orders to his military that, quote, Danzig is not the object of our activities. Uh, it is a question of expanding our Lebensraum, our living space in the east, uh, our food supplies, of setting, uh, settling the Baltic problem. Uh, there is no question of sparing Poland, and we are left with the decision to attack Poland at the earliest possible opportunity. So while publicly protesting that he's trying to find a way for peace, Poland now becomes uh, first on the agenda, and the military is already making plans for an invasion. Pressure was mounting on Chamberlain's government. Would it indeed honor its obligation to Poland? 
The key to the diplomatic situation in the summer and early fall of 1939, however, wasn't in London. The key was in Moscow. What would the Soviets do? The British and French had tried at various points over the summer to send out peace, not peace feelers, but feelers, diplomatic feelers to the Soviets saying, you know, we're really going to honor our obligations to Poland. And, you know, the Germans, maybe if they're interested in Poland today, it'll be the Soviet Union tomorrow. And we're really ready to stand firm on this and, and so on. But they were low-level contacts. Chamberlain certainly didn't fly off to Moscow uh, to talk with Stalin. Meanwhile, the Germans took this up at a much higher level. The German foreign minister, Joachim von Ribbentrop, uh, had begun uh, to send feelers to his counterpart in the Soviet Union, uh, Molotov, about the possibility of some sort of deal between the Soviet Union uh, and Nazi Germany. Um, and then finally, Ribbentrop offered the possibility of a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union. Um, for Hitler, this pact made no ideological sense whatsoever. I mean, these were the two great ideological enemies. If Hitler was determined to smash Judeo-Bolshevism in the Soviet Union, Stalin saw Nazi Germany as the incarnation of, of, of evil. It was the great uh, fascist power that would, uh, the greatest threat to socialism, to communism in the world. But in a practical sense, it made a good deal uh, of, there was a good deal of compelling uh, uh, evidence to support signing such a, a pact. For one thing, Hitler, who was determined by this point to go to war with Poland, he was going to have his war. As he said, I'm not going to be cheated out of it like I was in Munich. He was going to go to war with Poland. He believed that a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union would act as a deterrent to the West. England and France wouldn't dare intervene if the Soviet Union uh, were already uh, uh, in the same boat as Nazi Germany. What could they do? There was no way they could save Poland, so why would they intervene? It was a deterrent to Western intervention. And, of course, at the same time, and more obviously, it would remove the danger of a two-front war for Germany. This, Hitler always argued, had been Germany's great problem. The first war, it had fought the Russians in the east uh, and the Western powers uh, on the Western front, and he was determined to avoid this at all costs. So this deal with the Soviets allowed him to do that. But I think the main thing was that he really didn't believe the West would fight, the West didn't want to fight, and this would be the, this would be the, the ceiling blow uh, that uh, the, uh, it would act as a deterrent. For Stalin, the pact also made sense. Number one, it would buy time. In 1938, the Soviet Union had uh, initiated, Stalin had initiated, a massive purge of the Red Army. Not just the leadership, not just the generals, the general staff, a purge that went all the way down to company level. Inserting political commissars to make sure that the army was uh, under direct uh, uh, Bolshevist communist control. International intelligence uh, experts believe that the Soviet military was extremely weak as a result. Uh, it seems certainly to be uh, and so it would buy time to rebuild his military. And it would, would also provide territorial and strategic advantages in Eastern Europe. Any agreement would mean uh, a Soviet move west into part of Poland. On August 24th, Germany and Russia astonished the world by signing 
a non-aggression pact. The Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, it was called, or the Nazi-Soviet Non-Aggression Pact in Moscow, pledging not to go to war with one another. But also, there were secret clauses, very important secret clauses, really dividing Eastern Europe into spheres of influence. Germany was to get Lithuania and Vilna, the Soviet Union, Finland, Estonia, Latvia, this, this were to be in its sphere of influence. They agreed on a partition of Poland. Germans would move in from the West, the Soviets from the East. Um, they couldn't agree about Romania, which had rich oil fields. Uh, but the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact on August 24, 1939, was the death knell for the state of Poland and for peace in Europe. Germany was not prepared for a major war. Uh, despite a four-year plan begun in 1936 to build the German economy to make it autarkic, economically uh, self-sufficient, it wasn't ready for a long war. It could fight a limited war, such as one against Poland, uh, a diplomatically isolated Poland, but certainly not a long war. It reflected Hitler's, Hitler's conviction that the West wouldn't fight. He could fight a limited war in the East. And on September 1st, 1939, the German population was awakened to a uh, news bulletin uh, that uh, the Poles had attacked a German radio station on the frontier uh, and that German troops had been responding. In fact, the Germans had launched a massive invasion uh, of Poland um, uh, that within a month uh, would bring the defeat uh, of uh, the Polish military. To Hitler's great astonishment, Britain and France decided to honor their obligations. Chamberlain issued an ultimatum to Germany, either move out of, move out of Poland and then we can talk about the corridor, we can talk about Danzig, we can talk about anything, but not as long as German troops are there. Hitler refused. So astonished was Hitler that the West had, and then Chamberlain, declared war on Germany, as did France. Chamberlain was so, uh, Hitler was so astonished by this that when he heard the news that they had actually declared war, he turned to Ribbentrop, who had guaranteed him they wouldn't, and said to Ribbentrop, what now? Germany had made no preparations, as I said, for a long war. They had uh, followed a policy of armaments and breadth not in depth, so that uh, they had lots of different sorts of, of military equipment, but it hadn't been built in any sort of depth to sustain a long war. The Polish campaign was over in a month. The Poles fought heroically uh, against overwhelming German force. You've probably seen photographs or films of Polish cavalry riding out on horseback to do battle against uh, German tanks. Warsaw was bombed. Uh, signaling already that this wouldn't be a war like the first war where there was a distinction between the front and uh, the home front. Now civilians were already on the front line uh, with the bombing of Warsaw. What had Hitler had believed would be a short engagement against Poland now threatened to be the European-wide war which he did not believe and was not prepared, did not believe what happened and was not prepared to fight.
Lecture 10, War in the West, War in the East. Hello and welcome to this 10th in our series of lectures on uh, the history of Hitler's empire. In our last lecture, we discussed the outbreak, the coming of the war in Europe, the misassumptions by Hitler about possible British and French responses to a German invasion of Poland. We saw that within a month, the Polish state, despite heroic uh, efforts on the part of the Polish military and population to resist the Germans, uh, had fallen by October 2nd. The city of Warsaw had been pounded from the air a first, setting a new tone, sending a signal that this was to be a different sort of war uh, than the first war. And that now the question facing Germany, which had not prepared for a long war, was the responses of England and France. They had surprised Hitler by declaring war, uh, honoring their obligations to Poland, uh, and now the question was, having seen Poland fall, what would the British and French actually do? Hitler had used a new strategy in the attack on Poland. It was called Blitzkrieg, lightning war the mounting of uh, armored units supported by air, air power uh, to break through enemy lines, encircle uh, the soldiers trapped there in great armored pincers with an emphasis on speed, 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 speed. It was the, the new strategy was a way of overcoming the trench warfare that had bedeviled the militaries of the First World War. The Germans had developed this blitzkrieg strategy as a military strategy, but it also had political implications and economic ones as well that suited Hitler very nicely. Hitler did not want a long war. He, had, uh, he wanted business as usual on the home front. One of the things that he was determined to avoid was privation of the German uh, civilian population. Uh, he believed, having watched the revolution at the end of 1918 that brought down the old empire, that it was because of this privation at the home front that the German people had abandoned uh, the Kaiser and that Germany had lost. So he wanted a, a blitzkrieg strategy would mean that you would try to do business as usual. You wouldn't mobilize the economy on a full wartime footing. You would fight a quick lightning war against a diplomatically and militarily isolated opponent, which would be uh, settled in a matter of weeks, possibly a month, two months at the most, uh, and then it would be possible to, uh, to continue day-to-day -day life uh, inside of Germany. As a consequence, as I indicated in the last lecture, what Hitler had pursued was a policy of armaments in breadth and not in depth. Germany simply was not prepared for a long war, not for a war against England and France that might drag out, as everyone feared, uh, like the first had done. What came then after the fall of Poland was a very curious period, uh, a period in which technically Germany was at war with England and France, uh, but in which nobody was shooting at anybody else. Uh, it was the English and the Americans called it the period of the phony war. Uh, the French called it the drôle de guerre, the strange war. The Germans called it the Zitzkrieg, uh, the sitting war as opposed to the Blitzkrieg. Um, and during this period, there were lots of diplomatic feelers that were sent back and forth. Hitler basically trying to convince the British, look, you know, we have no quarrel with you. Uh, we, we don't want to see a war between uh, Great Britain and Germany. Surely, 
uh, you can understand this and some sort of uh, accommodation can be made. The British response was consistent. It was remove your troops from Poland and then it will be possible for us to sit down and talk, which the Germans, of course, were unwilling to do. So through the fall and winter of 1939 and into the spring of 1940, this strange war, this phony war, this Zitzkrieg prevailed. But it became increasingly clear with the failure of any sort of diplomatic initiative that war was coming in the West. Uh, and indeed, it did. Uh, in April, German troops attacked uh, into uh, Norway and Denmark. Uh, to cut off any sort of northern approaches by the, to uh, the uh, British and French to secure a northern front. Uh, and then in May of 1940, German troops struck in the West. Using the blitz, same blitzkrieg tactics that had, that had proven so successful against the Poles, the Germans smashed into Holland, into Belgium. British and French troops rushed to meet them and then a major German armored column burst out of the Ardennes forest, cutting off the British and French troops in Belgium, swung around uh, and inflicted a devastating defeat on the French army uh, and on the British. Uh, the British uh, were cut off uh, between May 28th and June 4th. Uh, there was this tremendous uh, evacuation of British troops off the beaches at Dunkirk. Uh, which uh, was in many ways a military miracle. They'd gotten about 300,000 troops off the beaches when they were virtually surrounded by the Germans. But there was no getting around, and of course this would go into the mythology, the British mythology of the war, this great miracle of Dunkirk. But nothing could disguise the fact that it was a terrible military defeat. The British had been driven off the continent, the French army was in shambles, uh, and Britain had left all of its hardware, military hardware and stuff, uh, its supplies, its material on the beaches at Dunkirk. Then the Germans turned south and marched toward Paris. On June 22, 1940, barely a month after the hostilities had actually begun, France surrendered. It was a shock of enormous proportions. Everyone around the world, military experts, intelligence experts, political figures, all had counted on the French army uh, providing the same sort of heroic resistance that it had, it had performed during the, the Great War of 1914-1918. And now this army, this country which had stood heroically against the Germans all the way through four plus years of war in the Great War, had collapsed within a month. Hitler forced uh, the French, to, uh, an armistice on the French, uh, to be signed in the same railroad car in which the Germans had signed the armistice in 1918. There's a very famous film, uh, news, uh, newsreel footage, uh, that shows Hitler getting ready to go into to the signing of the treaty. And he's, he's standing there dressed in his military uniform, which he wore once the war began all the time. And he slaps his thigh. Uh, sort of raises his leg and slaps his thigh in pure jubilation. Uh, the British got hold of this, uh, of course, and uh, the British were very good at political propaganda, uh, uh, transforming the film so Hitler does a little jig uh, over the grave of France, as the British uh, newsreel said. The Germans 
with the masters of the European continent. Uh, the British refused uh, to uh, see reason, as Hitler put it, refused to come to any sort of agreement. One of Hitler's worst nightmares occurred on the very day that Germany invaded in the West, back in May, and that is that Neville Chamberlain stepped down and he was replaced in office as prime minister by uh, Winston Churchill. Churchill had been alone, uh, virtually alone in Britain, considered a troublemaker, a warmonger during the 30s for complaining about the Nazis, saying they are a danger. We're going to have to face them one of these days. He was opposed to uh, much of the uh, British policy of appeasement. And now Churchill was in charge of British policy. For Hitler, this was in a way the final straw. There would be no coming to terms with this warmonger, uh, as Hitler liked to call him. Britain refused, in other words, to see reason, Hitler believed, and continued to fight. Um, what ensued would be an air battle over the English Channel. Uh, and the Germans began drawing up plans for something called Operation Sea Line, an invasion of England. Uh, there had been no plans for this. The army had had no contingency plans. There were no logistical plans that had been made. And Hitler turns to his military advisors and says, you know, we want to be able to invade uh, England within six weeks. The cross-channel invasion that the Western Allies launched against Germany on the 6th of June 1944 had taken over half a year of preparation, indeed longer. Needless to say, the German military couldn't come up with something that would work. Uh, but the prerequisite for any sort of invasion operation was achieving air superiority over the channel. Uh, and so a month-long air battle was fought between the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, and the RAF, called the Battle of Britain, in which the British were able to frustrate the Germans. The Germans were not able to establish the necessary air superiority. And Hitler, although the bombing of Britain would continue, and it moved over from establishing air superiority over to the Channel, its objective moved over to a systematic bombing of London uh, and then later other uh, major cities in Britain, Hitler was impatient. This isn't the war he intended to fight. He didn't want to be at war with, uh, with the English. His, th this wasn't supposed to happen. And only because the British wouldn't see reason was he compelled to at least stay in the conflict. But as soon as there were serious objections raised to the, pos to the prospects of a successful invasion, he was already ready to turn his attention away. The war against uh, England and the, the planning for it was done, uh, to use the German phrase, mit der linken Hand, with the left hand. It was not Hitler's primary objective, and he quickly lost patience. He already began in the summer of 1940, while the bombing was still going on, the air battle still raging, Hitler already began to instruct his military to begin thinking about the possibilities of an invasion of the Soviet Union. Um, and in December, uh, the high command of the army uh, began very serious preparations for an operation called Operation Barbarossa, uh, named after the German emperor of the Middle Ages who had driven uh, into the east uh, to establish uh, territory for the German empire. For Hitler, the war against the Soviet Union had always been the main event. Nazi ideology held the Soviet Union, as we've seen over and over again, to be the center of global, of global Judeo-Bolshevik uh, conspiracy. 
Thus, war against the Soviet Union would not only have geopolitical objectives, the seizing of territory, providing the German nation with living space, but it was also a major ideological goal as well. This would be a crusade against Bolshevism, Judeo-Bolshevism, to save Western civilization, as Hitler put it, uh, against this, from this great threat. Hitler was also convinced of two things. One was that although Germany had been unable to invade Great Britain, and the British were still holding out, that this really wasn't a two, wouldn't be a two-front war. Britain was eliminated as a power factor in Europe. It's true the English were holding on, but the only way that Britain could possibly play a significant role henceforth would be if somehow the United States entered the war. That's the only way Britain could prevail. It might survive, but couldn't prevail unless for some reason the United States entered the war on Britain's side. Therefore, a turn to the East wouldn't be committing the sin of a two-front war. He also believed, as did his military men, that the purges of the Red Army in 1938 had devastated the command structure. That the Red Army was weak. He was able to draw on the Soviet experience of, uh, from its invasion, the Soviet invasion of Finland in 19, late 1939 and into 1940. Uh, the Soviet Union had invaded Finland with almost disastrous results. The tiny Finnish army had fought a winter war frustrating the Red Army, holding out, putting up a tremendous struggle. The Red Army did not look like uh, a serious military force. Hitler believed that the Red Army and the Soviet Union more broadly were rotten to the core. One only had to kick in the door, Hitler said, and the whole rotten structure would collapse within a matter of weeks. In late summer 1940 then, Hitler shifted his attention to the east and despite the non-aggression pact with Stalin, had begun planning for an invasion of the Soviet Union. This was to be ideological war to the death. Hitler warned his generals that this was not going to be uh, a war like the war against France or against England. That this was a war to be fought with unusual rules uh, beyond the traditional practices of warfare. His top military commanders were issued an order which came to be known as the Commissar Order. Uh, that order was followed by a series of other directives which gave a very clear indication of how different this war in the East would be. Let me read you a passage from this Commissar Order. This was to be read to the troops invading the Soviet Union. In the struggle against Bolshevism, we must not assume that the enemy's conduct will be based on principles of humanity or of international law. In particular, hateful, cruel, and inhuman treatment of our prisoners is to be expected from political commissars of all kinds as the real carriers of resistance, meaning commissars of the Bolshevik party. The troops must be advised, number one, in this struggle, consideration and respect for international law with regard to these elements are wrong. They are a danger for our own security and for the rapid pacification of conquered territory. The originators of barbaric Asiatic methods of warfare are the political commissars of the Bolshevik party.
Accordingly, measures must be taken against them immediately and with full severity. Accordingly, whether captured in battle or offering resistance, they are in principle to be disposed of by arms. In case this message wasn't clear, a set of guidelines were issued uh, to the troops. Those guidelines stated quite clearly, number one, Bolshevism is the mortal enemy of the National Socialist German people. Germany's struggle is directed against this destructive ideology and its carriers. This struggle demands ruthless and energetic measures against Bolshevik agitators, guerrillas, saboteurs, Jews, and the complete elimination of every active or passive resistance. I'd emphasize this list. Bolsheviks, Bolshevik agitators, guerrillas, saboteurs, Jews. Well, it goes with that saying that Bolshevik agitators were not going to be very easy to round up. Saboteurs, the same. Guerrillas, the same. Ah, but the Jewish community of what had been Eastern Poland and Western Russia uh, would become obvious targets. So in this list of people to be eliminated wherever they were found. Uh, this was issued to the troops. Following up those directives, another statement was issued to the troops. The most essential aim of the campaign, and I quote, against the Jewish Bolshevist system is the complete crushing of its means of power and the extermination of Asiatic influences in the European region. This poses tasks for the troops that go beyond the one-sided routine of conventional soldiering in the eastern region. The soldier is not merely a fighter according to the rules of the art of war, but also the bearer of an inexorable national idea and the avenger of all bestialities inflicted upon the German people and its racial kin. Therefore, the soldier must have full understanding for the necessity of a severe but just revenge on Jewish subhumanity. An additional aim in this is to nip in the bud any revolts in the rear of the army, which, as experience proves, have always been instigated by Jews. An additional order made it quite clear to the commanders and to the troops in the field uh, that actions taken that in the past would have been subject to military law, to court-martial, things that might have been considered atrocities, would not be considered atrocities in this instance, that there would be no legal repercussions for actions taken uh, in this extraordinary theater of warfare. In addition, Special SS commando units, the Einsatzgruppen, they were called, would accompany the troops into the Soviet Union and would be given, quote, special tasks. These Einsatzgruppen had been given similar special tasks in Poland during the invasion of Poland in September of 1939, where they moved in alongside the troops and rounded up uh, members of the Jewish community, uh, committed all sorts of atrocities. Uh, to the shock 
of the military commanders and to the German troops. There were a lot of complaints during the Polish campaign emanating from the German high command and from German troops on the ground that these SS uh, commando units were getting in the way of military operations. And what were they doing out there? They were just increasing resistance by uh, stirring up Polish resistance with their uh, violent actions against Polish civilians. But the army was told in no uncertain terms before the invasion of the Soviet Union that these SS uh, commando units, the Einsatzgruppen, had been given their orders for special activities from the highest levels of the German government, meaning Hitler. That the SS had committed itself not to get in the way, it would not interfere with military operations, but the army also should uh, make way for them and try not to interfere with their operations either. Troops began moving across the continent in the summer of, uh, spring of 1941. Uh, millions of men, uh, horses, uh, all sorts of uh, tanks, planes, uh, artillery pieces. The original date for the invasion uh, had been set uh, for the spring of 1941, as soon as the spring rain stopped. Uh, but the weather didn't cooperate. It was one of the rainiest springs in 20th century European history, uh, which made the terrain in eastern Poland and in the Soviet Union beyond uh, difficult to negotiate, especially for tanks. And so uh, the military thought about the possibilities of postponing it. And also Mussolini's misadventures in Greece and finally Yugoslavia meant that Germany sent troops to the south into Yugoslavia and ultimately into Greece in the spring, postponing uh, the invasion date, the uh, jump-off date for Operation Barbarossa uh, until late June. It would be a costly postponement. On June 22nd, 1941, the Germans launched Operation Barbarossa. It was the largest military operation in human history. The world, Hitler said, will hold its breath. It was 129 years to the day after Napoleon's armies invaded Russia in 1812. Hitler always had a fine sense of, of history, but one might think that he might have been a little more cautious uh, about choosing this particular date. In the first 48 hours, the Germans enjoyed unparalleled success. They caught the Russian troops completely unprepared, completely by surprise. They overran the initial uh, Red Army positions. The entire Soviet Air Force was destroyed in 48 hours, almost all of it on the ground. So that the, Soviet, the, Red, the Soviet's Red Army operated without any sort of air cover, any significant air cover in these operations. The Germans, within a matter of days, drove deep, into the Soviet Union. Uh, there were three army groups, the Northern Group pressing toward Leningrad, Army Group Center pressing toward Moscow, and Army Group South, uh, which was headed in the direction of Kiev. I think it's important to point something out. We tend to always talk about, uh, and I've just done it, which is to give geographic aims, Leningrad, Moscow, Kiev. But in fact, all military missions have a stated objective, and this one did too. 
The real objective of Operation Barbarossa was to destroy the Red Army in Western Russia within three to six weeks. Then the move on Moscow would take place uh, against uh, uh, very little resistance. There would be chaos. Hitler was convinced, and the military people too, that the Soviet Union would simply crumble uh, and that the Germans would be able then to move on. The Soviets in these first weeks of Operation Barbarossa, indeed in the first months, June into July, into August, into September, suffered absolutely staggering casualties. Hundreds of thousands dying uh, in uh, a number of huge battles, encirclement battles, where the Blitzkrieg seemed to be working uh, as if it were drawn up on uh, the uh, boards back at German military headquarters. Hundreds of prisoners of war taken, 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 uh, prisoners of war taken as the Red Army seemed to be on the verge of collapse. Yet, and in the, those first few uh, heady days, first few weeks indeed of the invasion, in the diary of the German commander, General Halder, in charge of the whole operation, had written in his diary, uh, it would not be too much, he said, to say that the, that the Soviet Union lost the war in the first 48 hours of the conflict. Uh, a month into the invasion, um, again, uh, the Soviets have lost. It's only a matter of time. Uh, and went on to talk about um, uh, possibilities of pacification of the countryside. Indeed, in early October, Hitler put the, ordered the German economy back on a peacetime footing. No winter gear was issued to the German military in the invasion. It was supposed to be over in six weeks. But as the summer dragged on uh, and the, the Soviets were defeated, it was clear to everybody, all in the West, uh, the sort of observers, the Germans thinking about it, everybody seemed to know this except the Soviets. And the Red Army, though suffering unbelievable casualties and giving up terrain, uh, by the tens and twenties of miles per day, hadn't given up. In fact, huge pockets of resistance remained behind German lines, and the Germans were suffering casualties, lots of casualties themselves. And as German lines moved deeper into the Soviet Union, it became more and more difficult uh, to have those supplies reach them. The roads on the German maps, the Soviet Union, nice roads, uh, there were no Autobahn, of course, but what looked like primary roads, big major roads, turned out to be barely paved, narrow uh, roadways. Uh, other secondary roads turned out to be dirt paths. So that um, in the fall, the fall rain started and the Germans bogged down. One often thinks about it being general winter, as they always say, the snows and the cold weather coming that was so devastating to Operation Barbarossa, but it had already slowed by... Uh, the late summer. And one begins to get this awful sense creeping into the German military communiques about uh, what's, what's going on here, that they're beaten, but they, they continue to resist and we're suffering casualties and we're short of supplies. Germany now found itself uh, in the fall of 1941 trying to determine what its objective should be. It had already failed in its first objective, the destruction of the Red Army in Western Russia within six weeks. October brought the first frosts, and the ground hardened again. 
So the Germans thought we can make it forward. The tanks can roll on this terrain. And it was decided to push to, toward Moscow, an all-out push toward Moscow. Uh, and this push began in the fall. But by this time, the Germans had lost about half of the tanks they'd begun the campaign with, not simply to Russian resistance, but just from maintenance problems. The Germans also had been issued, a decision was made by Hitler to issue no winter gear. It finally had been brought up in November when it was clear that they were still fighting. Hitler was afraid that if he issued uh, an order for the requisition of winter gear, that this would send a signal back to the German population that the war in the Soviet Union was not going to be over in a short period of time at all, that victory wasn't within sight, that there was going to be a winter campaign. And so he refused. In late November, early December 1941, Temperatures on the Eastern Front dropped below zero Fahrenheit. German military vehicles froze. They hadn't brought enough antifreeze. In some cases, brought none. Uh, the, tire, the tank treads wouldn't function in the cold. Machines began to break down, and German troops were wearing summer denim uniforms, lightweight uniforms, in temperatures that were below zero. In these circumstances on December 5th, December 6th, 1941, the Russians caught the Germans completely by surprise and launched a massive counterattack before Moscow. German forward units had reached, there's a lot of talk about German troops actually seeing the spires of the Kremlin, but this, uh, this is not actually the case. Uh, maybe a scouting patrol did at one point. Uh, but Moscow was in danger, but this counteroffensive by the Red Army, December 5th, December 6th, halted the German advance. It halted the Blitzkrieg phase of the war, um, making clear to Hitler and to his high command uh, that the long war of attrition, which they had so greatly feared, was upon them. And then, on December 7th, 1941, all the way across the world, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor brought the United States into the conflict. Germany and Japan had a very, very loose sort of agreement uh, of mutual support. Japanese have certainly done nothing to support the Germans at this point. And the Germans weren't aware the Japanese were going to attack. It was a surprise. But on December 11th, 1941, Hitler declared war on the United States solving Franklin Roosevelt's domestic problem, uh, since the American public was uh, certainly ready to go to war against Japan. But now, what had been a European war and an Asian war merged into one, something that was truly a world war. Lecture 11, Holocaust, Hitler's War Against the Jews. Hello, and welcome to our 11th lecture in our series on the history of Hitler's empire. In our last lecture, we examined the German invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941 and concluded with the Russian counteroffensive before Moscow in December. 
That victory of the Russians holding before Moscow, of course, could mark a turning point in the wars. Indeed, it did. It halted the Blitzkrieg phase of the conflict. It certainly made quite clear to the Germans that they were in for the long war of attrition, which Hitler hoped to avoid. And then Hitler's announcement of um, declaration of war against the United States four days later, on December 11th, 1941 made this war, a European war, now a global war. One of the reasons for Hitler's doing that, I should say, to close off that discussion from our last session, uh, was that his, his naval commanders had been uh, lobbying for quite some time for uh, Hitler to allow them to attack American shipping. The United States, on the Lind-Lease program, had been shipping material and supplies to Great Britain uh, for some time. German submarines were sitting out in the mid-Atlantic uh, and were telling Hitler, we're already at war with the United States. We could sink ships by the ton if you only would give us the green light to go ahead. Uh, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, the naval commanders believed would occupy American attention. That's where most American naval strength would be located. And the German submarines would have a field day. Also, Hitler and his advisors simply did not take the United States seriously as a military power. At the time that, that, uh, that Hitler declared war, the United States still had an army that was uh, smaller than France's had been in 1940. Uh, there was no reason to anticipate also that the United States would be able to transform a uh, peacetime economy, a consumer economy, into a wartime economy on the scale that it did. In fact, it would be one of the great miracles of the Second World War, this American um, economic expansion. These topics, and indeed all the topics that we will discuss very briefly here about the Second World War, are dealt with far more extensively in our course on the Second World War, which is available also through the teaching company. The war against the Soviet Union, we saw, had ideological objectives as well as geopolitical objectives. It was the crusade against Judeo-Bolshevism, and indeed, the war in the East had already become something else besides a military campaign. It was the onset of racial war. It was a war against the Jews. Hitler had made a statement in 1939 on January 30th, uh, on the sixth anniversary of his seizure of power. He made this in front of the Reichstag, so and covered over the radio, covered in the international press. I'd like to quote it. This is, of course, before the war begins. One more thing I would like now to state on this day, memorable perhaps not only for us Germans. I have often been called a prophet in my life and was generally laughed at. During my struggle for power, the Jews primarily received with laughter my prophecies that I would someday assume the leadership of the state and thereby of the entire Volk, and then, among other things, achieve a solution to the Jewish problem. I suppose that meanwhile the then resounding laughter of Jewry in Germany is now choking in their throats. Today I will be a prophet again. If international finance Jewry within Europe and abroad should succeed once more in plunging the peoples into a world war, then the consequence will be not the Bolshevization of the world and therefore a victory of Jewry, but on the contrary, the destruction of the Jewish race in Europe. The invasion of Poland in 1939 and the Soviet Union two years later, of course, put Germany in control of Europe's largest Jewish communities. 
In October 1939, Heinrich Himmler was named Reich Commissar for the Strengthening of German Folkdom, a new title that gave him responsibility for National Socialist racial policy in the occupied territories. Himmler delegated that authority to Reinhard Heydrich in the so-called Reich Security Central Office, where SS specialists were already at work on finding a solution to the so-called Jewish question. Immigration, the policy of pre-war Germany, would now become expulsion. In a memorandum drafted on September uh, 19, 1939, entitled The Jewish Question in the Occupied Territories, Heydrich laid out the foundations of National Socialist policy. In those territories annexed to Germany, that is, those areas of the pre-old Czechoslovakia or Poland that would be outright annexed would become a part of the Großdeutsches Reich. All non-Germans were to be expelled. Those territories would be cleansed of all so-called non-Aryan elements in preparation for future settlement by Germans. This meant evacuating all Slavs and Jews to an area, a new state, created on October 12, 1939 as a kind of dumping ground for Jews, Poles, and others uh, coming out of German territory. This was the so-called government general of Poland. Moreover, all Jews were to be rounded up and concentrated in a few selected urban areas in this government general. Indeed, Himmler's September 19th memorandum suggests that this ghettoization was not the final aim, but represented an intermediate step. These concentration centers, or ghettos, were to be located near major rail centers, hinting that further transport was being considered. It was at this time as well that the idea of a Jewish reservation somewhere in the Lublin district or perhaps farther east was openly discussed as a possible solution. There had been some discussion about using the concentration camps within Germany itself, Dachau, Buchenwald, Sachsenhausen, and so on, but that was rejected. Uh, the large Jewish population was in Eastern Europe, uh, the Nazis did not want to mo be moving Jews from Eastern Europe into the heartland of Germany. Uh, it would be too public, too visible, uh, and logistically more difficult. So that had been rejected. The reservation idea was a possibility. Responsibility for executing uh, this policy uh, was placed in the hands of special SS units, Einsatzgruppen, that we've talked about. Uh, who had been developed uh, for the invasion of Poland. These were men with special training, indoctrination in Nazi racial policy. They numbered about 3,000. It is estimated that approximately one million people were rounded up and forced into the ghettos in the government general in 1939 into 1940. In fact, by October 1939, the SS began the deportation of Jews from Austria and Czechoslovakia to the government general and in a signal of radical national socialist uh, racist, uh, racial thinking, uh, Aryan children, so-called Aryan children, were selected for resettlement in Germany. This is one of the, th a hint, I think, as one looks at SS thinking about this. Children, this would be a program that would be developed and kept in place all the way through the war. Children who had so-called Aryan features, they were blonde-headed, blue-eyed, uh, tall, slender, were to be taken away from their parents, also young women, uh, and brought back to Germany, uh, where they were to be raised in special SS homes or bred 
with SS men in the case of the young women. What one sees already in this action is a very important distinction and one worth underscoring. Certainly, the Nazis had played on popular anti-Semitism in their rise to power, and anti-Semitism was still the driving force within National Socialism. But in fact, Nazi racism was far broader than, than uh, anti-Semitism. The term that Germans use for Germans is Deutsche. Uh, the Nazis would often use Germanen, Germanics, I suppose would be a, a, an awkward English translation. Um, and then, of course, Arier. Well, Aryans. Well, these three things were not the same thing in the kind of never-never land of SS thinking. Uh, Aryans were to be found in all of the different uh, uh, populations of Europe. These were the special racial elements that had to be selected out wherever they found them, in Poland, in Czechoslovakia, in Russia, so that, it would, so that they, they could be part of the creation of what was called a master race, a Herrenvolk. It wasn't the Germans, die Deutschen, who were that master race. So this is what the Nazis implied in all of their propaganda to the po German population. But rather, the Germans were, the SS believed, the last best racial hope of humanity, the least spoiled, the least contaminated. But it was their job to find these specimens of racial purity wherever uh, German troops went. Problems with uh, the, uh, the various schemes uh, emerged relatively quickly. As we saw, the Army High Command was appalled at the sheer brutality of the Einsatzgruppen in Poland in 1939, uh, who moved right in behind the Wehrmacht troops, and uh, led to complaints to various National Socialist officials, including Himmler and Hitler. So. We talked about this with the invasion of the Soviet Union. The Einsatzgruppen's relationship with the army would be rather different. But as the war continued in 1940 and went into the West, Hans Frank, the Nazi official in charge of the government general, complained bitterly that the government general was in fact being reduced to little more than a dumping ground for all of Europe's Jews and undesirables, that it was going to become a hotbed of disease if more and more people were being uh, transported into this small area of pre-war Poland uh, he wasn't going to be able to master the situation. Indeed, by October 1940, Jews were being deported from Western Europe to the government general. And as if it, as if it was at this point that Himmler ordered the construction of a camp at Auschwitz to handle uh, the overflow of Jews uh, being brought into the government general. The SS considered several options at this point. In February 1940, the Jewish reservation idea seems to have been approved by Goering, by Himmler, and Frank, but was dropped less than a month later. There were problems with the idea of this, of this Jewish reservation. First of all, where would it be? Well, ultimately, after the invasion of the Soviet Union, the idea popped up again, and then maybe the idea of a Jewish reservation somewhere out beyond the Urals, off at the edge of civilization, as they like to put it. Um, that was a problem. Um, and there was certainly no more options left in Poland, the Nazis felt. At least Hans Frank didn't feel so. At roughly the same time, another plan was put forward within the SS uh, that had been discussed off and on since the outbreak of the war. And that was the idea of, set, of settling Europe's Jews somewhere in Africa. In fact, uh, the place that was chosen was the French co island colony of Madagascar. 
In May 1940, Himmler wrote a memo to Hitler on the, quote, treatment of foreign nationals in the East, close quote, in which he stated, and I quote again, I hope to see the concept of Jews completely obliterated with the possibility of a large migration of all, Jew all Jews to Africa or else to a colony, close quote. Pierre Laval, the, uh, the French premier at this point, uh, and a collaborationist of the first degree, was actively off offering Madagascar as a place to resettle Europe's Jews. Certainly, the SS and especially the, the Reich Security Central Office under Heydrich drafted numerous memoranda on issues of international law, transport, etc., in pursuance of this uh, Madagascar option. But as 1940 turned to 1941, no solution had been found and confusion reigned in national socialist policy. Again, this problem that we referred to earlier of taking a general ideological directive, it was clear Hitler was talking about the elimination of the Jews, elimination of the Jews, but what exactly did that mean? Did it mean a reservation somewhere out in the East? Did it mean a Madagascar plan, as this was now called? What exactly did it mean? How did you translate that desire into a specific policy? While these policy options were being discussed in top secret, within the Reich Security Central Office, another set of decisions in another area of policy, apparently unrelated to events in Poland or Jewish policy, took form that, uh, took form that would come to play an ominously central role uh, with the, in the evolution of what came to be called as the final solution to the Jewish problem. Indeed, this was the terminology that was used. The, the SS and the Nazis always proceeded with euphemistic terminology. So, in all in discussing the so-called Jewish problem or the Jewish question, uh, they would always talk about a final solution, an Entlösung uh, to, this, uh, to this issue. But far away from Poland, as I said, developments were occurring which would play an important and terrible role in that ultimate final solution. In 1939, the Nazis had initiated a program, a euthanasia program, uh, in Germany itself. It was directed by a man by the name of Philip Buhler and Dr. Karl Brandt, and it worked out of Hitler's chancellery in Berlin. This was in pursuance of what the Nazis called racial hygiene, to cleanse the Volkskörper, the body of the people, of all uh, bacteria, of all elements that might weaken the health of uh, the uh, Volksgemeinschaft, the people's community. In pursuance of this, Brunt and Buhler set up 21 special children's departments and hospitals around the country to evaluate children with birth defects, with any sort of physical abnormality, children who were mentally retarded or had some other sort of learning disability to identify them. They used social agencies, uh, including of the church, to identify uh, children with these learning disabilities and so on, without explaining what exactly was at stake in, in this. Part of this was the Nazis were obsessed with what they, they talked about public health. How does one restore public health, create a healthy uh, people's uh, community, a healthy body for the people? Within SS circles, however, they talked about these children as, quote, racially valueless, close quote, 
children. The German term is as ghastly as uh, the German term is as ghastly as the English. It's Lebensunwertes Leben, literally meaning life unworthy of life. Dr. Leonardo Conti, who was appointed head of this program, uh, was very eager to take part. But this is a very interesting point. Dr. Conti wanted to have a written authorization from Hitler himself before he would sign on to be the head of this program to remove the racially valueless children. And what remove meant was to kill. It is very, very typical and very, very significant that Hitler refused. And Conti uh, resigned. Hitler himself was always interested in what we would now call deniability. Uh, he didn't want to be directly associated with this. Part of the reason for that in other less sinister projects was that if it didn't work, if a policy didn't work, he could distance himself from it. It was the person who initiated it, who ran its fault, not his. But in this, Hitler didn't want to have anything to do with a, a written document associating him with this plan. Nonetheless, the plan went forward. In 1940, the program expanded to cover adults who were uh, currently housed in asylums, people with various handicaps, mental as well as physical, people with social problems, meaning alcoholics, chronic alcoholics. Still run out of now Buhler's office in the Reich Chancellery. The personnel for this program were drawn from the SS, and six euthanasia installations were established around the country. The children, and then later the adults, were to be killed by injection. But in 1939, the first experiments were conduct conducted within this euthanasia program with poison gas. 20 to 30 patients were taken to special shower stalls and gassed um, as part of this program. The parents of the children, the relatives of the adults who were, who were killed in this fashion received what looked like personal letters but were in fact form letters saying your son, your daughter, your brother, your husband, your wife uh, has died of complications from an operation or from uh, disease. Uh, no explanation. Over 5,000 racially valueless children, as the Nazis put it, died in this euthanasia program in this period. 80,000 to 100,000 mentally defective or handicapped adults also fell victim to Nazi racial hygiene, as they called it. At one point in August of 1941, the veil of secrecy, which they were determined to keep, slipped a little bit. And there was actually a protest of several mothers who discovered quite by accident that they had all gotten the same sort of letter about what had happened to their children. And they demanded some sort of explanation and they, they went public with it. The program backed off. The murders were halted temporarily, but uh, after a brief pause would pick up once again. It's a broader notion of race, of cleansing the racial stock of the country. 
In August of 1941, of course, uh, German troops were now deep inside the Soviet Union. And indeed, the war against the Soviet Union would profoundly affect Nazi racial policy. We already have cited the infamous Commissar Order, the order to kill partisans, saboteurs, uh, Bolshevik commissars and Jews, clearly indicated that the war against the Soviet Union was also to be a war against Bolshevism and world Jewry. The mistakes of the Polish campaign were to be avoided here. There would be no uh, sources of friction between the army and the SS. This was important because Reinhard Heydrich had assembled four Einsatzgruppen to move into the Soviet Union along with the troops. They were to conduct, quote, special operations and to re report not to the local military authorities along whom they would be working side by side, but rather directly to the Reichsführer SS or to the Reichssicherheitshauptamt, the Reich Central Security Office headed by Heydrich. The SS engaged in mass shootings of Jews, partisans, and what they called Slavic Untermenschen, subhumans. Indeed, the Einsatzgruppen conducted a bloodbath all over the Eastern Front in September, October of 1941. A report of December 1941 by SS Colonel Jaeger, who headed a commando in Einsatzgruppe A, described the procedures used uh, by his group, but they're typical of all. Let me quote. The decision to free each district of Jews necessitated thorough preparation of each action as well as acquisition of information about local conditions. The Jews had to be collected in one or more towns and a ditch had to be dug at the right site for the right number. The marching distance from collecting points to the ditches averaged about three miles. The Jews were brought in groups of 500, separated by at least 1.2 miles to the place of execution. The sort of difficulties and nerve-wracking work involved in this is shown by an arbitrarily chosen example. In Rokiskus, 3,208 people had to be transported three miles before they could be liquidated. Vehicles are seldom available. Distances to and from actions were never less than 190 to, uh, 90 to 120 miles. More careful, only careful planning enabled the commandos to carry out up to five actions a week and at the same time continue the work in Kovno without interruption. In Co Kovno itself, where trained Lithuanian volunteers are available in sufficient numbers, was comparatively speaking a shooting paradise. Not only could the SS count on their own trained personnel, but also on locals who in the Baltic states in particular were more than willing to participate in these pogroms, uh, as well as in certain areas of Poland, Ukraine, and so on. For Himmler and for Heydrich, there were problems, however, in this system. For one thing, they were too public and they were too sloppy. Heydrich, who was after all in charge of uh, racial policy in the occupied territories in the East, was particularly disturbed. The shootings 
uh, could not be concealed from the German troops. And in many cases, German troops participated, thinking they were supposed to. Nobody quite understood. Some units would be involved because they didn't understand that there was a distinction between these SS commando units and their own. Their local commanders didn't, and so they might participate. But mostly they didn't. However, in, in the early stages of the campaign in the Soviet Union, uh, soldiers w who had cameras, who had taken cameras with them uh, it, during Operation Barbarossa, uh, would take pictures. And they often you will see very terrifying photographs, and they'll be of several German soldiers, obviously at a break, during a break in the fighting and so on, relaxing. And they'll have their arms around each other, maybe a, a bottle of vodka in one hand, and they're laughing and clearly relaxed. But if you look at the photograph carefully, in the background, what do you see? You see a line of people, Jews, uh, with a ditch in front of them, or you see someone about to be shot, or you see there's several photographs that were brought back where these SS commandos were uh, burning the beard of an Orthodox Jew or humiliating them in one form or another. These photographs went back to Germany. People knew about it. People found out about this. There was no, uh, there was never any announcement that this was policy, that the, these commando units were operating this way uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, but the Germans didn't do a great deal to conceal this either, that is, from their own troops and certainly not from the local population. And this was something that, that the Nazis, that, that Heydrich would argue was important. It, it was not only important to keep the the troops have a limited knowledge and the population at home a limited knowledge of this. They also had to maintain the ignorance of the potential victims. If word got out about how this was operating, uh, then there would be serious resistance. There was resistance by the Jewish community in various places, but against overwhelming force. Also, this was just too inefficient. Marching people places, uh, taking up time, uh, having ditches dug, shooting, uh, unbelievably uh, inhumane, grisly, terrifying actions, which had now become commonplace on the Eastern Front. This, Heydrich believed, did have to be kept secret. It had to be kept secret from the Allies, who would make great propaganda out of it, and uh, the photographs being sent home stopped too. German censors began to monitor this much more carefully. No, some sort of final solution had to be found, and this was Heydrich's job. Some way to streamline the business of murder. As a consequence, Heydrich began working on this sometime in the summer of 1941. He'd been, they'd gone through various possibilities as we've seen, but it really is clear that at some point in the summer of 1941, when the Nazis thought they were winning the war in the Soviet Union, when the horizon of possibility now seemed limitless. At some point in that summer, Himmler received a direct order from Hitler. Not a written order, deniability again, but a nod. All it would have taken would have been a nod from Hitler for Himmler to know what this meant faced with the options available, uh, some sort of other solution needed to be adopted, a solution that would allow uh, the SS to proceed in this policy 
without a prying world looking on. Several years ago, uh, a very distinguished uh, historian whom I respect a great deal named Richard Breitman uh, published a book about what the Allies knew uh, and what the German population knew and so on. It was picked up, uh, excerpts picked up by the New York Times as sort of blockbuster news that in fact after looking through using the Freedom of Information Act, cables from Britain to the United States during 1941, uh, that the American and British governments had information about, quote, the Holocaust, close quote. What the British and American governments had information about, information that came to them through the Polish underground, came from Jews who had escaped and made it somehow to the West, was that this bloodbath of the Einsatzgruppen was going on in Eastern Europe. That a massive pogrom on, of unimaginable proportions was being conducted on the Eastern Front. This the Allies knew. But were in no position to do anything about it. In 1941, certainly the British were still hanging on the United States, uh, not yet involved in the war. And there was a good deal of skepticism about it. There was not yet the sense that this was a methodical, large-scale program. That large-scale methodical program, the final solution to the Jewish question, would come in January of 1942 at a top-secret conference in a Berlin suburb of Wannsee, where Reinhard Heydrich would explain to a select group of party officials just what the final solution to the Jewish question in Europe would be. Lecture 12, The Final Solution. Hello and welcome to the last of our lectures in this course on uh, the history of Hitler's empire. We had concluded our last session with a discussion of Nazi thoughts, Nazi plans, Nazi uh, options for finding what they euphemistically referred to as a final solution to the Jewish question in Europe. In this, our last lecture, we want to turn to that final solution uh, and to the war and the final collapse of Hitler's Third Reich. As we've seen, at some point in the summer of 1941, perhaps, perhaps intoxicated by their apparent victory over the USSR, Hitler and his top advisors had come to the conclusion that some sort of final solution to the Jewish question was at hand, and that Hitler had issued a verbal order to seek a final solution to the Jewish question. The date is uncertain. There certainly is no written evidence. Uh, this is one of the, I think, red herrings that has been raised sometimes by Holocaust deniers, that there is, or trying to limit somehow Hitler's responsibility, that there is no written document. David Irving, the uh, notorious English historian, uh, once offered a reward of several hundred pounds for anyone who could show a written document linking Hitler directly to this final solution. He might have well have made it 10 million 
uh, pounds because, as he very well knew, and everyone else who's worked on this knows, Hitler did not commit himself to paper. He did not write down orders. You can go through the archives of the Third Reich, and if you find very much at all in Hitler's handwriting, uh, it would be a remarkable find. That's why, and among other things, uh, the discovery over 10 years ago, I guess it is now, of the, quote, Hitler diaries, close quote, uh, was in many ways uh, a, a, a remarkable fraud since uh, no one could really imagine Hitler taking time in the evening to write down his thoughts. So no order, uh, written order, came directly from Hitler. At least we've never been able to find one. But it is perfectly obvious that an order was given. On July 31st, 1941, for example, Heydrich received Goering's formal authorization to prepare a total solution to the Jewish question. Now, Goering, why Goering? Why not Himmler? Well, Goering, as head of the Office of the Four-Year Plan, a plan that had been charged with putting the Nazis on an economic footing to uh, conduct the war, uh, had become involved in Jewish matters as a result of uh, his expropriation of Jewish property. And so Goering, in the complicated, uh, overlapping jurisdictions of the National Socialist Party and state, Goering would issue the authorization to prepare this uh, total solution, this Gesamtlösung to the Jewish question in Europe. The text actually was probably dictated uh, by Heydrich and simply signed uh, by Goering. At this point, the old policy of resettlement, in quotation marks, uh, was still in place for Germany and German and Western European Jews. But Heydrich, at some point in the late summer, must have come to the conclusion that, uh, that the most effective course uh, was something else. He drew on the existing policies and institutions of the Third Reich, the concentration camp system, but not the camps within Germany. These were off limits. These were for political prisoners and other undesirables. And at this point had already become, or in the process of becoming labor camps for the German war effort. But a concentration camp system uh, would be created somewhere else. Resettlement actually meant forced immigration. Resettlement meant the transport of Europe's Jews to somewhere, to a set of camps in the East. And finally, he drew on the experience of the Einsatzgruppen's activities in Russia and the euthanasia program in Germany and their experimentation with gas, uh, poison gas, to eliminate uh, uh, undesirables, health, health, unhealthy undesirables in Germany, to come to, to pull together what would be his final solution to the Jewish question. What Heydrich was now embarked upon was a plan for the systematic mass murder of Europe's Jews. It is clear from testimony that we have, from documents that we have, that by October a plan to use the uh, camps that had already been established in the government general for mass extermination using, using poison gas had taken shape. In November, Hitler told one foreign office official that, quote, the destruction of the Jews is, is being planned. Now the destruction of the Jews is imminent. And an invitation to a conference to, at the Berlin suburb of Wannsee was sent to state and party uh, agencies in November of 1941 to discuss a matter of pressing urgency. 
this was a very was to be a very small group to attend this conference, and it was clear that it was going to deal with the so-called Jewish problem. That conference was postponed. It was set for the first week of December 1941, was postponed in part because of the Russian counterattack and then the American entry into the war uh, in early December. It was to be held uh, on January 20th, 1942. But even beforehand, it was clear what the agenda would be. Uh, Hans Frank and the government general, for example, uh, sent a representative of his to Berlin to talk to Heydrich personally, to see, to ascertain, to determine for sure what was going to be discussed at this important conference. And this is what Frank reported to a number of his colleagues back in the government general before the conference at Wannsee. As for the Jews, I will be quite open with you. They will have to be finished off one way or the other. The Fuhrer said once, if the whole of Jewry once again succeeds in unleashing a world war, then peoples who have been hounded into this war will not be the only ones to shed their blood because the Jews in Europe will meet their end. I know that many of the measures now being taken against the Jews in the Reich are criticized. It's clear from reports and popular opinion in Germany that there are accusations of cruelty and harshness. Before I continue, I would like you to agree with me on the following principle. We are only prepared to show compassion towards the German people and to no one else on earth. The others did not show compassion toward us. As an old National Socialist, I might state that if the Jewish clan were to survive the war in Europe while we had sacrificed our best blood in the defense of Europe, then this war would only represent a partial success. With respect to the Jews, therefore, I will only operate on the assumption that they will disappear. They must go. I have begun negotiations with the aim of deporting them to the east. In January, there is to be a big meeting in Berlin on this question to which I will send my representative. This meeting is to take place in the Reich Security Main Office under SS Obergruppenführer Heydrich, his chairmanship. In any event, a big Jewish migration will begin. What will happen to the Jews? Do you imagine that they will actually be resettled in villages in the east? People said to us in Berlin, oh, why do we go to all the trouble? Uh, we, in, we in the East or in the Ukraine uh, do not know what to do with them either. Liquidate them yourselves, gentlemen. I must ask you to arm yourself against any feelings of compassion. We must exterminate the Jews wherever we find them and whenever it is possible to do so in order to maintain the whole structure of the Reich here. That will, of course, occur through methods other than those to which um, uh, we are accustomed. The point is that this does not come within the framework of the legal process. One cannot apply views held up to now to such gigantic and unique events. To all events, at all events, we must find a way which activate, achieves the goal, and I have my own thoughts about that. The Jews are also extremely harmful to us through the amount of food they gorge. We have an estimated 2.5 million Jews in the government general. If one includes those married to them and all their dependents, perhaps 3.5 million. We cannot shoot these 3.5 million Jews. We cannot poison them, but we must be able to intervene in a way which somehow achieves a successful extermination and do so in the context of the major measure, measures to be discussed in relation to the Reich, the government general 
must be just as free of Jews as the righteous. So the anticipation was there for those who were going to attend uh, the, this important conference at Wannsee. At that conference, presided over by Heydrich, it was made clear that resettlement meant physical extermination. I should point out that this meeting lasted just a little bit over an hour. Uh, it was attended by just over a dozen people. Himmler wasn't present. Hitler wasn't present. Goebbels wasn't present. Goering wasn't present. These were uh, men from positions in the party and in the state, Nazis all, of course, uh, whose agencies would have to be involved in the direct execution of this final solution. And Heydrich uh, was in charge of the conference. There would be special concentration camps created, he told them. Vernichtungslager, death camps, in distinction from those camps in Germany. Horrible enough. Uh, the sole purpose of these camps was to be the extermination of the Jews. They were to be created in Poland and, other, and others expanded, others beyond Poland, Czechoslovakia and elsewhere, prison camps really, to handle the hundreds of thousands, indeed millions, that would be transported there. Many, he said, would die in transit. Others would be worked to death. The others, who had no particular value to the Reich or to the war effort, would simply be liquidated. What did that mean? Well, it meant that mothers, small children, the old, the infirm, were in principle deemed unfit for work. They would be the first to go. They would be marched directly, instantly, uh, to their deaths at arrival at these camps. Special gas chambers would be created, special installations using Cyclone B gas uh, to exterminate uh, those uh, who were selected uh, for transport. In conclusion, Heydrich was talking about literally the roundup and transport of all European Jews to these death camps in the East. This was to be the final solution. The need for secrecy was emphasized, both at Wannsee and in all subsequent operations. Why? Well, the first reason given was that the German public simply was not prepared for this, uh, that even some national socialists might be shocked uh, at the radicalism of this, of this uh, decision. So, it was necessary, certainly the Germans at home knew that something was going on. Germans living back in the Reich didn't uh, assume that resettlement in the East for Jews meant that they were going on some sort of holiday or that they were going to the creation of new, uh, new towns, new villages, new cities. But this was to be kept secret. There could be rumors, there would be rumors in Germany, uh, but there would be no confirmation the emphasis was on secrecy. They would not understand, Heydrich implied. And then there was the issue that we addressed earlier when Heydrich was concerned about the activities of the Einsatzgruppen. Foreign propaganda. During the First World War, the Allies, the Western Allies in particular, had made great propaganda hay out of a number of incidents in Belgium, uh, creating stories that the Germans were bayoneting babies in Belgium uh, 
Uh, the Hun was loose in, in Europe. Heydrich wanted to avoid that. Hitler also was concerned about this. Heydrich wanted to avoid that. Although the foreign propaganda aspect of this uh, was not really first and foremost on his mind. Keeping it as secret as possible from the population at home was there, and then also something else that we've also alluded to about his concerns about the activities of the Einsatzgruppen. If Jews were going to be rounded up in France, in Holland, in Belgium, in Italy, uh, in Hungary, all over German-occupied Europe, this was go it, the process Heydrich believed would depend to a certain extent on the ignorance of the victims. They were going to be required to, to come to the train stations, uh, escorted, of course, by Gestapo or SS. Uh, but it was important for those people to believe that they were off on a journey, that they were going to be resettled. They might have heard rumors about what awaited them at the end of the train line, but they certainly shouldn't have any sort of hard information. This had to be kept secret if uh, this whole diabolical scheme was to succeed. It was then in the spring of 1942 that the Germans launched in this atmosphere of secrecy the final solution to the Jewish question, the construction of the camps in the East. Belgic, uh, the camp, a camp near Lublin was opened in March of 1942. Treblinka, 50 miles from Warsaw in July of 1942. And, of course, Auschwitz, which already existed, but which housed primarily Russian prisoners of war. Indeed, the first experiments with the new gas installations would be conducted on three to 400 Russian prisoners who were already at Auschwitz. It was to be expanded uh, and turned into a massive killing machine. On July 22, 1942, deportations from the Warsaw Ghetto began. The destination was Treblinka. The death camps would operate roughly with the same principles. As I said, mothers, small children, the old, the infirm were to be selected at the very beginning. The trains would arrive, many of the people coming in cattle cars stuffed in uh, from various locations in Europe. On the platform, they would be separated. Those who were capable of work would be sent off in one direction, those who were deemed unfit for work into another. They, for those who were selected for instant death, they were told, you've had a long journey. Uh, it's been difficult, we understand that. Be sure that you've got your luggage marked carefully uh, so that you'll be able to reclaim it. First, you're going to need a shower. You're going to need a chance to um, recover. They were instructed to undress. Women and girls had their hair cut. Why? human hair would be used for industrial purposes by the SS and their various factories, both at Auschwitz and elsewhere. Then they were marched between files of auxiliary police, often uh, SS people, but mostly volunteers or people drafted, uh, Poles and others, uh, for this deadly task. They were taken into, uh, into, down into a bunker-like room, a vast shower 
uh, arrangement. They were pushed in one person at a time. The SS had calculated one person per square foot. At some point during this process, with the shower heads above them uh, and the crush of bodies becoming greater and greater and greater until people were jammed in shoulder to shoulder, stomach to stomach, panic would often break out uh, among the people, either from claustrophobia or just terror at what was awaiting them. And then the great steel door at the back of the chamber would be slammed shut and barred. And then from a vents above them in the ceiling, the gas would be released into this vast chamber. The dying took anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes for everyone uh, uh, to perish. Only when the last screams and cries uh, had been heard and several more minutes had passed were uh, the steel doors of the chamber opened uh, and uh, locals sent in volunteers, some SS personnel sent in to begin the process of cleaning out the bodies. Anything of value from the bodies, gold teeth, hair, anything that could be used in any way for the economic or financial uh, uh, uses of uh, the regime uh, were claimed from those bodies. Between 1942 and 19, late 44, very early 45, when the camps would cease their, uh, their killing, about four million Jews would die. Two million had already died in the activities of the Einsatzgruppen uh, in Poland and Russia, bringing a total to six, six million, seven million, no one really knows, eight million is often the high figure given, but the numbers are astronomical and beyond comprehension. Along with the Jews, Russians, Poles, gypsies would vanish into the gas chambers and then into the ovens. What one saw was the true racial essence of National Socialism. This was at the core of Nazi ideology. Those people who were deemed as enemies of the Reich, those deemed to be uh, dangerous bacilli that would infect the healthy body of the folk were now to be removed in the beginning of this creation of a master race, which might take a thousand years, had begun. The Allies began to get information about the camps. They'd already heard about uh, the activities of the Einsatzgruppen, the, the barbaric pogroms conducted by the Einsatzgruppen. This they already had known about. It would not be until there would certainly be reports, intelligence smuggled out of Poland about uh, various aspects of the camps in late 42 and into 1943, but it was really 1944 before hard information uh, became really available to the governments. And then there was a good deal of resistance to what it actually meant. For one thing, German interaction, military interaction with the Western Allies fighting the British in Northern Africa and then in 42 fighting the Americans there and then later on even in uh, Western Europe after the D-Day landings in, in June of 1944, uh, uh, the German military had fought according to the accepted rules of war. 
Uh, there was no, not much evidence until late 44 when groups, German military from the east were transferred to the west to deal with the invasion. Did one encounter real, did the western allies encounter real atrocities? And so these stories coming out of the east appeared fantastic, unbelievable. And then finally the information just was overwhelming. But then the question was, do what? What to do? In August of 1944, the American Air Force bombed Buchenwald concentration camp in Germany. That is to say, they bombed the factories just to the east and just to the south of uh, the concentration camp and did not hit the camp itself at all. Intelligence planes flew over Auschwitz and later would bomb factories close to Auschwitz. Um, and there was a, a debate within the Allied governments what to do. Uh, did one destroy the camps themselves and kill all the inmates? That was certainly one possibility. It was a long way and a very dangerous way to fly all the way out to Poland in 1944, where the camps were. Uh, it was a, a, a dangerous military job, but it could have been done. The Allies, however, chose not to. They chose instead to take the position that the best way to save Jewish lives and those others caught in the concentration camps was to concentrate on defeating the Nazi military machine and destroy it as fast as possible, and that way bring the end of the regime and therefore uh, to save Jewish lives. There was considerable concern that even if one bombed the camps, the Nazis would simply kill people in another way as they had done in 1940 and 1941. I think one always has to ask oneself, if you were Winston Churchill or Franklin Roosevelt, uh, would you be willing to sign the order that would seem, send planes to destroy the camps themselves, killing the prisoners there, thousands of lives, innocent lives? There was a possibility of destroying the railroad lines into the camps in the east. But one of the things that the Allied Air Forces had discovered over and over and over again is you could destroy railroad lines on Monday and by Thursday the Germans would have them up and running again. This was even true of big railroad uh, uh, concentration points. And so very late when most of the people who would die in concentration camps had already died, the Allies did make public statements uh, to try to discourage the Germans to say the war's over and you've lost and there's going to be an accounting at the end of this war and those people guilty of atrocities will be tried, you can count on it. Uh, but it was too late, much too late. The Holocaust in that sense began then in 1942 in the, with the camps and conducted, as I said, in much, as much as possible in secrecy. Himmler, who visited the camp one time, was ill, violently ill, and never went back, uh, reported to, made a speech, a top secret speech to his SS personnel uh, in 44, in which he said, I want to tell you about a very grave matter in all frankness. We can talk about it quite openly here, but we must never forget about it, we must never talk about it publicly. I mean the evacuation of the Jews, the extermination of the Jewish people. 
It is one of the things that one says lightly. The Jewish people are being liquidated, party comrades exclaim. Naturally, it's our program, the isolation of the Jews, extermination. Okay, we'll do it. And then they come, all the 80 million Germans, and every one of them has his decent Jew. Of course, the others are all swines, but this particular one is an A1 Jew. All those who talk like this have not seen it, have not gone through it. Most of you will know what it means to see 600 corpses piled up, or 500, or 1,000, to have gone through this, and except for a few instances of human weakness, to have remained decent. That has made us tough. That is an unwritten, never-to-be-written, glorious page of our history. Close quote. There one gets the most vivid description of the skewed, warped sense of morality that Himmler and his colleagues had. 42 would also be marked the final, turn, the real turning point in the war. Uh, the invasion of the Anglo-American forces of North Africa in 1942, and then, of course, the real turning point in the war in Europe, the long battle in Stalingrad fought between October of 1943 and February of 19, or 42 and February of 1943, uh, would seal German fate in the East. There would be no more offensives in the East, and after that there would be a long slog of Russian troops toward Germany. The Germans lost over a half million casualties at Stalingrad, dead, wounded, or captured. And the end and the surrender of the Sixth Army in February 43 signaled the end of Hitler's designs in the East and adumbrated the collapse of the Third Reich. The gradual but steady advance of the Red Army from the East and the remorseless pounding of German cities by the Anglo-American air forces would increase in 1943 the invasion of Italy by the Americans and the British in that year, and of course the Normandy landings in June of 1944 mark the declining status of German military fortunes in this last phase of the war. As Nazi military fortunes sagged, Nazi terror on the home front intensified and the concentration camps overflowed. It was in 1944 that a German resistance movement would finally form uh, that would actually take action. On July 20th, 1944, a conspiracy of military officers, clergymen, aristocrats, socialists, attempted a coup d'etat. Cl Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg planted a bomb just at a table where Hitler was speaking uh, at his East Prussian headquarters. The bomb blew up killed other people in the room. Hitler, who was standing six feet from the bomb, survived. He ruptured his eardrum, uh, badly hurt his arm, but he survived to go on. In the aftermath of that failed coup, Stauffenberg and others were hanged by piano wire or shot, uh, and Germany now entered its last catastrophic phase of the war as the SS ratcheted up the controls over the local population where people were hanged uh, from uh, lanterns in the street uh, for defeatist ideas. By the turn of the new year in 1945, the Russians were pressing relentlessly forward from the east, while in the west, the Anglo-American armies pushed out from the Normandy beachheads. Paris was liberated in August of 44, and then all of, Fr all of France. The Battle of the Bulge in December 44 and early 45 in the west was only a temporary setback for the western allies and it was the last gasp of the Third Reich. By the end of January, the Russians had pushed into Germany itself, 
as did the Western allies. And by April, Berlin stood cut off, the Russians a hundred miles on the Oder from the capital city of Germany. In March, the Ruhr fell to the Americans and the Rhine was crossed. And now, as the Allied armies moved into Germany itself, the ideological core of National Socialism revealed itself in all its grisly brutality. In early April, the American Third Army liberated Buchenwald five miles from Weimar. In April, British forces freed 55,000 inmates miraculously still alive in Belzen. Mass graves, bodies piled in heaps, the living little more than skeletons. Ovens choked still with bodies. Storage bins of gold extracted from extracted teeth, balls of women's hair, spectacles by the thousand, dentures, clothing, including in one camp, thousands of pairs of baby shoes, yielded up the harvest of the Third Reich. By April 25th, the Russians had reached Berlin, and on April 30th, Adolf Hitler committed suicide in his bunker. In his political testament dictated shortly before he committed suicide, he stated unregenerate to the last, it is not true that I or anyone else in Germany wanted war in 1939. It was desired and provoked exclusively by those international statesmen who were either of Jewish ancestry or who worked for Jewish interests. Centuries may pass, but out of the ruins of our cities and cultural monuments, hatred again will rise against that people who are ultimately responsible, international Jewry and its accomplices. By the first week of May 1945, the Third Reich had ceased to exist. The roll call of the dead was unbelievable. 55 million people had perished in the Second World War. 1,800,000 military dead in Germany, 1,240,000 missing, 500,000 German civilians killed, largely through Allied bombing, 4 million evacuees from the East who simply vanished somewhere uh, after the war, 390,000 British, 800,000 French, 4,500,000 Poles, civilians overwhelmingly, and Russians. 11 million military dead, two and a half million Russian prisoners of war died in German captivity, seven million civilians were killed by the Germans, 10% of the Russian population, not counting the Jews, uh, died in the Second World War, in addition, of course, to the six million. On May 2nd, 1945, the Third Reich ceased to exist. When the last Anglo-American bomb had been dropped on Central Europe, and the last Russian shell had landed, and the German people began emerging from their hiding places to survey the smoking heaps of rubble that had once been Berlin or Dresden or Hamburg. There must have been a moment, however fleeting, when the grisly reality of all that had happened fell in upon them, and they asked themselves the question, how had it ever come to this? It was a question that must have haunted the ghost-like human shells that suffered the unspeakable agonies of Auschwitz or Buchenwald or Treblinka. It must have come to them in a million ways in the endless nights and days in boxcars or barracks or prison cells or in the gas chambers themselves when the world had become one long shrieking nightmare. For the Germans, that haunting question was accompanied by an enormous burden of guilt, 
shame and horror at what had been done by Germans in the name of the German people. For them, no less than the victims of National Socialism, victims whose only crime had been to have been born a Jew or a Pole or a Russian, there's another legacy, a legacy that must be ours as well. It is a political but even more a moral imperative that this must never happen again. In our own feeble way, we've tried to explain events in Germany to seek answers or at least pose questions about the rise of National Socialism. But the story is not a unique story about Germany. Its lessons, its dangers apply to us all, touch us all, especially those of us who live in democratic societies. Be vigilant about your rights. Care about the fundamental rights and human dignity of others. When the rights of any group, no matter how small, no matter how marginal, are violated, your liberty, your freedom is put at risk. Let there never be a day when we cast about in horror and have to ask the question, how did it ever come to this? That, more than the details of the politics, more than the social developments, more than the theories, is the point of this course. Forewarned, let us hope, is indeed forearmed. We hope you've enjoyed these lectures from our Great Courses series. Our courses are now available to order online. Visit our website at www.teach12.com or you may call our customer service representatives at 1-800-TEACH-12. That's 1-800-TEACH-12. Thank you very much.